Patricia, my darling Patricia. And good evening, everybody. It is August 26, year 2017. I'm Walden Hughes, way over here in Costa Mesa, California. And over 3,000 miles away in the great state of Florida in Fort Myers and Patricia. Hello, Patricia. How are you? I am fine. Hello, Walden, and hi, everybody. I'm back. I told you I was threatening to do that. <laughs> so I am back tonight. And is it time, Walden, to introduce our guest? We do. Okay, we have a guest, um, and for people who have been with us for quite a while, know that we are so fond of Toys for Tots, and we tried very hard to talk with someone from Toys for Tots twice a year so that you know what their schedule is, what the program is all about, and the children, they have managed to help with toys. We have Ted Sylvester, Colonel Ted Sylvester, retired and um, you have to help me with this <laughs> because I don't have. I'm in a. I'm, I'm in a different place. I don't have my big computer, and I'm dealing with older information. Is your correct title, the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation? Your vice president. Yes, that's correct. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's um, yes, the vice president of the marketing uh, and development uh, department of uh, the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation. Marketing and development. Okay, I have to write that one down <laughs> because, honest to goodness, I am just all over the place here. Um, okay, can we can we start with some questions? Absolutely. Oh, good. Okay, tell me what your role is and how you became part of Toys for Tots. Well, um, you know, I, I uh, spent spent uh, many years in the Marine Corps, and and during during those years, I was a uh, in, in the uh, reserve component to, and, and stationed at certain bases and involved with Toys for Tots locally. Um, in, in Atlanta, was a was a pretty big one of our larger campaigns. Um, so involved, uh, you know, uh, you know, o- over the years through through my uh, career in the Marine Corps. And um, as I retired from the, from the Marine Corps um, just a couple of years ago, I was stationed in in the Pentagon, and uh, it was a um, I had some some friends that worked at the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation, and and my predecessor Bill Grind, who was with Toys for Tots for 25 years, was getting ready to retire, and and um, and then just uh, you know uh, some some folks told me about it, so uh, I was interested and in, and in, in, uh, started the interview process with uh, Lieutenant General Osmond and and the rest of the folks there in, in the building, and and. Here I am uh, a couple years later, still still with the foundation. It's been uh, just a, a tremendous opportunity to uh, to transition and, and, and work with, uh, with 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 such fine folks and, and, and a great mission. And and it, it's great because you, you can sleep well at night knowing uh, that you're you know help, helping some some families in need and and, uh, and, and many children. It it helps. I understand. It helps with the sleep. <laughs> um, how long were you on active duty, Ted? I have uh, t- 23 years of, of active service and, and a few few years of uh, um, few more years in, in the reserve component as well. Uh huh. Um, so you're you're into your second career as Bill Grine was. I am. Yes, sure am. <laughs> he sent a note that he was going to be <laughs> retiring, and I said, "Really? <laughs> no, you you can try, but I'm not sure if you're going to make it because a Marine never retires." So tell me That's about correct. Toys. Uh, toys for Tots and how it works today. 
Well, um, just get just a little bit of history. Um, you know, Twins for Tots started in 1947. This this year upcoming is is going to be our 70th anniversary. So, wow. So the program has been around quite a while, and um, it all started with the with the Marine, uh, you know, Bill Hendricks, who was a major at the time in the Marine Corps Reserve, and and it was right after World War II, and and um, of course there were a lot of a lot of orphans, orphans, and a lot, a lot of a lot of folks that were, you know, you know, needing some help uh, in the time of uh, rebuilding. And and his wife Diane actually hand knitted some dolls uh, and asked Bill to to distribute them, find some children in need to in, to, to give the uh, the dolls to. And he went around and and couldn't really find any organizations. Uh, he came back and reported that to his wife, Diane, and she goes, well, Bill, why, why don't you start one then? So so he, with the help of his reserve unit in Los Angeles in 1947, they, they raised about 5,000 toys and distributed them to, uh, to the you know children in need in, in their area. And it was... Uh, that was the such, first year. The first, the first year, year, 1947. Yep. Okay. And it was such a success that the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps Next year said that uh, he, he directed that all the reserve units, which were in many states throughout the United States, do the same thing. And it became a national program in 1948. And and since then, uh, you know, we, you know, we, we reach about and um, we're able to, uh, you know, deliver the joy of Christmas and, and uh, you know, answer uh, Christmas dreams for, for about seven million children in need. That's uh, kind of about the number that we've been able to support for these last few years. That is astounding. That is astounding. One of the things I would love to know is how many children you would choose to help if you had the resources and the toys. Well, uh, you know, we, we, we understand there's there's about, you know, a little over 15 million uh, children uh, li- living living in, you know, at or below the poverty level. So, uh, so there's, there's you know, quite a few folks that I'm sure could uh, could use some assistance. Um, yeah. You know, we're 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 helping out about half half of those. So you know, we've got the little ways to go to to make sure everyone um, you know has has a little uh, magic come Christmas morning. I would like you to talk about the individual gifts. You get corporate cooperation and help, and many donations, uh, huge donations from corporate entities. Tell me about the individual gifts and what percentage of the program the individual gifts cover. Absolutely, we we, we have <clears throat> we have many you know national fundraising programs and and wonderful companies and sponsors that 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 give us a, a lot of help. Um, but the the the, <clears throat> the largest area of, of support that you know that what makes this program so successful is is. Are, are the people dropping in, uh, you know, a single toy in one of our bins across the country? Um, locally, individually donated toys uh, are, are what makes up uh, uh, probably, you know, 80 percent, maybe 70, 70 to 80 percent of our of our of all our, our support services. And, and it's a community action program, and, that, and that's what we want. You know, our, our Marines and volunteers are, are engaging with the. Uh, with their local communities, with, with uh, you know local businesses and media and and the American public, you know within those communities to mm-hmm. generate those toys uh, and 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 uh, deliver those toys to children in in their community. So, you know it's it, it's all about it's all, and we have about 800, a little over 800 this year uh, campaigns throughout the United States and 
you know, each each one of those, uh, you know, uh, does a, a great a great job interacting with the with the folks and 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 being able to support so many kids in the area. And and it's really, it all comes down to the the, the generosity of, of the American public. Again, just dropping a, a toy in our our bin, one one toy at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, two questions. What about Alaska and Hawaii? They are so far divorced from the um, the contiguous states. Do they run programs as well? They sure do. Yep, we have uh, programs in all states to include Alaska and, and Hawaii, as well as Guam and uh, um, and the Virgin Islands, uh, the U.S. territories as well. And uh, wow. yes, we we uh, we are able to. Uh, it, it's uh, a, li- a little costly to ship toys out there, so uh, you know they they raise toys locally. And and what we do at the foundation, you know, as good as our Marines are at raising toys locally, um, you know they they often run short of toys uh, before they run out of children in need. And so we can, uh, through the help of our sponsors and, and individuals and, and whatnot and other programs, um, we're able to, to augment their campaigns and, and, you know, what we'll do for Hawaii and, and um, Alaska and, and, you know, the far, you know, pretty far instead of shipping toys, which is costly, you know, we can uh, transfer some, some of those donated funds and they can purchase toys locally to, uh, to fill out the rest of their shelves and, and keep, supporting children all, all through the holiday season. That is so cool. The, the cash donations, and, and we're at a critical time of the year for you because you're really gearing up to go 100% into the, into the work to make sure that the kids get the toys at Christmas. Uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, okay, they must start around December 1st, you know, and they'll get the toys and give them to the kids and everything will be fine. But that's not really how it happens. Would you tell us how it happens, please? Sure, sure. You know, like I said, you know, our, our uh, campaigns, each each campaign is run by a Toys for Tots coordinator, and, and they raise toys locally. And, and um, we, we, we know that, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of the – you know, as we receive a, a lot of toys from the public, but sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll run out of toys for a certain age group or a certain gender, um, or just run out of toys in general. So, so when we, <clears throat> we, we, we distribute toys or, or funds locally so they can, you know, purchase toys. Uh, and that really is a, is a year long effort for us. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we'll do, we'll do a large, uh, purchase of toys, um, in the springtime, um, we'll order them so they so all the toys are, are shipped to you know our 800 locations uh, so they can uh, start off the season with with some toys on their shelf and and uh, you know start start distributing um, which they they start in October and work work through uh, Christmas time <clears throat> and and what we do before uh, before the the heart of the season what we're really uh, gearing up for now uh, in September we we have an annual training conference where we bring in. Uh, most of our coordinators, uh, about 500 of the 800 of them, uh, will bring in for for three days of training that, you know, offer them some, um, you know, some some best practices and tips and and how to run a campaign. Of course, a lot of our our Marines are assigned to new duty stations, so they have to, uh, you know, you know, about a third of our coordinators are, are turning over each year and, and you know need 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 to, you know, receive a little bit of instruction and and, and uh, some tips on how to run a successful campaign. So that's uh, what we can offer them, and that's coming up in, uh, just about three weeks or so. We'll we'll be give, gearing them up for uh, for the holiday uh, campaign with our training, and then from there it really uh, it really picks up pretty uh, pretty hot and heavy, as you can imagine. 
I do. I, I, I cannot imagine. <laughs> and especially with that level of turnover, uh, you know, having new people come in all the time and don't bore the ones who are experienced to make sure the ones who are inexperienced get all the information they need. So, um, it, it's a, you know, a lot of a lot of our Marines, uh, our units will will have, um, you know, they'll have a coordinator and they'll have an assistant coordinator. So, uh, you know, a lot of them work at, uh, you know, in a very smart manner where, where you, you know, the, the the assistant coordinator who's learning it um, will be the coordinator the following year. So there's a lot of a lot of continuity there, but uh, ah. but you know, it doesn't always work work out. But um, but yeah, you know, Marines. Uh, are, are usually not not uh, on station for more than two or three years at a time, so you know they're always getting reassigned to other duty stations. So there's a bit of churn, but but of course you know it's it's the same mission in, in a somewhere else. So they're all they're all they're all familiar with the program anyway. So it works out pretty good. Tell me the total number of people, Marines and volunteers from the community, who roll up their sleeves every year and start working on sorting toys and making sure that individuals are are taken care of with appropriate toys or, or recognitions. And I know books are really high on your on on your this is great for kids list. Yeah, so so we have uh, again just just incredible support from from the American public. Uh, you know the you know a, a good coordinator um, will 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 build up a, a, a large volunteer network uh, you know to help out uh, mm-hmm. his campaign there and, and and it comes in quite quite different uh, forms of, of, of help but uh, I, you know we we are probably around thirty five to thirty eight thousand individuals are 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 volunteering their time to uh, to help out you know from from October through through December to uh, you know what we did last year was uh, we, we distributed about 18 million toys in total um, to seven million less fortunate children, and that that's a you know it's a, it's a lot of effort and it takes a takes a lot of folks helping out to to make that happen. We get a lot a lot of wonderful 000. folks helping out. <laughs> Thirty-five thousand just blow my socks off. I I had no idea. I mean, I realize <clears throat> that you're in 50 states, and each state most likely has several. Um, area campaigns going on but 35,000 mama mia <laughs> you, just, you just took me away with that one wow <laughs> do, oh do, my goodness do your marines get an education how what the toy for top program is all about when they want to join the marine corps is there any way that you guys you know do an internal p- program for young guys who are 18 19 and ladies who really don't know the program you, you do some form of education? No. Um, well, you know, Walden, I, you know, nothing formal. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you know, Marines and, and other service members, by the way, they, they have, uh, you know, so much required training and, and, and whatnot. But Marines um, don't know about the other services. We, we have uh, – we're, we're, we're um, very proud of our, our honor, our lineage and, and traditions. And, and, uh, and part of that is, is Toys for Tots. Like I said, this is our 70th year, so – um, when when Marines are becoming Marines, they they learn about some um, some some of the some some history and and touch thoughts is is part of that here and there. Um, I would say the the majority of, of learning about the program is 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 when when they're um, involved in a campaign, uh, you know, helping out whether it's just supporting an event or maybe you're a coordinator or assistant coordinator or uh, you know uh, you know just your units helping out a, a little bit at. Uh, at that distribution center at your unit, and then then you'll learn quite a quite a bit about it when you're when you're actually doing it. So, 
how about the local community, like the service group, like the Lion Club, Elk Club, who do a lot for the community, can, can they contact the local unit and have them come out and do a video presentation or something? Maybe that way they can, you know, you guys can get more donations or more volunteers or... Is that possible? Is those types of programs set up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh huh. It, it, it is very possible. You know, we we have a lot of, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, to go back to to our our, we, you know, we have a ninety-seven to three program support ratio. So, so when 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 individuals or or companies are are making a, a cash donation to us, uh, ninety-seven cents of every dollar donated goes straight into the program. So that means we we don't really have a have a budget. For, for paid media advertising or, or some of those other, other uh, you know, um, opportunities maybe we could, uh, um, you know, take advantage of. Uh, but what we do have are, are very, you know, incredible sponsors and, and partners that, that do a lot of, a lot of just what you, what you said there. They do a lot of, you know, advertising, a lot of exposure through, through TV and radio and online mm-hmm. and, and uh, print for us. Um, pretty pretty widespread and and each coordinator also does uh has, has a very uh a robust network of, of local media and local businesses that will um help them out locally uh you know whether it's a a video a public service announcement or, you know radio announcement um, um you know very very extensive so that that does happen quite a bit good and there is opportunity yes wow <laughs> you just you just cover all of the bases. What are you doing different? That's different this year from last year. Well, you know, we we don't really do a, a lot different. Our, our our mission is the same today as it what it was in 1947, and uh, you know, so you know, you know, deliver a message message of hope and and enjoy the less fortunate children through a, a new you know gift at, at Christmas time. So, um, you know, there might be different, you know fundraising strategies or, or, or whatnot, but, but we're really, uh, the program, um, is, is very similar today as what it was back then. You know, uh, our, our, our Marines and volunteers are working to collect toys and distribute them to children. So there's, there's really not a, not a, not a lot different, uh, to, to do that. And, and what, what's so nice about that is, you know, um, you know, I, I think the American public really, really knows the mission and uh, of toys for tots and and uh you know and and tr- trusts it and, and believes in the in in the cause and mm-hmm. it's the american public that simply won't won't let the program fail uh it's it's so successful each year in in you know success being um you know the number of children that were were able to help out each year sure. uh it, it, it it's a model that works uh, great year after year and uh you know, of course, you know the Marines are are doing great work, and and uh, through the help of uh, you know the American public, it, it it it's a good model, and I don't I don't think we really uh, change much from year to year. So, what's going to be your schedule from this point until Thanksgiving? I mean, I imagine you're going to be on the road constantly, Ted. I mean, you seem like when we talked to Bill, that these next three months were always busy. You know, I bet it's the same way for you. It, it is. You know, it, it really starts to get busy uh, come. Uh, you know, mid-September, uh, all the way, all the way through. Um, you know, uh, we have uh, you know a series of events uh, that we do. Um, the uh, we we have the Hollywood Christmas Parade, which is the Sunday after Thanksgiving that that's uh, filmed out there in Hollywood. Um, we have a lot of uh, you know national level events uh, that 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 we uh, that we do. Our our president and CEO is constantly 
constantly traveling from, you know, whether, you know, it's an appearance on, you know, a, a morning TV show or, or, or uh, he'll go up and, and uh, do the either the opening or closing bell of the, you know, stock exchange, exchange uh, um, maybe maybe attend, you know, like the, the UPS store uh, entered a, a float in the Tournament of Roses and, and, and you know, uh, their float was benefiting the, the Toys for Tots literacy program. And so it's, it's just constantly, it's a lot of travel, a lot of events, um, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, thanking, you know, a lot of great, great, uh, you know, uh, sponsors and, and individuals that, that help, help us out in a big way. Indeed. <laughs> just anytime I talk with you or talked with Bill, I would hang up and say, wow. <laughs> I mean, just wow. And having kids who need or parents who need a helping hand to make sure that they have a Christmas for their kids is is just remarkable um, when when the advertising on television especially is pushing items that are so far out of reach of most people even middle class to um, right down to the group that you serve um, they, they don't work <laughs> it just doesn't work right 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 yeah three hundred or a four hundred dollar toy and so they're not um, they're, they 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 just don't fit your program, and um, you make it work. You make it work. Can we do, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, we, you know, we – okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go. You were going to say – Yes, well, you know, we, we do um, – we, in addition to receiving a lot of individually donated toys, we, we do uh, – we purchase a lot of toys, and we have a few um, – you know, a few whole, you know uh, companies, uh, wholesale companies that that produce toys, and and because we're able to purchase such large quantities, we can really uh, we can we can stretch the uh, the dollar pretty far, and and you know a, a simple you know even even a uh, even a five or ten dollar donation, it, it it will it will solve a problem. It, it will literally buy a couple of toys and 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 you know deliver. Christmas to a to a child, you know, with with as little as a five or ten dollar donation. So we're able to stretch it out pretty good, and and uh, and, and and keep uh, leveraging our, our our larger larger purchases. So again, we can augment all those eight hundred campaigns with those toys and keep them you know, keep their doors open all all through the holiday period, helping out mm-hmm. children and and uh, families that that are a little bit down on their luck right now. Yeah, if I'm hearing you correctly. And not only are you asking for help with donations to help you get over the hump, but you're also saying that in many instances you can get a toy at a lower price than what we would have going normal retail out here in the dig in the trenches from <laughs> group of people. Is that correct? That Absolutely. Cheaper? Yes. yes. So that yep, means we sure that can. Yeah. The five or ten dollars that people could send two toys for tots are going a lot further than if they walked into a store and um, and tried to buy something. It is very difficult to find a toy for a child in the five dollar range. It just cannot happen. So um, this opens a whole new door for people who are able to contribute something, but not necessarily a toy. Absolutely, and it's even more compounded as as you get into the preteens and early teens. You know, so so gifts for for older children tend to be a little more, you know, tend to be a little bit more expensive. Or or you know, what's what's a good toy for for you know for an early teen? So uh, 
again, we can, you know, we can leverage our, our, our buying power and, and, and get some really, really nice gifts for, for much less than, than, you know, what you would, uh, in, in the retail stores. Mm-hmm. But, the one but, advantage- but, you know, but, but the heart of our mission is, is, uh, you know, is, is with the Marines engaging with the communities and, and, uh, and doing those toy collections, uh, mm-hmm. and all those, you know, we, we probably have, uh, you know, at least 150, 200,000 toy collection bins across the United States, um, you know, November and, and, and December there. And, mm-hmm. and our, you know, and that, that really does, uh, you know, they, they, uh, American public keeps those toy bins filled up for us. And after, after Thanksgiving, it's, it's, uh, it's a logistical challenge for our Marines who are literally, you know, they're just nonstop, you know, running from, from one toy drop site to another to, to collect the toys. And then they have to bring them back to their, their distribution center. And, and they, they sort them by, by age and by gender and then uh, work with uh, some, you know, local social service agencies and, and, uh, you know, work with uh, identify the families who, who are in need and, and, and distribute them, you know, in time for, for, for the holidays. Yeah. Is, is yeah. anybody have some space, like if the retail store owner may, uh, uh, own a building or something and realize they're not going to rent it out in a couple of months, can they contact you and offer their places as, as a warehouse for you to store some toys? Because I imagine that would be a big help, just trying to save. It is. It, it is. We we have some, uh, again, some, some, some great uh, folks who... Uh, um, you know, local level and, and on a national level that, uh, you know, our, our, our Marines and, and our 800 coordinators, you know, m- most, most of them do not have warehouses and, and what they have to do leading up to the season is, is they're, you know, knocking on doors and, bi- and going to their local businesses and see if they can find some, some warehouse space that, that they're able to donate, uh, to our, our campaign so that they can use that, those as, as spaces to, to receive and, and distribute toys from. <clears throat> so the majority of them, you know, do need to do that. And we are able to, uh, you know, what we can do at, at the, at the foundation, we're, you know, a, a IRS uh, recognized 501c3. So we can acknowledge, you know, that service donation, um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and, and they can use that as a, as a, uh, for tax purposes as well. But we do have many folks that, that uh, donate their warehouse space for us uh, in the fall time frame. And that, that must be a huge dollar savings for you. I mean, oh, it is. It is. This is not an operation that <clears throat> can run out of somebody's garage. <laughs> Somebody picks up the No. <laughs> I have a garage that I can, that I can open up for you. It, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot of kids in each of these, uh, these areas. Um, I have two, one request and one question. Is there a way that we can give a shout-out, um, not a shout-out, but uh, a high-five to companies that you work with, ones that give you good prices because it's it's um, Toys for Tots when you negotiate for the toys for the kids? Is, 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 there a, is it appropriate for me to even ask, can we say thank you to a group of people? I know Toys, for, um, uh, toys R Us is um, an active member of your your inner circle there are there any others that we can say hi to oh there there's uh there's very very many of them um yes to- toys r us raises uh, a, l- a lot of uh money for us they do toy collections as well um you know in their stores and, and they uh you know they've been partners with us for 13 years now and and uh They've raised about, uh, let's see, about $55 million for us over that time frame. So they've done uh, quite quite a bit for us. You know, Hasbro 
<clears throat> they, they've donated a very significant amount of gift and kind to us each year for for 21 years now. So they've they've been a long long term partner for us. You know we have you know Hess uh, Hess Oil and their and their trucks their toy trucks. They donate Delta Airlines. You know they they uh, um, um, provide a lot of support to us uh, and, and and make a very very substantial uh, cash donation. Build a Bear. You know uh, there's there's so many of them. <clears throat> That uh, J. Walter Thompson, you know, they they take our um, public service announcements and and they're able to uh, plug them in TV spots and radio spots all throughout the uh, the country during during the holiday period, and that that's just tremendous amount of exposure for us. So we we have uh, Disney is our our longest running sponsor. Walt Disney himself designed the first poster of the Toys for Tots campaign, wow. and in that poster. He drew a train, and that train is now our logo. And 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 Disney does so much for us, and <clears throat> from ABC TV to uh, you know you know cash donations to to uh, making introductions to you know to folks like Lucasfilm and Nissan. You know it, it just goes on and on. There's so many wonderful folks that that uh, um, help us out. I could I could be here for an hour talking about all all the <laughs> wonderful companies that help us out. Are there a list on your website? Is there a, a corporate? A corporate sponsor, thank you, with or anything people can look at. Yes, there sure is. Yep, we have um, on our website at www.toysfortots.org. Org, um, they can go and and look at our corporate partners and and uh, and and see all of their logos there and 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 what they've done to uh, to support our our program over the years. Great. Absolutely. Well, I was going to ask Walton. I forgot to ask you before we got on the air. Do you have an open line where uh-huh. people can call in? Yes, I do. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Let us let us <laughs> give a number. Uh, if you want to talk with Ted about Toys for Tots and have questions or comments, give us a call at seven one four five four five two zero seven one. That's our regular weekend call in line. Seven one four. Five four five two zero seven. We promise not to keep Ted up too late, but uh, if you, you want to give us a call <laughs> a couple more minutes with, before we let Ted get some sleep, go ahead and give us a call. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, but we're we're just canceling that promise. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to let him go tonight. Poor guy. I don't hear any laughs from that side, Walden. I think I'm in trouble. I think you are. That's fine. That's fine with me. Oh. Uh, it's always it's always fun talking about uh, you know toys for tots and yeah, and, uh, and the folks that uh, that make it happen. Yeah, it's also a Saturday night, you know, <laughs> so. Um, people either look forward to going to bed or look forward to doing something special and we're stuck right in the middle of this i do want to ask you about the kinds of toys that uh, and the appropriate age groups that you need the most help with um, and the kinds of toys and books that that you would encourage people to consider buying for you Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we we support children from from you know you know er, er, early toddlers all all the way up into the uh, um, you know preteens and and early teens. And <clears throat> I, I guess when when you have a the, when your name ends in tots, uh, you know a lot, a lot of folks uh, you know that are donating toys for for you know the you know the the younger younger children. So uh, um, you know where where we. Uh, need to augment most of our campaigns with with uh you know the, and other age groups are uh, the early early years you know uh 
you know, two, three, four years old. And then, of course, the, the uh, pre-teens and early teens. Um, again, those are, you know, a little, little bit more challenging uh, age group to, uh, to procure gifts for because they are t- tend to be a little more expensive. And then um, it's not really toys. Maybe it's a, you know, a, you know, a wallet set or, you know, a small piece of jewelry or, or some, some makeup, uh, you know, whatnot. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, th- those would be the two groups that, that we uh, would uh, need, that, that we need to, uh, you know, augment our, our, our coordinators with, because, uh, you know, as good as they are raising toys, uh, you know, they, they usually uh, fall short a little bit in some of those age groups. But not to worry, we have a lot of sponsors and, and help from the American public, and, and we're able to, you uh, you know, fulfill their needs so they can, you know, not, yeah. so they don't have to turn, turn children and, and family away uh, just because they're in a, in a different age group that they didn't have uh, toys and gifts for. Yeah. And that would be to supplement what the, the groups in the community groups have managed to collect for the children. That's what correct. You, you, That's correct. What and you provide for them. Yes. Okay. Ted, if yes. You and out of the 800, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Out of the 800, Oh yeah, I was gonna say, you know, our, our the, the Marine Toys for Tots Foundation last year, you know, we were, we we augmented um, our 800 campaigns with with about about 66 million dollars worth of toys. Um, you know, about half of that was was uh, you know uh, gift in kind, you know, from companies like like Hasbro and and mm-hmm. whatnot. And then uh, and then the other the, about the other half were were you know we we made purchases uh, to. To purchase specific, uh, you know, age group toys to, to augment and, and fill up fill up their uh, mm-hmm. distribution center so they can, you know, keep distributing, uh, you know, toys. Okay, now I'm going to put you on the hot seat. Oh, no, I really are. Sure, I'm, I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> if you were out shopping for a toy for a teenager, especially a boy, let's let's pick a teenage boy, and I get how how high an age? What what is the oldest? Um, age of a child or teen that qualifies for your program? Well, I, I can't give you a specific answer because each community is a little different. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we uh, give that, uh, you know, the, the, the local coordinator in that area has a lot of leeway on, on um, they, they, they know their communities and they know, mm-hmm. you know, um, th- through, uh, you know, you know, how many, you know, families and what their children are and the ages of their children uh, sometimes, you know, there, there may be a family with a few younger kids and you might have a, a you know, a 16 or 17 year old. Well, you're not going to leave that 16 year old out. Um, you know, they're still going to provide a gift for, for, for that child as well. So mm-hmm. it, it, it really, uh, you know, it, it really uh, depends on each community is a little bit different. So it, it's um, the local coordinator has, has a lot of discretion on, on, on how they run their campaign and, yeah. and uh and they they know best. They you know we we certainly wouldn't be able to know that from um, you know from our our building here in Virginia. Yeah. They they, so they would have to make those decisions. You you don't cast in concrete a cutoff age. You leave that decision to the individual community coordinators. That's correct. Yes, okay. it's typically typically between fourteen and sixteen. But again, it, that's really up to the uh, the local coordinator and. and what his, you know, what the needs of his community are. Can, can, community. can local unit swap? In other words, let's say one unit got a thousand trucks and another group has $500 and I realize that you could use some, the people who have the truck could use the dollars and the people who have the dollars need the truck, could they contact each other and make a swap? Is, is that ever done? It, 
it, it is done uh, occasionally. Um, and, and, and again, you know, we, we try to uh, make sure that, that the, the, the product that, that we receive from, from, you know, large gift and kind, you know, sometimes it's, it's a lot of one type of a, a, a gift and, and we make sure that we don't send too many of any one item to uh, to one unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that they'll be able to, you know, distribute that to to enough different families. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so not, you know everyone's not getting the same. So so we do that, and we do a lot of that coordination ourselves to make sure our our units don't receive, uh, you know, any any one type. But uh, sometimes there is some, you know, in, in, internal, uh, you know. Um, um, transfer of toys between coordinators. A lot of coordinators, you know, that are close by, um, they all they they work hand in hand. Sometimes, you know, <clears throat> one county, you know, might be a little bit low on on raising toys, and the other one might be, you know, a little, you know, a little more robust. And and so they'll so they'll offset in, and help out each other. Absolutely, they they do that quite a bit. If somebody is listening to us and they want to volunteer to work at a local center, Ted. What's the best way for them to yes. find them? Is there, is there go contact the website? What's the best way for them to reach out and find a local moving center to help out? Sure, yes. Uh, the, the website would be the best best uh, means to do that, uh, to go to the, the um, www.toysfortots.org. And then there's a, a tab where you can, you can click uh, Find Your Local Campaign. And then you'll, you'll enter you know, your state and your county or city. It's a big drop-down. And then that will take you to the local uh, coordinator's website, and and from there you can um, request to, to you know to, to volunteer. You can you can find a, a toy drop site. You can find information how to receive a toy if you, if you need it. If you wanted to host an event or do whatever, get in touch with a local coordinator. It's all right there uh, on the website. And the best time to do that would be um, a little bit uh, w- once October starts, because Toys for Tots, you know, we we are a seasonal charity, and our our coordinators are. Our Marines and, and volunteers who, you know, they, they have, have jobs and, and, you know, full-time duties and, and uh, they're not really actively, uh, you know, running those campaigns, uh, you know, uh, and, and monitoring the website probably until 1 October. So anytime after October would be a good time to do that. Excellent. Okay, I want to give you my hot question now. <clears throat> if you were shopping for a 16-year-old, what would you look for? 16-year-old boy. <clears throat> Yes, I, I I have I have two teenage boys, so it's ah, okay. <laughs> um, and, and it's, yes, you got I've got a little experience, but but yeah. it's not easy. I tell you, it's 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 a challenge. Even even uh, you know having two boys myself, um, uh-huh. <clears throat> you know, again, you know the the teenagers are, are a little more challenging. But you know, may, maybe uh, you know maybe a you know a wallet set or or uh, you know. Um, you know, a dog kid, you know, hygiene or, or uh, um, you know, we, we have a literacy program too. So, so some books and, and, and puzzles and, and uh, there's a lot of cool, um, you know, radio controlled, uh, you know, cars and, and, and toys, uh, you know, some electronics that, that aren't, that na- nowadays are, are much, much uh, more reasonably priced than, than they were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of, Neat gifts and, and toys for for the uh, for the teens as well. What about That's the good? What about the old fashioned baseballs and footballs and mitts and those oh, types? Oh boy, of- you you yeah, you hit it on on the head there. You yeah. know, uh, you know, a, a basketball and a football and a, and whatnot. Uh, you know, that 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 really helps obviously get them outside and and and, <clears throat> and exercising and whatnot. You 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 bet. I can't. You know, I 
I'm kind of surprised I, I left that off the list there. <laughs> <laughs> Walden always comes up with the right ones here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you do, Walden. Um, it, it's <clears throat> interesting. One of the things that concerns me when you're dealing with children, especially um, underprivileged children, if there is such a word, that some of them are are not in tune with the average American taste. Like You've got a huge group of kids who would love to go out and play baseball but don't have the equipment to do it, so you buy them a baseball or a, fit, or a catcher's mask, which is, you know, even that's touchy because they have to be fitted properly. But um, your people are so good at that. But we have a huge number of kids who are divorced from society, divorced from activities, divorced from people, and still, especially this group, needs attention. So with that in mind and and knowing that they might not buy into a sports setting, which which is just a a great (coughs) thing for people to consider, what would you do for that kind of child? Teenager, well, <clears throat> when <clears throat> excuse me, our, our our coordinators, you know, again in their communities, and and they're they're raising toys from from the folks that are that are you know you know neighbors or or you know you know one you know very very close to uh, you know all these other folks who may be a little little down on their luck. So I, you know I mm-hmm. think the communities kind of know that, and and when they you know go out to you know to buy a toy and, and drop it in in the bin there, you know I, I think they. Uh, they probably, you know, have a better understanding of, of their, you know, very own community, and yeah. and I think that that you probably see see that uh, in the in the toys that are collected, uh, you know, locally, and and you know we have pretty pretty wide variety. You know, we're in all major cities and and, and a lot of small towns, and and uh, and each one's different. You know, all 800. You know, it's a little bit different. So, um, and 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 again, the uh, the coordinator, you know, he he has a pretty good understanding of of, of the needs of, of the community as well. <clears throat> and if there, are, you know, perhaps uh, items that that uh, that they're not collecting, then you know they can they can let us know, and and we can uh, you know step in with some specific uh, you know types to to augment their campaign. Yeah. And <clears throat> along that same topic, you know, our our Toys for Tots literacy program, you know, we we also in addition to toys, we distributed about. Uh, you know, one and a half to two million to, to maybe three or four million books each year. You know, we know that that children and and um, you know uh, you know from from you know from disadvantaged uh, you know er, er, you know areas they just they simply don't have access to books and, and the literacy uh, you know the literacy rates are pretty you know pretty pretty bad and uh, pathetic and and yes. the, the simple the simple barrier the simple you know problem is just they just don't they just the kids don't have a book. So if you just yeah. put a book in their hand, you know that that alone yeah. can yeah. can really do a, a lot of help. So we, we we believe strongly in that, and and uh, we try to we try to you know deliver a, a book or two along along with some uh, toys, if, you know, if we can. Mm-hmm. So does mom and dad <laughs> does mom and dad come to the center to maybe see a pick of toy? How do you how how does it get to the 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 family unit the the, the very last step? Sure. No, a, good, a great question, and, and and again, it varies a little bit in some areas. You know, uh, a distribution center in, in in Brooklyn, New York, is going to be much different than than you know Huntsville, Alabama. Right. Um, um, some some are are, uh, and again, it kind of depends on on how you know how many. Like like Atlanta, Georgia, they 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 
provided toys for almost 500,000 children in, in wow. the surrounding counties of Atlanta. Wow. And so, you know, that, that, that's, they need the help of, of uh, local social service agencies and, 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 uh, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, provide, uh, you know, lists of, of, uh, of family name, you know, the number of children and, and their ages and their gender. And they'll, and they'll, they'll bag up, um, you know, a package of toys for each one of them and, and deliver, you know, those packages to say the Salvation Army or, or some other local social services. And they'll be distributed that way where others, you know, when they're, you know, not such a huge operation like Atlanta, you know, they'll, they'll actually have family members come right into the distribution center and they have samples of, of toys and, and the mom or dad will come in and, and, you know, you know, pick, pick a couple examples off, off the shelf. And then the coordinators will bag them up and hand them to them and they can take them home and, and, uh, and preserve the, the magic of Christmas and, you know, let the kids, uh, you know, believe in Santa. So can somebody donate, so kind of, can somebody donate boxes and, uh, bags to help to the local center to <clears> the, help them out that way? Yes, ba- bags are always uh, a huge help. You know, <coughs> excuse me. No problem. You know, like large. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, the 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 black. Uh, you know, yeah. trash bags are, are very helpful. Um, those uh, large boxes, um, the collection boxes. Uh, you know, we 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 provide <coughs> our coordinators with uh, with you know a few a few boxes each year, and 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 they do. You know, a lot of folks uh, will reuse those as well, and and uh, and a lot of times, um, you know, a lot of folks just decorate you know they make their own box put some christmas paper on there and you know, maybe a toys for tots poster or something and you know just decorate it up uh you know there's no real um required way to, to you know to decorate a box you know to, to to use as a collection bin very cool i have two questions and then i'm finished unless walden is going no but i'm thinking i'm thinking we need we need to take grab a glass of water pretty quick so uh Go ahead. We'll let t- <laughs> These are really short, short stuff. Yeah. One of the things I mentioned in the last couple of years is that there are some fabulous book bargains in dollar stores, and you can find some real treasures. <clears throat> I found a uh, David McCullough book, a Christmas book up there for a dollar. Can you imagine? And they've got children's books that um, are, are really wonderful, and you get them for a dollar. So people might want to consider doing that as uh, you know, as, as a drop-off gift in the stores that are set up in their individual communities. Um, my last question is: Do you encourage people who belong to organizations like the Elks Club or the Lions Club, um, and uh, there are a couple of women's clubs? Uh, Zanta is one of them. Do you encourage members to go in and adopt Toys for Tots? Yeah, Walden and I have adopted Toys for Tots, and we've been doing this for years, and just love that that we might be able, we might be doing something really good. What about local organizations? Absolutely, like I said, you know, our 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 volunteers. Um, they, they they become even more successful when 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 they're able to to generate a <clears throat> robust volunteer network and and uh, and they do there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of outreach and and there is a lot of encouragement and and whatnot we have a lot of companies that that you know their employees are are you know they have very uh, very nice uh, um, 
uh, you know, programs within their companies that encourage mm-hmm. their employees to, to go out and volunteer their time and whatnot. And uh, yeah. some of them would, would suggest, uh, you know, to go help out your local Toys for Tots, uh, you know, mm-hmm. distribution uh, and, and campaign. Absolutely. That that happens, uh, like I said, a large number of the 35 to 38,000 volunteers are, are folks, just as you mentioned, uh, in those groups. Yes. I was thinking in terms of, you, you opened a whole new door here, but I was thinking in terms of toys. <clears throat> That at, uh, for example, an October meeting, the person who is conducting the meeting might include on the agenda, these are the toys that are very difficult for Toys for Tots to keep up to a level, and I would put in, for me, I mean, this, this would be my choice, uh, preteen and teen on the boys, and just put people on alert that Toys for Tots is, is there, you've got community pickups, and please go out and support the the program by buying a toy absolutely um i think a lot of that does happen uh you know locally um we 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 do that uh you know you know we we try to uh you know get the word out and do some some national level of uh you know uh, you know we we we, you know try to educate the public and and get the call to action out there you know from from the work that we do um And, and and we can you know do that a little bit on a national level, but uh, I, I think where where it really where it really uh, hits home is is uh, like you said you know your your group is uh, you know so close to you know other organizations and 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 you get out there and, and go do that and our local coordinator can can help uh, you know um, you know make those encouragements that uh, you know they do a lot of uh, local uh, you know reaching out to the to the American public you know, in, into their, their local communities with, with whatever messaging they need, like, Hey, we are short on this age group or, or, you know, toy collections are a little bit slow and, and, and they'll get uh, with some of their local sponsors and, and media and whatnot to get that message that call to action out so they can, mm-hmm. you know, address in any, any specific shortfalls uh, just so they can keep their, their, you know, their doors open all through the holiday season. Just super. Walden, I have finished. All right, I have one more thing for Ted, and we'll uh-huh. let it go. All right, Ted, where can people donate? Their yeah. website? What can we do? What can we do to help online? Where can we go? Oh, yes, thanks for asking. Um, yes, at, at www.toysfortots.org, um, it'll it'll bring you to our homepage, and you can select the, the, the donate button and, and uh, help us uh, deliver you know, message of hope to a, to a child this Christmas and holiday season. Well, Ted, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas, and we'll call you in December, probably. You're free for a little bit get to give Look, it an update. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Take, take care, oh, that Dad. That would be great. Ted, thank you so much for being with us again. We've been talking with uh, Colonel Ted Sylvester, retired Marine Corps. Uh, there is no such thing as retired. <laughs> Put it next to the Marine Corps. Um, and and we are just so delighted that you were able to come back, Ted, and, and come out and play with us. We talk. We, we call it on Saturday nights. So you have a wonderful night. I hope I didn't overshoot the runway here too far. And, uh, not not at all. Thank you okay. for having me. Appreciate it. Well, we'll talk to you again in December. Sounds good, and you have a great weekend. You too, Ted. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye-bye. Well, I have a surprise for Patricia. I love surprises, as long as they're they're good and they're not practical jokes. They are. This is not a practical joke. No, it's good. this is good. good. Okay. Now, we can give out our phone numbers to everybody. If you want to talk to Patricia, it's 714-545-2071. 
Patricia has a favorite song. And yeah. I, you know, I found it in a couple versions of Phil McGee and Molly. And, I, and there's a singer of the Golden Days of Radio named oh. Jack Birch, who had a daily show for 19 years during the Golden Days of Radio from 1935 to 54. And I was going through the recordings, and he told the story of Patricia's favorite song and sung the song. And I thought Patricia might enjoy hearing her favorite song again in a different platform. Very cool. All right. So we're going to walk over. So we'll hit, hit the magic button. So hang in, everybody. We'll have Patricia enjoy her favorite song. <laughs> That's very good. Thank you, boy. Pay your fare next time, will you, Tony? You know, friends, sometimes you find a very human story behind the writing of a song, especially an old one. Now, for example, there's that lovely song, I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen, by Thomas Paine Wessendorf. You know the song. Well, it seems as though Thomas Paine Wessendorf lived in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, whose own family lived far away in New York. And Mr. Wessendorf's pet name for his wife was Kathleen. And in the winter of 1875, their little son died. And for a time, it seemed as though Kathleen might follow him because of grief and loneliness. Well, one night when Kathleen lay very ill, the doctor told her husband he had better send her home to her mother in New York as soon as possible. But Kathleen knew that she couldn't stand the long, hard journey alone in the middle of winter. And traveling was mighty tough in those days. And then there was a chance of bankruptcy if Thomas Paine Wessendorf stayed away from his work for six months. Well, that night after Kathleen fell asleep, Thomas sat at his piano staring at the keys. And the night wore on and no solution came to him. And then when the candles burned their lowest, an old Irish tune strayed, strayed into his mind, like the voice of a good angel showing him the way. It was a song about taking someone home. And then out of the night, out of nowhere, his own song came to him almost completely formed, words and music. And this is the promise he sang to his sleeping Kathleen. I'll take you home again, Kathleen, across the ocean wild and wide, to where your heart has ever been since The roses all have left your cheek. I've watched them fade away and die. Your voice is set whenever you speak, and tears bedim your love. 
saying I'll take you home Kathleen I loved it uh, I thought you would oh oh my goodness and the the singer who sang his he, name his name was Jack Birch B-E-R-C-H he was a door to door salesman uh-huh. in the mid 30s and he had a tendency to sing just before he knocked on every door and he, he was singing he knocked on the door and the woman one day who answered the door, her husband ran the local radio station, so she arranged for him to have an audition. And so he oh. wound up having a career in radio for 35 years, for 19 years, a daily show. And, mm-hmm. and um, so I just saw her fall in love listening to a bunch of the radio shows because he's just a nice, easy style and a little quartet down there. And mm-hmm. uh, he lived... Into, into about 1993, so he was a, a, a great, great one of undiscovered little treats of old-time radio. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it sad that so many of these high-quality, rich, high-quality down-to-earth um, have, have fallen by the wayside. We're into Fibber McGee and Molly and the Lone Ranger and all sorts of stuff like that there. But we don't, um, you found this accidentally, I'm presuming, is that correct? Well, I was just going to a bunch of the shows, and, and I just came, I kind of fell in love with the show. I just heard this was the third song of a 15-minute mm-hmm. show, and I said, oh, well, I know somebody who will love this. <laughs> you have a home for this one, yes. Yes, this this one has been hatched on the other coast. <laughs> this, is, this is good. So this I'll, is I'll good. be putting that in your Dropbox when you can have access to your Dropbox. That way you have that. Or, or your oh, other. oh, 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 I have access to, hmm, well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do have access to my Dropbox from the, the little computer. Okay. Well, I forget what I did. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I just go to Dropbox.com and um, see, you know, <laughs> what I did. <laughs> but anyway, I, yeah. 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 So anyway, that's that's my treat. So I put that all together for Patricia this week, and I just wanted to trim that up and be a nice little gift. Oh, very excellent. That's a super gift. I, I do love that song so much. I, you do, yeah. So much. I mean, I have, I have tears in my eyes when oh. you were playing. <laughs> oh, I got to the middle of it. And, you know, it's one of those songs that you can imagine what the the person is and, and what he's singing about. And, you know, Kathleen, who's probably very sad not being able to get back with her family. Yeah. And it's, it's such a vivid um a vivid song. It, it, 
tickles of it's, all the stuff. It's one of the beautiful treats about old time radio, I think. You know, you get you get involved with the comedy and the drama and everything else. Mm-hmm. So that's how it's how you introduce. Then you occasionally if you're able to expand your nugget a little bit, you you're able to find hidden gems with really unknown or very obscure shows or shows that have been forgotten today culture. And that's just mm-hmm. sort of what we just found. So You did good. Thank you, my dear. We you are did. We you are live. We are live. Patricia's gonna be here for a little while before we tuck her off to bed. And she got she gotta go do her squats tomorrow. You know, squat one, squat two. Yeah, and I did. I've, I've kind of bargained with physical therapy, <laughs> and they're letting me use their parallel bars, which is which is really what I need, you know, yeah. to hang on to a bar and try to get down as low as I can, and that will give me the strength to be able to get up off the floor. Woo-hoo. Wouldn't that be grand? Woo-hoo. I haven't been able to do that in forever. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, the, I'm the classic example of I've fallen and I can't get up. I know, but yeah. you're still with us, and that's what's important. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Just to remind you, Patricia's guest schedule. In two weeks, she'll have Bobby Rydell as her special guest on the 9th. And we're still working with the Santa Claus School, so I'm hoping by the end of September we'll have that locked in. I'll follow up the phone call. We want to still get a hold of a Christmas tree farm. I, I get, I'm pursuing that. So we're sprinkling some of her guests early. And then, of course, we got Christmas coming up before we know it. So we'll, we got to go plan what we're going to do to spend the holidays, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 714-545-2071. I don't think our family's watching the fight tonight, do you, Patricia? Oh, is this the Mayfield? Yeah. Or, yeah. It comes, um, it's coming on at 1 o'clock in the morning your time. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> I'll be sure to tune in. Guys. Well, you know how much you know how much have they? Uh, it's it's a hundred dollars a watch, a view. Have you seen? You know what the numbers have? How, how much they've raised so far, going into this early evening? Now this is this is being able to view online or on television. Uh, correct. Uh huh. It's a hundred dollars a pop. A hundred dollars a pop. Hundred dollars a pop. And I would say, I would say, because people who like fights are crazy, <laughs> um, and they they would do this. They would take food away from their kids to tune into this thing. I mean, really, the the object of the game is to pummel your <laughs> opponent half to death. Yep. Um, I would say five million. Uh, add two more zero to that. <gasps> five hundred million? Yes. You've got to be kidding! No, me. they're up to five hundred million dollars. Five hundred million dollars right now. That's incredible. Yeah, That's, pr- I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, five hundred million dollars. To watch somebody beat another person, oh, break their noses. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess they, I'm, I'm assuming you're not. You weren't the winner this week of the Powerball because you're not living in Massachusetts, oh. right? Oh my goodness, that lady! I, you know, it's, it's interesting that she came forward so quickly because yeah. most people with that kind of a win, and that this is a first. I don't think any any uh, lotto or lottery uh, ticket type thing mm-hmm. has ever gone that high. This is 
this is an all-time record. Is that correct? Seven hundred and fifty-eight million dollars. I'd well, like to set that record. My goodness! <laughs> My goodness! You know, it's it's just such fun to to see people who were, they're going to enjoy this. You know. <laughs> so anyway, oh. maybe she could enjoy it with us. Who's Absolutely. There? Hello there. You're on with Patricia. Greetings from the Great White North. Hi, Gary. Well, hello. How's every little thing in Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin's fine. What? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What does that mean? My, my feet are killing me. I, just, I don't know what's wrong with them. Uh, had, they been hurting, uh, had they been hurting you for a while? Just the past two days. I don't know what's wrong. I got I got to call my doctor Monday and find out. See what's going on. Are, are we going to make it feel any better tonight? Um. Yeah. We'll, we we will distract you from the ugly stuff and put some fun stuff in your life. Ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How does the grass grow? Let's see here. Uh, have you decided to put the feet in ice water? No, I have some medicine I, I, I put on, and, and I got a couple of pills I take. And it's taken quite a bit of the pain away. It just That's good. Walk. Yeah, we, we want to take the rest of the pain off. Yeah. Really? That's true. That's true. Good, Let's see, what, what can we ask Gary to keep his mind distracted from? His feet. Oh, you know what you know what my standard question is. How's the weather up there? Oh, very good. Go ahead, Gary. Uh, it's oh. raining. I was just going to ask, <laughs> are you getting suckered in? Uh, we've had torrential rains for several days in a row. Um, yeah, you there, there's a section that section out in the parking lot that's almost knee high in water um, when it rains. So, what are you getting? Completely different uh, storm over there on top of uh, Florida. Ah. And from Henry. I, is it Henry? I don't know. what, what The one from Texas? Harvey? Whoever, whoever the guy Harvey. is. Yeah, Harvey. Harvey. Is, yeah. He, is he a rabbit? Uh, gee, you know, I never asked. I think he's a dirty bunny is what he is. He's really doing some bad stuff. I heard this is the worst storm that the state of Texas had since 1961. Yeah. yeah. That, that would be correct. That is incredible. Remember that big Seminole, like that Seminole Island town from almost like Galveston, was completely wiped out. To think that this one is one of these monster things. Yep. Is it San Padre Island or Padre Island? I think it's the first They've one. Gotten, yeah, yeah. Both San Padre Island. They've been clobbered year after year, and right now it's Corpus Christi area that was near the landfall. There, there were two um, Corpus. Corpus Christi, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Brain. Eight. Corpus Christi, and another one that begins with a C, and the landfall came in at Category Four, right between those two. So they, and it's a huge eye that went through. So, we're really keeping you in our thoughts, everyone in mm -hmm. Texas, and we need to hear from Celeste. Um, Dallas has not been mentioned as uh, a target high. Houston has. Houston yeah. is, is going to really, the hammering that they're taking right now is, is brutal. I saw so, Kim on Facebook saying that they expect a lot of rain kind of thing, that 
Dallas yeah. slash Richardson? Uh, yeah. Five to 30 inches, and most of the places there across southern Texas. Mm-hmm. Texas. Yeah. Uh, Dallas, Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only looking like maybe five or six inches. But uh, it's yeah. supposed to go up over uh, Lake Pontchartrain and mm-hmm. go through the middle of uh, Louisiana, up through mm-hmm. where I'm from. and But uh, they're talking 25, 30 inches down there. Some pl- they said that some places may even get up to 50 inches of rain. Yeah, I heard that. I mean, this is, when you, when you translate that into snow, it's, it's just incredible. Just incredible. The latest figure is that if you get an inch of rain and translate it into snow, it's between 10 and 12 inches of snow. I was wondering about I never knew that. And so, yeah. so you tell me all that, uh, that 10 and 11, it's all fluff. Right. It, yeah, well... Yeah, the the <laughs> the twelve would be fluffier than the ten, I guess. But well, ten to twelve inches of snow per inch of rain. So, so, so what is what? Okay, it's one inch of liquid. Yeah. It's twelve inch of snow. Right. Are, are we assuming the twelve inch of snow is just air? I mean, it's just air mixed with the water to make it fluffy. Oh, that. That's part of what happens. It comes to the flakes come down on top of each other, and there are air pockets underneath it. The wetter the snow, which happens when the temperatures are higher, you'll get a wetter snow at 32 degrees than you will at 25 degrees. Okay, so, so it's, it's wet. Now, see, I'm I'm a California kid, so yeah, I know. Uh, um, it's wetter. Heaven help us. <laughs> <laughs> is wet snow heavier than dry snow? Is wet snow what? Heavier than dry snow? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness, yes. And it also packs. So that would probably be the 10-inch group. It packs down because it's so heavy. Hmm. Now, the your stuff, it was to 12 inches. Okay, yes. so what, what is dry snow? I mean, doesn't dry snow have liquid? Of course. Yeah. I never heard the term dry snow. <laughs> Gary, have you heard of dry snow? It's just really light and fluffy. Is he giving us a leg pull again? Wait, what the opposite of wet snow? It's all wet. (laughs) It's all wet. It's just some is really fluffy, and then others, it's really, uh, it's got a lot of, a lot more moisture in it. Okay, so do like a measuring, can I go online and look at a measuring stick kind of thing from... There must be, yeah. Stick a yardstick and say, okay, it's 15 inches here. Uh, Well then, you're going to make us crazy tonight, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I mean, I'm trying to confirm what wet snow. What can sort of water than wet? I mean, or drier than wet? I mean, can we have dry snow? Can I have medium snow? Can you have wet snow? Medium snow. Medium wet. Medium snow. No. 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 You can have wet snow, which means it's coming down with, um, the flakes are still there, mm-hmm. but they are not frozen as well as you would get at lower temperatures. So they're, they have a lot of water in them. Not, not frozen water in a snowflake, but water. 
Okay, so can I ask another? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Here it goes. Okay, Gary. And the Eskimos. Yes, the Eagles. Uh huh. Have over uh, what is it? Ninety-four different words for snow. Wow. Oh, it's it's enormous. Yes, yes. I don't know about the specific number, but you're right. It's it's big it, territory. Because there, is, snow is so many different kinds of varieties, just like rain. I mean, you've got the little misty stuff mm -hmm. to rain that's coming to you sideways. Right. So can snow have different color besides, you know, off-white, pale-white, you know? Yeah, I've, I've seen gray snow. Gray snow is usually because it has come through... A pollution of some sort. Yeah. It doesn't start out stark and gray and miserable looking. It comes through and picks up some bad stuff from the air, which makes it a good deal that snow is clearing out some of our air, but it doesn't look very pretty. No, it's not good to eat either. It's no, don't eat, don't eat gray <laughs> snow or yellow snow. Never eat yellow snow. Brown snow. No yellow snow. Now, see, no. I know in California when we have a nice big rain, the air is really clean. In New York, mm -hmm. when, when you have these big, gigantic snowstorms, do you get the same impact? Is the air really nice and fresh? Mm-hmm. Oh, really nice to smell, yes. Yeah. And then the next day it starts to melt and I get depressed. <laughs> I mean, really, no, seriously, really depressed. And February was the worst. What would make you depressed? Was it the, um, the visual part of seeing no smell, or would it be something else? Yeah, no, I, it, it's a, that's a good question. Um, the snowing, I, I, you know, like people will say I love rain. Mm -hmm. I love rain, too. But when the sun comes out after rain, it doesn't affect me. When the sun comes out after snow, it affects me. Hmm. Isn't that weird? I think I feel isolated, uh, and I don't mean isolated, it, the word, <laughs> you know, when you get wrapped up like an incubator type thing, um, separate from the rest of the world, and you can just kind of hunker down and watch the snow come down, and the next day when the sun comes out, you lose all of that. It's interesting how, if you think about it, like Fred, our buddy Fred from Vermont, he loves mm -hmm. snow until Christmas. He doesn't want to see any of it after Christmas, you know. That's right. <laughs> he doesn't, and, and with good reason. Yeah, and our friend Brian Hager, who lives up in the Seattle area, he hates the winter because you don't see the sun. And that's why a lot of people in Seattle and Washington want to travel to where the sun is at, at least for a little while. Oh, during, during the I winter, because the sun disappears, basically, up there. I did not know that. Yeah. You see the sun in Wisconsin, you see the sun in Wisconsin, Gary, during the winter, or is it disappeared? Oh, too? yeah. Oh, yeah. I We get about, mm, let's see... Uh, I think right around the, the 21st, there's like nine hours of, of uh, sun. Hmm. I don't know for sure. Don't don't hold me to Okay, okay, I won't. It's pretty close to there. <laughs> it's, it's 10, 9, 10, 11 hours. No, hmm. not 11, 10. 10 or 9. 10 or 9. Could be 7. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Uh, yes, the farther north you get, the less sun you get. 
in Florida will have more hours of sunlight than you will way up north. So that's why it's just so many... Well, Walden is going to take this one and... You know how I am. You know, you're gonna beat me to death on it, aren't you? So, yes, you know how I am. So, if that, that explains why New Yorkers all come to Florida, cause they they miss the sun in New York, and they come down to Florida, cause they have more of it to balance out no. their life. By March, they've got nothing but slop in their driveways <laughs> because the ice is melting, and it's dirty snow, and the snow is falling off itself, and it looks ugly, and they're so tired of winter, and they say. <gasps> Let's go get some sunshine, and then when we get back, it'll be after Easter, and everything will be all perky and flowers growing and everything, and sometimes that does not work. <laughs> but they have a good time here, <laughs> killing everybody on the road. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. It, it, I, you'll hear people complain about that, that when the tourists are here or anywhere else in the Sun Belt. They're terrible. They cut you off. Da, 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 da. But, but we fail to remember most of the time is that people from different states have different unwritten rules. Now, for example, in some of the farm country, the farm equipment, you have to make a wide left turn to go into a side street. So, if, you know, you get somebody who's on a two-lane dealy and will come and have to make a wide swing in order to get off the road if you've got a, a big combine or a tractor. Um, and that's that's one from farm country, from Michigan, and that area up there, they don't turn on directionals until they start to turn. So you have no idea that they're going to turn until after they start. So there are different habits and different road rules that are unwritten road rules from different areas. And when you put them all together on a single road, it's crazy. So they're not really doing anything deliberately. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not being crazy on the roads. Yeah. It's just a combination of factors, and much of it is where they come from. It still comes out to crazy on the road, but mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it isn't a deliberate thing. Unless you get cut off, that's deliberate. Anything else, Gary, before we let you go? Oh, no, not really. I just thought you, you were complaining about watching the fight. And I know, I appreciate I'm that. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> okay, you're one of those? I'm one of those that thinks that that is one of the stupidest things in the world to be doing. Oh, see, I, I just love you for that. Just love you for that. Wrestling is bad enough, but when you get to boxing and the person comes out with a broken nose and swollen eyes... Uh, it, it's and broken hands and broken bones and head injuries and oh my gosh oh my gosh wrestling you know, is a is a is a true sport they do get hurt but every move has been uh, choreographed and practiced so many times it's you know it's, it's hard for them to get really hurt but they do get hurt. They get hurt every time they get hit, even though it doesn't look like they get hurt. Yeah. It's it, it batters the brain. I mean, look at poor Muhammad Ali. Yeah. He he went yep. down. Uh, my gosh, it was a progressive thing. He had Parkinson's and yeah. brain damage and traumatic brain injuries and oh man. And I don't ever want to see somebody 
go through what he went through, but we're seeing it all the time. So, yeah. It was more visible because of his name, yeah. So, so I have spoken. Gary, thank you for calling. You're always good to talk with and give us a different perspective of Wisconsin. Uh, you're not in cheese country. So, yes, I am. I love it. Oh, really? Well, one night we're going to have to talk about that. Oh, yeah, I'm right in the middle of cheese country. We've, we've talked about it. Yes, we have. It's just that my brain isn't working yet. <laughs> so please forgive me if I, if I sound like I have forgotten something like you're in cheese country. We'll put that on the agenda. Cheese. Mm -hmm. cheese. 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 I love cheese. I love cheese. All right, Gary. I'm going to let you go, and we'll talk to you really soon. Okay, we'll talk to you guys later. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Good night. Good night. We got a few more minutes with Patricia before we send her off to bed. Okay. Yes. Okay. She got to go. Yes. She got to do her squats. So you want to talk to this? Yes. To the squatting <laughs> gal. Hour. Seven one yes, four yes. five four five two zero oh, seven one. Her number. She <laughs> she's the only she's the only Florida girl in town who has a California number on Cal Saturday night. Seven one four. Way to go. Five four five two zero seven one. All right. Let's see. Are here. we having fun yet? We always yeah, I have didn't, fun. I didn't go to sleep until seven o'clock this morning. What? And it has been a fairly active day, and I got a two-hour nap, which doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my new roommate, bless her heart, yeah, you know, she's hurting so bad. Uh, and she she got up and said, Patricia, it's quarter to ten. <laughs> She was my reminder. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, uh, so yes, yes, I am pooped. 714-545-2071 is our number. You got some ideas Go or suggestions, you can email Patricia during during the week at floridawriter at hotmail.com. She's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And she loves email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a good girl about that. She'll correspond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When she feels like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, when I can. Yeah. Sometimes I'm, I'm worn pretty thin. I'm, maybe our folks don't know I'm still in the rehab. <sighs> well, you know, it's... I, you know, on my Skype, I put it down as Patricia's office. Oh, thank you. It's a heck of a lot cleaner than my desk at home. <laughs> 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 Except that my brother went in and cleaned everything up. I walked in and I thought, oh, my God. I know. You know, I, I tend to file in piles, and when that project is finished, I put the stuff away. But, you know, he he he's kind of prissy when it comes <laughs> to, to having clean floors and clean desks and you know I, I think I'm going to have a, a time of it when I go in and try to figure out what is where yeah well when I was when he shipped all the boxes and we got them to run I said well probably Patricia haven't had looked at some of those good things she'll get some hard drives so make up for what she got snucked out of her apartment oh, so I can't can't replace my research material <laughs> 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 anyway, I will be whining about that for many weeks. Many weeks. We can replace it. You 
can. Of course we can. We can do anything. Yeah, and if I don't miss it, I probably didn't need it. So. Or, or we'll, it'll just show up when you need it. Okay. Hello there, you're on with Patricia. Hello, you two. Hello, so well. Oh, we oh. do need to hear from you. This is our Dallas lady. That's right. How are you doing, and what kind of weather are you dealing with? Oh, it is it is per very nice and sunny here. You know, haven't had any rainfall yet. But um, we're praying for our brothers and sisters, and I have a dear friend that lives in Corpus Christi. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. I'm not going to try to call her yet, but I'm going to try and call her tomorrow morning. And uh, and the the major problem is not this time. It's not so much the wind. It's the fact that it's going to bring all this heavy, heavy feet and feet of rain. Yes. It's going to be really bad. That part's going to be real bad. Typically, so mm -hmm. when it rains really heavy, that the water's soak into the ground or did you or do you start well, getting it, mud? It would have normally Walden because Texas is a dry state. Yeah. But see we've had a lot of rain down in that area. Okay. So the ground is already saturated and when that happens it it goes above the ground. Okay. You know? Okay. Yeah, it sits on top of the ground. We've had a lot of rain there. Mm. And so we'll just hope that we'll make it. Mm. Some people I don't know if my friends left uh, Corpus Christi or w what they did. They've uh, they've they've made good provisions for people, places for people to come up state and stay. So I watched it on television today, and they they were doing a, a really good job. The guard is out, and everybody's out. You know. Well, yeah. Yeah. There, there are thousands of people who were evacuated already. Oh, yeah. Okay, I gotten called throughout the day. Maybe so I just want to explain the state of Texas. It's a pretty big state. So, Houston is, what, about six hours from Dallas? What, can you help me? Can you help the people who've never been in Texas get a yes, geographic? Yes, uh -huh. if, you, if you start in Dallas, which is in North Texas, up by the Oklahoma line, okay. you start in Dallas and you go down, down, down to... Uh, San Antonio, in that area, and then you veer off to your left and go to the Gulf Coast, and that's where Houston is. Mm. So, uh, anyway, but I was going to ask you, well, that that's about all I can place. Okay, sure. I said the, the bad part about this is they've had a lot of rain all year long. Yeah. Normally, they'd welcome the rain, but the, the ground is already saturated, and that's what makes floods, you know. And for the very dry areas, the rain cannot seep because it bounces off. It's like glass. Yeah. It bounce off and just run off. So, you know, it, it's, it's just a... Very, very scary, yeah. yeah. Now, what I was going to ask you, Walden, yeah. have you and your mother had your first music lesson? We have. We, uh... We're up to, we finished uh, volume 17 this morning, and we're up to the classical phase, and the and the teacher is upset because he doesn't like the definition of the classical period. They, they, uh, they, he, he thinks it ends in, let me think, 1703, 
but most people th think it ends when Beethoven's death in 1724. He just thinks they're nuts. So that, that was an interesting discussion. Well, does he agree with the Beethoven? Uh -huh. No, he thinks it, he thinks he thinks it's, he ended before Beethoven. He ended before. He said, "Think of it this way: when you write a book, and you write a book on Beirut, Beirut has its own chapter in life. Right. Uh, Michael Jordan would have his own chapter in life." He said Beethoven should have his own chapter in life. You don't, you don't stick oh, him. Oh, I see. You don't stick him in the so classical period. He said it with that. Yeah, he thinks he's the Beethoven. He he thinks he's the Beirut of music, so he should have his own little chapter. So he. I see. They lumped him in with Bach. Uh huh. And it was interesting. We were we were um. Well, now they did used to say in music class. I remember Beethoven. Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Right. I remember some some books lumped those together. What I learned today was was, was, was I didn't have no idea. It's the history of the piano. It was created originally as a harpsichord. Uh huh. Right. And it was created the master plan for it in 1709. And what made the piano different was. The harpsichord all were plucking instruments. Right. And the piano was the first instrument they had with little hammers. And what made the, the piano different was you could raise and lower the volume. So you could have expression, emotions, and feelings was sort of the first instrument that had that capability of that period. And that was it. Hmm. That was his argument. That was something I never learned today or I never thought of in terms of the technical, what made what, the piano really was a, a dividing line in terms of music. Uh-huh. So. Now, there was a fourth keyboard beyond that that was invented during that time, and you hear people use it in the orchestra all the time. It sounds like little bells, but it's a keyboard instrument, and the name of that one is a Celeste. I never knew that. So did oh, it? Would you name? Would you name? That. Would you named after that, Celeste? Oh no! It, <laughs> it was my grandmother's uh, name. I was named after. Uh, but uh, yeah, but this this little instrument is named a, a Celeste. Sometimes uh, Artie Shaw used to use that sound sometimes yes. on Summit Ridge Drive. Yeah, the, that the, the Gramercy 5. Less than yeah. the Gramercy 5 and all that. That's that little sound like bells, you know, but it's a keyboard instrument. Yeah. It's fascinating. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I am. I, we, there are 48 total lessons, and each run about 45 minutes each. And so I am... At 48 of the lessons? Yeah, 48. So we've done number 17 this morning. So... Where are you and what period are you now? We're up to uh, six, 1720. Oh. So that's where we are. And we're going to spend several lessons in the different phases of classical music. What he was saying today, classical music, what made it so special, it simulated the human voice. Yes. Because before then, the periods of music didn't simulate the human voice like classical music did. Right. And that's what, his, that's what gave it the expressions and the feelings. 
Uh-huh. And I never thought of it that way, you know. So it was a different spin on something. We get but isn't that interesting? I am so glad. I wish I were taking that course with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, for, it's wonderful when you when you all. It's we got it at the library, and and so it. Uh, pre, how to learn the how to learn the and love the great music, and it's it's a DVD set. And uh, and it's, we got it at the library, so everybody get check your local library. It's amazing what kind of resources there is available. Oh, it is, yes. We don't take enough advantage of that. Now, is this you don't actually have a teacher? This teacher you're talking about is on the CD. Uh, right, he's on the. He is. Right. He, he, he. This is based in San Francisco, and he's the one at the music um, advisor for NPR. Oh. So he's the one that, when they you know get into classical music or what, want somebody to do commentary, he's the one, and he has a sense of humor. He would he would say, here's another thing he's boring. He said, classical music was written for the common person. Uh huh. Because before baroque and everything was based upon the elite, either the relation or the political elite. But yes. classical music was written for the common, ordinary person. Uh-huh. And I, I never thought about that. And so he described, so just let me give you a sample. And he, you know, he, he even it was tongue-in-cheek. Let's say a guy came home and he said, think about it. In those days, we didn't have electronics or electricity. Right. And music was the form of entertainment. Uh-huh. And because... The Enlightenment era was sort of the, where the middle class were created and the economic mobility. The first form of entertainment was music. And so just imagine the, the guy who just got home working from the factory, one had a little interview, and he tells the six-year-old, well, get me, get me that latest music out there. And he plays, and he showed us, all right, imagine you have your local CD player, and the, and the son pops in a CD from the 1720s, and you hear this broke music, and it, it has this upper scale, and the guy's drinking his second beer. Ah, I want something more I can relate to. <laughs> <laughs> so she so brings out Beethoven. Oh, I can relate to that. So that was his argument that classical music, it was for the common show. And you know, the first one that pops into my mind is the Barber of Seville. Uh-huh. Operas were made for the for uh, people too. You it know, was. People it, too. it was. And that went right along with classical music. And and let's face it, our generation when we have grown, I think we all assuming classical music today and opera today. It's more for the elite. It's not necessary for the common person, but yeah, he he at that time that's who it was written for. Yes, hmm. yeah, very very interesting. I hadn't thought of it yeah. exactly like that. That makes it. perfect sense mm-hmm. because you could tell your stories through the opera. You know, Carmen and the Barber of Seville yeah. and all that, and that was really for the common person also. It but, was. Common people used to go see the opera. It was, it, and it was a way of it was a it was opera was the first time that stories were told with music. 
Uh-huh. And that was, uh-huh. and that was the first art form of storytelling to have a form of music involved. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So. Well, I'm glad you are enjoying it. it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, we, we, as Patricia often says, we are being educated. So I'm... <laughs> You know, there's a lot of truth to that because any time you take on something that's not in your background, you're being better educated every minute that you do that. Well, and also, to be honest with you, I'm so, as much information, I'm, I'll be lucky to absorb 5% what he's throwing at us in terms of the technical and the lingo and everything. It's so much information. So I'm, uh, I'm able to absorb maybe 5% of what I'm learning every time. Is your mother enjoying it? Oh, yeah. I think today was her, she was really happy. I think, I think we're finally to a point that, like, we felt like the first 16 lessons are sort of learning the basics. You know, the, the terminologies and things. Right. Now we're, we're more into air that we understand. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah. She, she's doing good. Well, that is good. Very, very good. Well, Patricia, you feeling a little better, honey? I am doing better this week, yes. Thank you. You sound very peppy. You sound very peppy. Going into all of our music history here. But I want, how's the leg? Doing better? Uh, it was uncooperative this week, but it's doing better now. Well, good, good. It, it well, likes weekends, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do you talk to it? You tell it, hey, 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 you, listen to me. <laughs> hey, you. At, at the very least, stop hurting so I can get my stuff done here. Um, anyhow, that is, hmm? I've taken a lot of time. You two go on, and I'm so, you know, we'll let somebody else call in. But All right, Celeste. So I like talking to you. Same here. You, and I'm glad you're doing better, Patricia. Thank we you. Are. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Same to both of you. You too. Bye-bye. All right, my dear, how much longer do you want to hang in before hang uh-huh. in? Uh-huh. Um, how about 12.15? That would mean 9.15 your time. Okay. So we'll keep the so phone lines open. Yeah. So we'll give, more minutes. we'll give Patricia eight more minutes. And, uh, really? Well, yeah. that way I got to sing off the bed. Yes, you do. Right now. <laughs> Tonight, you do. <laughs> I have to kind of wimp my way through. Right, too. Hello there, you're all with Patricia. Good evening, Malden. Good Hi, Jim. Hello. How you doing? Hi, Jim. Doing pretty good. How did your week go, Patricia? Pretty good, I hope. It was reasonably good. It wasn't as good as the, as the week before, but yeah, and I'm doing better now. I'm happy. I'm pleased, yeah. I'm going to mention there were some wonderful children's records in the 40s and 50s that tried to give children a good appreciation of music. Mm-hmm. Really? And among them was a young... Will you hang on while I turn the radio down? Sure. This is Yesterday USA. We got a friend, Jim Taylor. By the way, Patricia, this was the big mm-hmm. anniversary week of Jim surviving the fire. Oh, I knew it was August. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so happy birthday, Jim. We, we made it. And, and, yes, a new birth and um, an anniversary of 
survival and stuff like that yeah, there. We are so happy to have Jim with us. What can I say? Hey, I'm back. Jim, I just wish you a happy birthday this week. Oh, who's, my, whose birthday? Yours. It was in June. Well, no. I mean, of you surviving the fire. Oh, oh. Yes, 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 of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. That's why we call it the re the survival rebirth. So you made it through your first anniversary, Jim. Yes, and I was thinking I was talking to Ron <coughs> yesterday about the fact that a year ago at this time, I couldn't tell. All I know is I was with nurses and doctors. That's yeah. all I can say. Mm-hmm. Totally out of the picture. It's the, and you know it's it's weird when you miss a whole when you don't miss more than a week of your life. It's it's just yes. Yes, it's just gone. Patricia can relate to that. Cause I, I can relate to that. Wow. Because, you know, I can, I have pretty much memories almost continuously since three or four, and certainly since five or six. And mm -hmm. I can almost remember just something that happened almost every week of those years, you know, clear from 50, well, 57, mm -hmm. 2016. You know, from Eisenhower to Obama, you know, as president, all the things that have happened. And then that whole week was just, and, you know, and I, and I often think about, um, you, know, I'm, you know, I know the nurses and people took good, doctors took good care of me, obviously, because I got out of the situation okay. But it was mm -hmm. weird to think about the whole week just, or eight days just being gone. Well, hmm. yes. I, and you're right, I can relate to that. I'm just so happy that both of you have made it through. What can I say, you know? Anyway, what I was going to say is there were some wonderful children's records that tried to teach music appreciation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a record on the Young People's label, and Dr. Beale has mentioned this before. It was a 78 and later a 45, about 1948, called Said the Piano to the Harpsichord. It was narrated by a, a, well, an old-time radio personality that I know Walden's familiar with, Gilbert Mack mm -hmm. and David Anderson. And what the story is, is a piano and harpsichord are in the music room, and everyone in the house is asleep, and they get into a conversation about the values and merits of each instrument. The piano thinks that the harpsichord plays uninteresting music, and... The piano, and he tells, he, he, uh, he you know, they played some Baroque-type music, and uh, the piano says, why did you play something cheerful like this? And it was Chopin's Polonaise, oh, yeah. the one that was used till the end of time, the same melody. Right. And so the, the harpsichord tries to play it, and it sounds odd with the harpsichord trying to play it because of the way, you know, the, the keys are laid out sure. and all of that. Sure. So they get into a conversation, and eventually they learn the value of each other, and the record ends with the two of them playing the old gray mare, the piano and harpsichord. And it was a fun record. And there was another one called Pee Wee the Piccolo, narrated by Paul Wing on RCA, written by the same people that wrote Tubby the Tuba. Uh. Oh. Now, what, what level, what age group... Well, the harpsichord children five to maybe eight, eight or nine. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. We'd never be able to fly that today with kids. <laughs> no, um, and and the Krapiwi the piccolo might be like five or six or seven, but there were also records like, um, um, 
well, as I say, Pee Wee the Piccolo, Chubby the Tuba. There was one on the violin, on the greatness of the violin, and there was also a capital did a story called Rusty and Orchestraville about a little boy, about six or seven, who gets tired of playing scales on the piano. Yeah. So he lays down in his chair, and all of a sudden, a conductor wakes him up and takes him to a land called Orchestraville where all the instruments talk with a sauna voice, you know, an electronic voice. Mm-hmm. And, they all, and they get to, he gets to learn about the percussion instruments and the string instruments. He, he gets introduced to a cello and to a violin and to a big bass viol and then the brass, the trumpet, and all of that, and then the, um, you know, the woodwinds, and, and you hear samples of the music. And the percussion, it was, and, it's a, and the kid, the boy, Rusty, really learns a fine appreciation of music through this. And there was another story called Sparky and the Magic Piano, a little boy named Sparky, and the piano talks to him, and he learns about piano, different piano pieces. And there's another story also of Sparky called Sparky's Music Mix-Up, where he's playing piano, and all of a sudden one of his playmates has a violin, and he wants to play a violin. He asks his mother for a violin, and she says no. She grants his wish. Then he meets another boy who plays uh, the, uh, uh, what is it, the, there was another instrument, the piano, the violin, the the trumpet, and, and one other instrument, I forget, oh, the clarinet. And he learns all these instruments, and uh, there's a moral. The story eventually ends with Sparky, they all stick with their instruments, all of his friends, but he switches instruments, and in the end of the story, he can't play any instrument. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so he wakes up, and it's a dream. He wakes up, and it's a dream, and his mother, he says, well, I'm ready to do my piano lessons now again, and he sticks to the piano, but it, but it gives, and the, well, one of his friends is named Stan, and I'm 99% sure they had Stan Kitten in mind because they play a piece that Stan, Kenna, Stan Kitten played called Machito oh. and, uh, when he became famous. And the reason I know that, and we're talking about B. Wayne and Andre Barouche, they played Machito on one of their Your Hit Parade program. Oh, okay. And there were a couple of other uh, music records, but they all gave, and even, even uh, Little Golden Records did children's versions of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein songs and uh, some Jerome Kern things and things like that. So so there was an honest effort to give children music appreciation. And, of course, we've all heard about the great NBC show in the 30s, 40s, Walter Demrosh. Yeah. Is there any complete shows of that? I have not, and I've often sort of wondered, this is where at our day... The National Broadcasting Company, I think it was NBC, gave an hour in the morning that they would have, they would have Walter Demo teach kids the appreciation of music, and they have the full orchestra, and then local, uh, the classrooms around America just tune in with the radio state, and and I think they would have booklets and things, and they would learn music. And of course, later on TV. Leonard Bernstein did something very similar with his Young People's Concert. Mm. I'm sure you remember those, or you've heard about them anyway. I think, now you're a bill, I think I do, yes. It was, they did them from like the late 50s to like 1970 or so. He did like one every few months. 
But uh, there was an honest, and of course there was also a mutual program called Symphonies for Youth uh, with the L.A. Philharmonic. Okay. And I forgot, w- Wallenstein was the conductor. Oh, yes. And I- I've heard one of those shows. I think the Spurvec Archive might have one of those, Symphonies for Youth. But there was an honest effort to teach kids music appreciation. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, the sad thing now on radio most of your classical stations now, in a way it's good, in a way it's bad. They're listener-supported now, so you don't have to worry about music being interrupted by commercials. But the problem is a lot of cities have dropped their classical music stations, you know, in a lot of cities. Yeah. We get, um, PBS is the only station that will play music at different times. Yeah. But it's not a classical station, of course, but we... We do get classical music, but not nearly the amount that we should be getting. I know, Walt, you have a good KUSC is good in L.A. That's true, but we used to have a commercial station that played classical music. Like KFAC, right. But that's gone now. And But, yeah, we have one station that does jazz, one that does classical. Um, we don't even have, we have a good classical one here. In, in San Francisco, KDFC. But I, what I am amazed, we don't have a 24-hour station anymore that plays easy listening music. There's no way that you can listen to Frank Sinatra or anything 24 hours a day anymore. You know, oh, period, oh. none, nothing like Either. that. Either. Modesto has one. Modesto has one, but it's mixed with 50s and 60s, some rock and roll. But there's also that, did you, I told you about that station in Greenfield, Massachusetts, W-I-Z-Z. Yes. Have you checked them out? I have not. You, you'd enjoy them, I think. I think I would. And they do, um, they did everything. They do everything from Perry Como to Carly. I mean, a wide variety of, yeah. and well done. And uh, we have one in Modesto, as I said. But it's just, uh, I guess they argue it's not. They don't want older people as an audience. Most radio. Well, I, I have decided that there's this moving target of fifty years. Once it, once it gets past Diffie, they don't bother to play it. So pretty soon, I can just imagine this will make people old. The Beatles will not be heard anymore pretty soon. I'll like say one thing that happened in England that made the news a few months ago on some British radio station, I don't know if it was the BBC or something, Madonna was dropped because they said Madonna was too, wasn't in the right age group for, <laughs> for, kid, for their, yeah. their listener base. Yeah. Madonna was even considered. Yeah. So, taste, I guess, change. Well, I'm ready now for my book review. Well, I'm wondering if we're going to wait. Let me see. Is Patricia, you got enough in you? Are you ready? You want to wait on next week? Patricia, it's up to you. Um, it, it, it really is up to you. I do have to leave. Okay. We can do it next week. We'll do it next week, then. We'll do it next week. Okay. We'll, I'll put you on All the top right. of the show, for you, and we'll do, we'll, do, we'll do you at the top of the show. That way. Okay, because... Because I know you want, I know I know you're in the Eastern Time Zone. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. it's back there. Patricia got to put her laptop away, and <laughs> well, we'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. That'll be good. That'll be good because I really want to hear it. And if Walden can put you at the top of the show, that would be super. We'll just do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to wish well, you a wonderful you. evening. You too, Jim. Thank you, Patricia. Thank you, Jim. You're, um, I hope your week is better next week, like it was last. Uh, that's right. Oh, yes. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> Take care, Jim. Again. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, family. We're going to let Patricia go off to another sweepy land, you know?
Yeah, and stuff like that there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't get very much sleep in the last 24 hours. I know what you but mean. I have, to, I have to tell you, I think I've mentioned that we have a house cat here. His name is Charlie. I did not know Charlie. Okay. Oh, Charlie, yes. He's really pretty. He's got a rich... It, it's He's got two colors on his fur. One is white, and the other is a very rich honey color. Uh-huh. So he's, he's, um, he's a pretty cat, but he's an outside cat. When, you know, when the day is over, he usually wants to go out, and then in the morning he comes back in. <laughs> it's like, you know, a bad guy coming home. And um, Charlie has, he patrols the halls at night, actually ah. during the day as well. And once in a while he'll hop into a room, and I've been told at different times it's very unusual for Charlie to do that, you know, hop up on a bed, da, da, da. Uh-huh. Well, Charlie spent from 2 o'clock last night until 10 o'clock tonight on my bed. Uh, he I knows. Got food. Two, yeah, two he, people gave me food to give to him. <laughs> and I think, yeah. I think that was not a good move, <laughs> but he's just the cutest thing. So well, he knows he, he knows that he knows a friend, and you you've always loved kitty cat, so he, he mm-hmm. you and Charlie hit it off. Yes, Charlie and I hit it off, and he didn't bite me, <laughs> which I think is very sweet. He did bite me a few weeks ago. Oh. <laughs> I must have tickled something on his tummy that he didn't oh. like. So, but anyway, that's that's my really exciting news that Charlie spent, what is that, 20, 20 hours with me? <laughs> <laughs> and I fed him in between when he meowed. And oh. <laughs> geez, with, I'm learning motherhood all over again. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh. so I have to say good night to our gang. Good night, everybody out there. Thank you for being with me. And you will be with Walden now. Yep. And I'll be better next week. You did great, my dear. Oh, thank you. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. All right. There's the adorable one. They're on Yesterday USA. We're going to go back and feature programming uh, August 12th, 1945. And let's say a Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Brought this wonderful country. What the opportunity we have to serve. Thank you for the men and women that serve in the U.S. military. Thanks for the Toys for Top program. Looking after the, the homeless, the needy, and the poor. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, let's go to August 12th, 1945 for a couple hours. Here on Yesterday, USA. The makers of Breyer's Ice Cream now bring you the official weather report for New York City and vicinity. The temperature now, 81 degrees. This afternoon, considerable cloudiness. Tonight, scattered showers. Top off a pleasant Sunday with a real treat, Breyer's Fresh Peach Ice Cream. It's a glorious blend of fresh peaches and rich cream. WOR New York, 1 p.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Boulevard Watch Time. Boulevard Urges... Hold war bonds. What's holding up the peace bandwagon? Well, that's a subject that's certainly predominant in the minds of all of us right now. We don't hope to be able to answer that question, but Mutual is presenting a roundtable discussion on that subject 
hoping to throw some light uh, on that uh, very important question. Right now, we're going to switch around to our points of pickup to introduce the gentleman who will participate in the discussion. First, will you come in London and identify yourself? Arthur Mann in London. Hello, Mutual in New York. Thank you, Arthur. And Washington? Uh, Bill Hellman speaking. And Charles Hodges. And here in New York with me are... Leo Chern and Royal Arch Gunnison. So our panel consists of William Hillman of Collier's Magazine and Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst speaking from Washington. From London, Arthur Mann, Mutual's London reporter... From New York City, Royal Arch Gunnison, Far Eastern expert, and Leo Chern, well-known economist, executive secretary of the Research Institute of America, and as your moderator, Tom Slater. So here's the subject, and men, get at it. What's holding up the peace bandwagon? Well, this is Bill Hillman from Washington. I'd like to read a dispatch which has just come in from Bern, Switzerland. Say the Swiss and American sources said today that no Japanese reply to the Allied note of Saturday has reached Bern, Switzerland. Switzerland, as a neutral intermediary, would transmit the Japanese reply to Washington. Uh, Japanese legation attaches were non-committal, and said the Japanese minister was too busy to answer inquiries. Uh, just one more note: uh, the president is at the present moment lunching at the White House, while Secretary of State Burns has gone to luncheon, saying that he expected to return during the afternoon. In the meantime, officials are standing by waiting for news, and here's just one more short dispatch. The Melbourne Radio from Australia says that the latest advice to the Australian Commonwealth Government says Japan's reply to the Allied note of surrender is expected within the next 17 to 24 hours. But, of course, that's not official. That's just the opinion of the Melbourne Radio. Leo, Leo Chern, what do you think's holding it up? Well, I think one thing's holding up the uh, Japanese surrender at this moment, and it is the language of our offer of surrender yesterday. I think the language of our offer of surrender does not meet with a Japanese proposal in that it does not give the Japanese emperor, as they called it, the prerogatives of sovereignty. The well, prerogatives I... of sovereignty under our offer made yesterday are very clearly under the supreme allied commander, the commander we believe at this moment uh, to be uh, General MacArthur. Well, I've got some strong feelings on this subject, Mr. Chern. Go ahead, Arthur Mann. And, uh, Arthur Mann in London, I've got a feeling that it's all over and that the big four are holding it up trying to decide how soon they're gonna, gonna, gonna tell us. I mean, I think there's, I personally think that there's a, they're having a discussion about a common release date among the, among the four capitals and with the time differences, they're having a little trouble ironing it out. Well, well Arthur, I this is, uh, Gunnison, uh, have you heard anything that we haven't heard following Hillman's statement that uh, Barron had not transmitted the uh, official reply? Well, I can't, uh, I can't tell you everything that I think I know. But, uh, <laughs> well, please but do you all help a waiting world if you can. I got a very strong suspicion that the, people, that the men at the fighting fronts already know that the Japs have quit. That's all I can say. Well, Arthur Mann, this is Chern again in New yeah. York. I want to say that we certainly hope your feeling, which is an informed feeling, is right. And I want to tell you for the New York group here, a pool was uh, taken this morning... And I think you'll be interested in knowing that the times of the surrender guess, that's our guesses, run anywhere from 1 o'clock, it's a little past 1 now, all the way to 2.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. But the, the, the group of, of analysts sitting here are all quite, quite agree that it's going to come within the next uh, 10 to 24 hours. Well, my bet was for 11, so I lost mine. 
Well, mine's tomorrow morning at 8.30. Well, no, <laughs> well, this, this is Hodges, Washington. Yes, yes, Charles. I'm sorry that I didn't get in on that pool, but I don't think that we're going to have any great delay. If it is a great delay, it uh, falls under the heading uh, that the Japanese are so sorry they uh, don't understand exactly what we mean about the emperor. That seems to me to be the most logical explanation. I don't like to uh, disagree with uh, a man in uh, London, but I do believe that there must be some very real uh, diplomatic issue here at stake. Well, Charles, if I may, may break him for just a very light moment, I want to say if you authorize me as your agent and give me the time of your guess, I'll enter you in that pool you weren't here for this morning. <laughs> no, well, I'll teletype it up. All, All right. right, Charles. Here's an interesting thing. The chief of the Overseas Bureau of the Japanese Doma Agency said today in a Japanese-language broadcast to Japanese living in North America, quote, Please do not worry. The people of your fatherland continue to live and continue to fight. Be it in peace or be it in war, they will most likely continue to live and continue to fight. That came from the chief of the Overseas Bureau of the Japanese Doma Agency. Well, now, Tom, what, 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 what do they mean Washington. by that, Bill? Yeah. Uh, that sounds a good deal like, uh, that sounds a good deal like Japanese flowery language. Uh, uh, the feeling here in official circles, however, is that the thing is uh, pretty well over. And I think perhaps what may be delaying the Japanese note is some questions will be asked uh, regarding the practical measures to be taken regarding the surrender. Incidentally, I'd like to say uh, that right here at this very table, we have a special line from the White House to this studio so that we can get any important news developments that come along. And uh, just this moment, Senator uh, Barkley of Kentucky, the majority leader of the Senate, has walked in, and later on we're going to ask him his feelings about the situation and what he thinks uh, Congress is going to do. Uh, Arthur Mann, over there in London, do you think the Japs will hold still for a ruler over Hirohito? Well, I think that Japanese dough, my man, was whistling in the dark in Japanese. That's my personal feeling. Uh, we here are expecting this thing to break at any moment, so, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to go into a pool. I think it's that close. Anyhow, everybody... Everybody is sitting around, not only, uh, not only the American broadcasters and, and, and newspaper men, but uh, officials and everybody else is sitting around just waiting for this thing to crack. That's all we've been doing, has been sitting for three days and three nights yeah. over here. <laughs> well, uh, here's something interesting. Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek is said to be considering heading the Chinese delegation to accept any possible Japanese surrender. So that he's waiting around, too. I'd like to just uh, point out that there's a deep personal reason for this. The Japanese made a mistake about ten years ago in brushing off Chiang Kai-shek, and he heard the exact words, which were highly uncomplimentary to him, and he decided he was going to stick out this war and get the surrender of these Japanese foe if uh, he possibly could. Or do you think possibly the peace will be signed on his territory, on Chinese territory? No, I think that we're going to have a segmental local uh, liquidation of military resistance uh, under the overall direction of the American commander. Well, Charles, there's a, this is Gunnison. There's a story out of Guam. Uh, I don't know how authoritative it is, but there uh, seems to be some discussion there in naval circles of the uh, signing being in Vladivostok. 
Well, that's a fair enough place, uh, but I just wonder if we're going to build up the Russian end of the thing to that degree of prestige. Uh, I, I doubt it very much personally. What do you think, Bill? No, I don't think so. I think the meeting place will be where our American general will designate, and I don't think he'll designate Russian territory. Gentlemen, Arthur Mann will just be in the panel about another minute and a half, so we'd like to give him an opportunity for anything further he has to say on the present London, well, London reaction. I just got a tip off. I can stay through for the end of the party. Well, that's very fine. Uh, but Glad I, to have you. There, there's been a lot of speculation around here that the signing might take place on a battleship. I want to go along with that offer, man. There's a chair in New York. Oh, yeah. my, my guess is the third fleet steaming outside of Tokyo at this present moment will be the location of whatever, uh, whatever surrender ceremonies are held, and I believe those ceremonies will take place sometime within the next two days. Well, there's been discussion on this subject. What are the chances of the Japanese emperor abdicating or committing harikari? Well, what do I, you gentlemen think on that? May I step in on that? Yes, I, I firmly believe that after the emperor, Hirohito, puts his chop on the surrender offer, that he personally is through, and that the Japanese, whoever are in there, the overlords, will insist on his going out. He may even commit harikiri, and that Akihito who is the young crown prince, 13 years of age. What's will that name mean there? Akihito means yes. uh, a bright-minded person of highest rank. Uh -huh. And uh, <laughs> However, I think that uh, he'll come in uh, with a regency, and uh, of course we've got to be awfully careful who those regents are, but that would save uh, face for Hirohito uh, in signing his peace, and then he'd be tossed out and in would come a new uh, ruler. I don't think any Americans will object to Hirohito saving face by losing stomach. <laughs> no, and we'll have to get a white pony now instead of a white horse. I, I think in London here that the people that we'll have to watch in Japan, uh, once we dispose of the warlords, they're the, will be the business crowd. They're the people that can make things hard for us or easy for us. I agree with you heartily, uh, Arthur Mann. This is Gunnison again, and yeah. the Japanese have constantly said that those will be the people who will come in. I want to get back. This is Chern, New York. I want to get back again to the theme with, uh, with, uh, with which we started. I don't find in our surrender offer to Japan, as a matter of fact, anything which even guarantees that the presence of the emperor itself is permanent. As a matter of fact, the language of that document is specific, that the authority of the emperor from the moment of surrender is very much subject to the supreme commander of the allied powers, who has, as a matter of fact, the power from that moment on to even rule the emperor and the emperor's system out of existence. Yes, but Leo, uh, it is implied, is it not, this is Gunnison, that uh, the emperor's authority will be used and therefore the person of an emperor will be there as a puppet or uh, a means to give the uh, authority. Well, Royal, well, I'm glad you used... Is. May I yes, get in on Let Washington, Washington in there. <laughs> yes, uh, We feel down here that the emperor, of course, is a rubber stamp. That's admitted. But on the other hand... Uh, We've got to watch how this rubber stamp is being wielded. Uh, the whole problem now is not to perpetuate any form of the imperial dynastic system, it seems to me. And here you see the Japanese carrying on a peaceful warfare, even although we haven't got an armistice. That's a very important thing. These political moves being made in Tokyo are part of the post-war struggle of the Japanese. Well, I agree with you. This is Gunnison again, and the fact uh, that the Japanese people have not yet been informed that anything like this is definitely in the wind, uh, I think is very significant along that line. 
Well, uh, this, this is Churn, New York. I want to underline, uh, as a matter of fact, the theme that we've been hitting here within these last three days of waiting. And that theme is that the plans that the Allied governments have at the present moment for the disposition of the entire Japanese economy, social life, and political structure are a good deal more important than the language of the surrender offer that is finally accepted. And uh, I want to get back to Bill Hillman and ask him whether he has learned any more than he knew yesterday on what possible plans are in process at the present moment for uh, that occupation of Japan. Uh, no, those are military secrets and therefore could, cannot be discussed, Leo. Well, we just have about another minute and a half to two minutes. Are there any more comments on that very important subject? What's holding up the peace bandwagon? Well, I'll put my word in again. I believe it is the wording of the first paragraph of the surrender, which says of the offer from the Allies, which says from the moment of surrender, the authority of the emperor shall be subject to the supreme commander. And I believe the Japs aren't quite sure of what that means. Well, I think as a matter of fact that they know very clearly, Royal, that it doesn't mean that the emperor has gotten that which he asked yesterday, the prerogatives of his majesty as a sovereign ruler. But they want to weasel it into making us think that that's what's going to happen. I'm afraid they're out of luck. Arthur Mann in London? Well, I, I, I think that the Japs have got a pretty good deal on the Emperor, and if they haggle over it anymore, he'll be out without any question at all. Well, let's hope they haggle. You really think it's already signed over there in London, don't you? That's what I still think, yeah. What about Washington? It's pretty well in the bag, too. Is that right? Uh, Charles Hodges? Well, I'd be a little cautious. I still line up with Gunnison on this discussion. I think that we have something definitely holding this thing up. And I believe that we're going to find out about it pretty soon. No further comment from any side. Is that right, gentlemen? I think I'm through in London. All right, sir. I'll stand pat here. I say 1.30 this afternoon, long limb. <laughs> you just have 16 minutes left. <laughs> well, I may I advise that very shortly we're going to follow with Senator Barkley here, and I think he probably has something very important to say. Fine, and that program will be heard over many of these same mutual stations in uh, just about 50 seconds. We presented a discussion on what's holding up the peace bandwagon with uh, William Hillman of Colliers and Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst, speaking from Washington, Royal Arch Gunnison, Far Eastern expert, Leo Chern, well-known economist from New York, and Arthur Mann, Mutual's London reporter, speaking to us from London. Tom Slater speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Because of the special broadcast which follows, Pauline Albert will not be heard today. An interview with Senator Barclay will follow station identification. Here's further news. Washington highest army circles disclosed today that General Douglas A. MacArthur will be named Supreme Commander of the Allied Army of Occupation in Japan. These circles said General MacArthur's appointment would be announced by President Truman simultaneously with the end of the war. The temperature in New York City and vicinity, 82 degrees. W.O.R. New York. The happiest hours we call our own are those we spend with others. Hello, sweethearts. It's the Ivorine Show, Sweetheart Time. Hello, sweetheart. Hello. Hello, friends. This is Faith Truman inviting you to join with us now for this hour of sweetheart time. 
as we dedicate your songs and thoughts to the loved ones you write about. Each week, we select several letters from the Ivorine mailbox in which you've told me about a song that recalls many a happy moment for you and your sweetheart or friend. So if you have a song you'd like to hear, write and tell me what it is, who your sweetheart is, and why that song is your favorite. Address your letters to me personally, Faith Truman, Box 801, Chicago. That's right, folks. Faith selects several letters each week for song dedications, and she reads part of each letter on the air. So write today about your song and your sweetheart. Each letter used receives $5 in a carton of ivorine gum for both the writer and for the person written about. In addition to these awards, one letter is selected each week to be dramatized. That letter receives the grand awards of the week, beautiful Wittenauer wristwatches. Our writers put it into story form for you, but it's selected because you have told Faith of some little happening or incident in your life that gives her the idea and background for the dramatization. Now let's listen as Faith reads our first request for today. Our first letter today goes back to one night about three months ago when Miss Janet Green of Miami, Florida was busy at her work at the USO Canteen. Dan Cupid must have been working with her that night because all of a sudden Carl L. Springfels Jr., ordinarily a very bashful member of the U.S. Naval Air Corps, found courage enough to ask if he might take her home. From then on, he's been her steady escort, and romance is their order of the day. Imagine me with my head on your shoulder And you with your lips getting bolder A sky full of moon and a sweet mellow tune I'll find that dream Imagine you in a gown white and Thanking Dad for your dowry, a church full of folks and those last-minute jokes. I'll find that dream, a honeymoon in Cairo in a brand new auto gyro, then home by rocket in a week. We'll settle down near Dallas in a little. It's not as crazy as you think Imagine me on a first anniversary With someone like you in the nursery It doesn't sound bad And if it can be had I'll find the dream Friends, do you envy the person with sparkling teeth? An alluring, heartwarming smile? Then listen. The way to have such a smile yourself may be easier than you think. Try Ivorine Chewing Gum, the gum that brightens your smile. Ivorine, you know, is the only patented gum containing calcium peroxide, the amazing ingredient that bathes your teeth in newborn oxygen. So you not only get the benefit of Ivorine's extra firm chewiness, but of this natural purifier as well. And with all this, Ivorine gives you real chewing gum enjoyment. A delicious, long-lasting flavor. A gum of genuine pre-war quality. Next time, don't just ask for gum. Ask for I-V-O-R-Y-N-E. Ivorine Chewing Gum. 
You'll be glad you did. It's hard to measure love, and most people think it can't be done. But when Corporal Larry Mulvaney of the U.S. Army Air Corps was a little boy, he used to tell his mother that he loved her up to the sky top and higher. That was in the days when her wash boiler lid was his shield and her feather duster his Indian garb. Now as he flies the skyways, his mom wants him to know that she still loves him too, far beyond the skies he traveled. So to Mrs. S.J. Friedley of Shasta, California, and to her flying sweetheart son, we dedicate this song. Dear son, I thought I'd write you to say, my son, I love you more every day, but you and I are soldiers and soldiers don't cry. I realize your country needs you even more than I. And so I'd like to know when you write. If you still remember to pray every night, I know I shouldn't. But mothers always do Dear son, all my love to you It's truly said that large gifts often come in small packages. For when Miss Margaret Disney of Cleveland, Ohio, sent a Christmas gift last year to a Yankee overseas whom she'd never met, it started an exchange of letters that have made Christmas a year-round thing. But the nicest part of the whole affair will be the day they meet each other. So to this thoughtful girl and sailor Waverly B. Blackburn, we add our hopes that this big day may not be far away. I don't sweetheart couple who met in a nice sort of way, complete with a musical background and lots of pleasant trimming. That was nine years ago when Mrs. O.B. Couch of Santa Monica, California, had charge of a musical program, and Private Otis B. Couch, now serving overseas with the U.S. Marine Corps, was one of the singers in a quartet for the occasion. 
Now they have their own family quartet, Mom and Pop and two little boy assistants. When the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls And the stars begin to flicker in the sky Through the mist of a memory You wander back Breathing my name with a sigh In the still of the night Once again I hold you tight Though you're gone, your love lives on When moonlight beams And as long as my heart will be Lover, we'll always meet here In my deep purple dream A sweetheart time listener took us to task the other day and she wasn't criticizing the songs or faith dramatizations but my part, the Ivorine gum commercial. She said, you keep talking about how good Ivorine is for your smile. Why don't you tell people there's nothing like it for sweetening the breath? Well, maybe we have been remiss, so right now let me stress the point. Ivorine's famous extra ingredient, smile-brightening calcium peroxide, not only aids sparkling teeth, it also does wonders for your breath. That's because the chewing action gradually releases newborn oxygen in your mouth. And this purifying oxygen bath continues as long as you chew your Ivorine. And of course, all this time you're getting the benefit in a brighter smile. So for a double aid to personal charm, it pays to insist upon I-V-O-R-Y-N-E. Ivorine Chewing Gum. This is Faith Truman again, folks. Let me take a moment now to tell you about the letter we select each week to be dramatized. As you write to me recalling memories or happenings in your everyday life, telling me about your loved ones who are such a big part of all your thoughts, you tell me many things that have incidents and ideas in them which our writers put into story form for you. The writer of that selected letter and the loved one written about each receive the Ivorine Radio Awards of the Week, beautiful Whitnall wristwatches, a product of the Longines Whitnall Watch Company, makers of the world's most honored watch for the world's most honored people, sweetheart. When you write, be sure to include the full name and address of the person you write about, as well as your own, and address your letters to me personally. Address your letters to Faith Truman, Box 801, Chicago. This week, those grand awards, two beautiful Whitnauer wristwatches, are on their way to Mr. Earl J. Hannaway of Riverview, Florida, and to his wife, Mrs. Lydia E. Hannaway. All around us today are men who have been discharged from the service, but whose hearts follow the doings of the outfit they have left, as they take pride in having been a part of Uncle Sam's fighting forces. One of these important branches is the paratroops, of which Mr. Hannaway was a member. But let's listen to his tribute to this great group of men. I've been out of uniform for a long time now, but I've never quite gotten used to it. 
Maybe because I was so proud of the one I was privileged to wear. It gave you an added something inside when you'd step out in paratroopers' boots and know that you were part of a great bunch of guys. When I was given a medical discharge just before we were going to shove off for the real thing, it meant leaving a lot of plans, real buddies. But I can always carry my memories of our training with me. I guess that must have been what I was thinking about just the other day when my wife started to laugh. <laughs> Come on down out of those clouds, darling. You look as though you just leaped out into thin air. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I was sort of daydreaming at that. It's funny you happen to make that remark. What remark, Earl? About leaping out into thin air, because that's exactly what I was doing. I keep wondering where the old gang is, Jim and Chick and Shorty. There's a boy I'd hate to meet on the wrong side of the fence. Four feet eleven of airborne dynamite. You miss them, don't you, honey? I've watched you listening to news reports when your division was taking the spotlight, and I could almost feel your pride in them. Not that I blame you. There... there is a real pride born of knowing the men who've done such a good job over there. I'll never forget the first day I reported to Camp Tacoa, Georgia. Boy, did I feel all alone. But when I really got organized there, I found most of them felt the same way. Because we were all rookies. That first day we met our sergeants, who have a gift of making some things very clear to you in short order. Okay, fellas. I tried to tell you a few things we'll expect of you. And now if there's anybody who has a bone to pick with me about how we'll run this show... I'll give them a nice invitation right now to a boxing match, just outside. If not, report to your barracks. Well, he was our top kick from then on. He introduced us to our platoon sergeant, who was our idea of a real paratrooper. Then there was our lieutenant, a short, muscular guy with a freckled face, red hair, and a sense of humor that was wonderful. But the greatest guys of all were my buddies. Say, Hannaway, who do you think dreams up all this stuff we do in one day? The Major sure wasn't kidding when he told us we were going to be the guinea pigs of the paratroops. First, they bring on the exercise, range work, marching, and the jumps and the mock planes. Now, that part I like. Yeah, they sure don't throw in any afternoon naps. But you know, Jim, I think they're getting ready to move us down to Fort Benning. Oh, brother, then we'll really be getting somewhere. Hedgehog, your orders to come through to pack up. You're moving to Fort Benning in the morning. You'll go as far as Atlanta by train, and then a hike from there on in. Those are the days I think about as I watch the progress of the 101st in action. Jim, who was going to see that we won the war if he had to do it all by himself. Chick being in a hurry to get this thing over with so he could get home and marry his sweetheart, Audrey. Joe... Joe had a wife in Arizona. And Johnny, a little guy everybody liked. Just plain happy-go-lucky. In the next few months, they threw the book at us. We learned everything there is to know about jumping from towers in a parachute to that big day in January when we took off for the real thing. How you doing? Okay, I guess. I got a couple of hundred pinwheels going around my stomach. Uh-oh, here we go. Stand up and hook up. Let her go. 
Each man took his position with a determined look on his face. This was the day we'd been working for. Then a run and a jump. And you were that man out there. Sailing down to earth under your own chute in that beautiful blue sky of Georgia. One after another, like popcorn kernels exploding in the air, mushrooming out into pure white clouds of silk. You know, I don't think there was a man among us who would have traded places with a general that morning. Four more jumps, then graduation, and our coveted silver wings with an open chute in the center. Proud, you couldn't touch us. You think of your buddies as fine fighters and men, Earl. And I see them as the sweethearts of families all over the country. A mom wearing a big starched apron, a pretty girl with wavy hair, a young wife with a laughing child, a quiet dad with a picture in his pocket. That's why they're fine men and fighters, Lydia. That's why they've put their all into the winning of this war. Thank you, Earl Hannaway, for your tribute to the men of our airborne troops. May you soon be welcoming them home. Now here's a song to you and your sweetheart wife. I'm mighty proud of that old gang of mine, wherever they may be. I know they're in their punching Cause each and every guy Is somewhere on the ocean Or somewhere in the sky I'd stake my life On that old gang of mine And for the sake of all I'll bet before it's over The whole world will be proud Of that old gang of Thank you, Ernie, for that musical tribute. Now let's see what Faith has in store for the next song request letter. Each of these letters receives $5 and a carton of ivorine gum for the writer and for the person written about. Happy days are on the docket in the very near future for Mrs. Ann M. Butler of Dundalk, Maryland. But she's just received the good word that her CB husband, Chief John W. Butler, is headed for home. He's returning as a veteran for the second time, for he answered the call in 1918 and again in 42. Even though these three years have been hard, they both treasure them, for they can truthfully say, we have done our part. So to Chief Butler and his sweetheart wife, who has kept his home fires burning for that day that is almost here, we dedicate this song. Wanting you, every day I am wanting you, every night I am This is the Mutual Newsrooms in Hollywood. Here is a bulletin. Stockholm. The Stockholm radio said today that the Swedish royal family had been approached by the Japanese to determine if King Gustav would act as an intermediary between Hirohito and the Allies. Keep tuned to this station for further news. 
with sincere salute to a blue star mother in Brooklyn, New York. For as Mrs. May C. Krakauer counts her sweethearts in service, each one of them a son, the grand total reaches the count of five fine boys, the youngest of whom is Private First Class Martin Krakauer with the U.S. Army overseas, who used to sing to his mom so often he's left a song right there in her heart. Rock me to sleep in an old rocking chair and make me a child again. Then sing an old-time lullaby, one with a sweet refrain. Just Lay me down on my pillow. The angels will keep me from harm. Rock me to sleep in an old rocking chair, safe in my Everyone knows that mothers, dads, wives, and sweethearts are mighty proud of their servicemen. But Miss Margaret Fry of Oregon, Illinois, wants us to remember that sisters fit right into that category, too. For they've shared those times when he cut off his baby hair with mother's sharpest scissors, and the day he came trailing home with a very small fish that looked like a whale to him. So to Miss Fry and the young brother who grew up to be a soldier, Private First Class Earl Fry, we dedicate this song. When the boys come home, the clouds will trip lightly away, away. The clouds will trip lightly away. When the boys come home, we'll all be as merry as May, as May. We'll all be as merry as May. There'll be drums and trumpets, tea and crumpets out on the village green. A silver moon for that reunion scene. When the boys come home, the glorious sound of the tramping feet will echo down the winding 
winding street that leads to a lane where lovers meet and may it prove so sweet so sweet that they will never more Remember that old-timer the memory lingers on? Well, I don't know any better way to describe our program, Sweetheart Time, or our product, Iverine Chewing Gum. Because in each case, the memory lingers on and on. When you hear these letters and songs, you remember them long afterward. And when you use Iverine Chewing Gum, you enjoy the benefits in a sweeter breath, a brighter smile for a long time to come. So next time you stop at a gum counter, please make it a point to ask for Iverine Gum. The chewing dentifrice. If the clerk says sorry, all sold out, well, be patient and try again. You like Ivorine with its delicious flavor, its pre-war quality, its famous added ingredient, smile-brightening calcium peroxide. We're doing everything possible to keep your dealer supplied. And now we come to the time to honor our selected sweethearts of the week, Mr. and Mrs. Don J. Franks of Klamath Falls, Oregon, who have been married sweethearts for 28 years. His wife says he isn't world famous in any of the arts or professions, but he's a good citizen, grand husband, and the kind of a father the neighborhood children as well as his own adore. And though perhaps he isn't a Beau Brummel, he's held his sweetheart spellbound for years. Well, through these tributes to our life's partner, we know Mrs. Franks is a sweetheart, too. So to you both, Ivorine sends greetings in a bouquet of sweetheart roses and this song to tell your story. Let me call you sweetheart, I'm in love with you. Let me hear you whisper Friends, another hour of sweetheart time is nearing its close for today, but we'll meet you again next Sunday with more of your songs and stories when Phil Kaler and the Ivorine Songsters will sing your favorite songs and I'll be here to read your letters. Address your letters and song requests to Faith Truman, Box 801, Chicago. Each letter used on the air receives twin awards of $5 and a carton of Ivorine gum. The letter selected to be dramatized receives the grand awards of the week. Beautiful Wittenauer wristwatches. Hello, sweetheart, hello. We're miles apart, I know. Every Sunday, Ivorine, the chewing dentifrice, the gum that brightens your smile, brings you sweetheart time. With Phil Kaler, the Ivorine songsters, and Faith Truman as the voice of your heart, reading the words that you write. All letters become the property of Ivorine Chewing Gum. 
The address is Faith Truman, Box 801, Chicago. Write today and tune in again next week, same time, same station. And remember to keep smiling. You're in all my dreams. You're part of all of my schemes. Jim Bannon speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. W.O.R. New York. 2 p.m. B.U.L.O.V.A. Bulova Watch Time. Bulova urges, hold war bonds. This is the Mutual Newsroom in New York. The official announcement of Japan's acceptance of the surrender terms of the communication sent to Tokyo by the Big Four is expected in Washington at any time. Already, President Truman has said that the commander of the Allied Army of Occupation for Japan will be an American general. High Army sources have confirmed the long-anticipated appointment of General Douglas MacArthur to the post. His official designation as head of the occupying forces will be made when the president officially announces the end of the war. The Australian Minister for External Affairs is still insisting that Hirohito should not be permitted to enjoy any of the prerogatives of emperor, but the minister, Herbert Ebert, says now that making Hirohito subject to the orders of the Allied military commander will associate the emperor with the defeat of Japan and thus explode the myth of his invulnerability. A late bulletin says that 500,000 Jap troops in China face entrapment as Russian forces open a massive new drive into Manchuria. Keep tuned to this station for further news. Once again, the Mutual Broadcasting System presents Chaplain Jim, USA. The story of the problems, spiritual, moral, and emotional, of your men in the Army. This performance is dedicated to the mothers, wives, sweethearts, and families of the men who wear the khaki of the United States Army. And now, Chaplain Jim... USA. After a leave in the United States following his return from Europe, Chaplain Jim now joins the Chaplain's Pool in San Francisco awaiting assignment overseas once again, this time in the Pacific. And while awaiting orders, the chaplain makes as many visits as he can to the families of soldiers he knew while overseas in Europe. Today, in a modest little home on the outskirts of town... Please sit down, Chaplain Jim. Thank you, Miss Bradley. I hope you don't mind my calling you Chaplain Jim. Uh, Bruce used to mention you that way when he wrote from overseas. Well, I wouldn't have it otherwise, ma'am. Oh, I'm so glad you decided to come, Chaplain. Well, I've joined the chaplain's pool here in San Francisco, Mrs. Bradley, prior to being assigned to a unit leaving for the Pacific. Oh. I have a little time to spare while waiting for my orders. And I remember Bruce told me he lived in San Francisco. He and I were very close overseas. I wanted to say hello. <laughs> uh, Bruce is married, you know. Yes, so he told me. But uh, I was under the impression that his wife was living with you, ma'am. Well, she only lived here while Bruce was overseas. 
They have a little apartment in town now. Oh, I see. But both Bruce and Eileen are coming to visit me in less than half an hour. You'd care to wait. Well, I'd certainly like to, Miss Bradley. Oh, I know. He'll be so glad to see you. Ah, he's a fine young man, ma'am. He was a brave soldier. You ought to be proud of your son. I am, Captain Jim. He's done his share and more fighting for our country. Now that he's received his discharge from the Army, I know he'll make a model citizen. Well, there were many people who thought he wouldn't years ago. Oh, really? I guess you don't know very much about Bruce's early life. I was terribly worried about him at one time. Well, why, Mrs. Bradley? There seemed to be something inside the boy that drove him to doing things he shouldn't do, that made him restless and hard to handle. Well, he certainly wasn't anything like that when I knew him, Oh, ma'am. that's because the Army did so much for Bruce. His father died when Bruce was nine in an automobile accident. Oh. I was in that accident, too. I, I was badly injured. It took me almost three years to recover. Oh, it must have been a terrible experience for you, Mrs. Bradley. It was, Chaplain Jim. Most of that time I spent in bed. There were three or four operations, and I was an invalid for quite a while. My husband left me money enough to take care of us in a modest way, so that didn't worry me. But Bruce did. Mm, too much freedom while you were unable to supervise? Mm, that was part of it, I guess. But there were other things, too. Things that just can't be explained. Only Bruce knew why he was so mischievous and restless when he was a youngster. And he never confided in anyone. Not even in his mother, Mrs. Bradley? Not even in me, Chaplain Jim. Bruce was 12 when I finally got well. And he'd grown away from me. He seemed to have a chip on his shoulder... And I believe the only one he ever cared for at that time was me. Well, how was he in school? Not very good. I remember an incident with his school principal when Bruce was about 13. I was at home alone one afternoon when the phone rang. Uh, hello? Mrs. Bradley? Yes? This is Mr. Story, principal of Bruce's school. Oh, yes, Mr. Story. Mrs. Bradley, I have a note here concerning Bruce explaining his absence from school. <laughs> His absence. He hasn't attended for the past four days, Mrs. Bradley. This note is signed by you, and it explains that he has been very ill since the 15th. But I, I wrote no note, sir. I thought not. Frankly, we wouldn't have become suspicious if one of our teachers hadn't seen him on the street the other day. Well, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I'm terribly sorry. Mrs. Bradley, if this were an ordinary case of truancy, it could be easily forgiven. Those things happen, and we try to understand, but Bruce is... Well, difficult in many ways. And if you could spare the time, I'd like to talk to you about him. Well, when do you want me to come to your office, Mr. Story? Would tomorrow morning be satisfactory for you, madam? Oh, perfectly. I'll expect you then. Goodbye, Mrs. Bradley. And goodbye, Mr. Story, and thanks for calling. Four days. And he wrote a note in my name. How could he do that? Oh, Bruce! Bruce! Yes, Ma? Will you come in here for a moment, please? I won first prize today in a spelling bee at school, Ma. So you ought to see how jealous the rest of the kids were when Bruce. I... Yeah, Ma? You weren't at school today. Who says I wasn't? You haven't been to school all week. Mr. Story just called. He's got no right to go calling you up, that old goat. Where does he get out? It isn't what you've done that hurts as much as the fact that, that you lied to me. Well, all right. So I didn't go to school. I don't like school. I don't like Mr. Story or Miss Arthur or any other teacher. You can't tell me anything I don't know. He ain't teaching me a thing. Why do you feel that way about it? 
Do do you really believe you know it all? I know enough to get by. Tomorrow morning, you and I are going up to see Mr. Storer. Oh, Mom! And for the rest of this month, you'll get no allowance and remain indoors after school hours. Are you against me, too? No. No one's against you, dear. But you've got to learn that people don't behave without responsibility in this world. That honesty and integrity are more important than anything else. All right. So I won't get any allowance. That won't change my mind about lots of things. You can bet on that. Where are you going, Bruce? To my room. Next morning, Chaplain Jim, Bruce and I appeared in the principal's office. And what occurred during that meeting, Mrs. Bradley? Bruce sat in the corner, sulking, while Mr. Story and I had a talk. I know this is embarrassing for you, Mrs. Bradley, and I'm sorry that you must be subjected to it. Well, my only concern is for my son, Mr. Story. Naturally. Bruce, come over here, please. Yes, sir. Do you realize that this letter you've written represents a forgery? Yes, sir. Have you been treated unfairly in any way in school? No, sir. Is there any reason why you should feel resentful towards your mother or your teachers? No, sir. Then why did you write this letter? Why have you become a truant from school, and why do you try to make trouble between your fellow students? Is that what Bruce has done, too? There have been many complaints about Bruce, Mrs. Bradley. It seems he's been trying to create bad blood between friends here in school. Oh, Bruce. I guess I did all that, Mr. Story. And even more. But I'm sorry I did. Honest, I am. I guess I didn't know how deep I was getting. That's the reason. I was sore at the other kids. I didn't appreciate what the teachers want to do for me here. Do you mean that, Bruce? Honest, I mean it. If you excuse me this time, Mr. Story, I promise I'll never do it again. Well... Apologize to your mother, Bruce, for causing her so much anguish. I'm sorry, Mom. It's easily forgiven, dear. As long as you know you've been wrong and you promise it'll never happen again. Honest, I do, Mom. What class are you supposed to be in right now? A history, Mr. Story. Mm-hmm. Well, report to your class and we'll forget all about this. Oh, gee, thanks a lot, sir. I'll see you later, Mom. Very well, dear. You... You've been very generous, Mr. Story. If the boy realizes he's made a mistake, I'll meet him more than halfway. Thank you. Thank you very much. And did that solve the problem, Mrs. Bradley? (laughs) For 24 hours, Chaplain Jim. I beg your pardon. Two days later, Bruce failed to report to class again. And this time he played hooky for a week after getting into a fight with two of the other boys in the classroom. You seem to have had your hands full in those days, ma'am. Yes. Bruce was more or less of a black sheep in the family's chaplain, Jim. And as time went on, things became even worse. When he left school at 18, he wouldn't hold a job. I'm afraid he kept rather questionable company, too. Oh, not that he consorted with criminals or anything like that. Thank heaven, he he never went that far. Mm, But his companions were rather shiftless, is that it? Yes. Bruce's favorite meeting place was a pool room downtown. And he'd get in at all hours of the night. 
I was very worried about him, of course, and one day I had a talk with my brother, uh, Bruce's uncle. We're very worried about something, Louise. What is it? It's, it's Bruce, John. He left his job yesterday. Great Scott. Again? It isn't the money that worries me. I still have enough to get along for a while, but I want to see him settle down, and it seems to me he's getting nowhere. Naturally, he's getting nowhere. That young man is 19 now, and he spends half his life in pool rooms. Probably the only newspaper he ever reads is a racing form. I'm sure he'd collapse if he had to get up before noon. Oh, Bruce isn't bad, John. He's just being misinformed. Louise, you've got to do something about that son of yours. You know where he'll end up? If you don't take a firm hand? In the penitentiary. Yes, by George, John, that young man will end John, in the penitentiary. Please. Remember, he's my son. And I love him. Do you realize that the entire family is concerned with Bruce and his behavior, Louise? But he hasn't done anything bad. Are you going to wait until he does? I've tried to talk to him. Talk? Talk won't help. You've got to use more persuasion than that. Don't give him any money when he's out of work if he voluntarily leaves his job. Make him earn his own living. Stop giving him money. Bruce? Yeah, Mom? Oh. Hello, Uncle John. Mm. What's the matter with you? Now, don't get fresh with me, young man. I won't stand for it. John, please. Oh, what you been saying to your Mom? What have I been saying? I'll tell you what I've been saying. I've been asking your mother to deal with you with a firm hand. I've been telling her what a disgrace it is for a young man your age to stay out all hours of the night and mingle with hoodlums. That's what I've been saying to your mother. It's a good thing you're more than twice my age. That's all i got to say. Is that so? And just what would you do if I weren't? I'd point Bruce. Sp- Bruce, please, dear. Don't. Well, I've said all I'm going to say. If you put up with him in the future, Louise, it's your own fault. I'm washing my hands of this young man. Yeah, well, make sure you don't change your mind. Never, never in years our family had to suffer the disgrace of having a ne'er-do-well. And one day you'll both be sorry. Not by word. Ah, the old Benelak. Where does he come in handing out that advice? Mom. Yes, Bruce? You don't think I'm no good, do you? You're my son. I love you. I know I haven't always been a model of perfect behavior, but... Well, sometimes I just can't help myself. Why, Bruce? What is it that makes you so dissatisfied? So restless? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I just can't seem to get along with Uncle John's kind of people, I guess. Or maybe there's something inside me, something I've inherited, that, well, makes me act the way I do. I don't believe that, dear. Underneath, I know your character's as good as anyone else's. You need a steadying influence, that's all. And I pray to God every night, Bruce, that you'll find one. Soon. Bruce was 19 at this time, Mrs. Bradley? Yes, Chaplain Jim. That was almost five years ago. Well, did this uh, steadying influence you wanted materialize? I thought it did, Chaplain Jim, a few months later, when Bruce met Eileen. Eileen's sweet and gentle, and she found things in Bruce that were worthwhile, that could be nourished and developed, and, if given a chance, would build his character. Uh, How soon after they met were they married, Mrs. Bradley? Almost a year. During that time, she did everything in her power to give my boy strength and confidence in himself. Did she succeed? Only partly. For one thing, Bruce got a job, and he held on to it. Then he stopped keeping bad hours. But he was still restless, and he had very little faith in the future. Eileen had all she could do to make him recognize his responsibilities to himself. But she married him all the same, huh? (laughs) Against the advice of her own family and mine. I... 
I guess I was the only one who wanted a marriage, Chaplain Jim. Well, naturally you would. He's your son. You saw his possibilities. You forgave his mistakes. You looked only for his better characteristics. <laughs> All mothers do that. Well, in the Army, Bruce was one of our best non-commissioned officers, Mrs. Bradley. He was given important assignments on the battlefield and a great deal of responsibility. He never let us down, either. When he first entered the Army, though, he wasn't completely changed as he is now. I remember when he proposed to Eileen. She came to me afterward, and we talked it over. Are you happy, Mrs. Bradley? Are you glad that Bruce and I are going to be married? <laughs> I've never been happier in my life, Eileen. <laughs> Nor I. You, uh, you know a great deal about Bruce now, and you realize you may have a few problems to solve. Yes, Bruce is a good boy. Actually, he wouldn't hurt a fly, and he's always been wonderful to me. Even though he gave you so much trouble? He told you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, when one brings up a child, there's always a little trouble. It's something a mother expects. He adores you. You know that, don't you? Mm -hmm. He adores you, too, Eileen. Oh, I think between the two of us, we can work this out, can't we? Oh, I'm sure of it. My, my own family's against my marriage. Although they won't try to do anything to prevent it. They, they feel that Bruce isn't worthy of you. Well... They feel that I'm letting myself in for something. Well, if you were to talk to Bruce's uncle or his cousins, you'd get the same advice, Eileen. I don't intend to talk to them until after we're married. Eileen, I, I say this with all sincerity, and, and I'm trying to do my best to be impartial about it. Bruce can be difficult, but he can also be a wonderful boy. Someone like you, someone he loves, can do a great deal for him. If you'll try. I will. I'll devote my life to it if I must. You see, I love him very much. Mother Bradley. <laughs> Mother Bradley. <laughs> oh, it's going to be nice having you call me that, dear. Oh, we'll always be good friends, won't we? Always, my dear. A few weeks later, Chaplain Jim, Bruce and Eileen were married. Well, by the way you describe her, Mrs. Bradley, she must be a very remarkable girl. Mm, she's everything I've ever wanted for my son, Chaplain. And after their marriage, was that when Bruce began to change? Three days after the ceremony, the Japs bombed Pearl Harbor. Bruce enlisted. Oh, I see. He spent a year in the States training, and then he was sent overseas. Where I met him. Yes. Bruce spent three and a half years in the Army. He, uh... He received a silver star and a purple heart when he was wounded. And all that time, Eileen was living with you, huh? Yes, we found it much easier for both of us, Alan. You know, I met Bruce a few months after D-Day in France. He'd already distinguished himself as a soldier and a leader of men. The first great change I noticed in my son was during his training period here in the United States. He seemed to, to grow mentally. His character became stronger. He accepted responsibility as a matter of course. In short, he spoke and acted like the man he was. Yes, Captain Jim. And I give all the credit for that to the Army. Bruce had a problem when he left home. He had to find out if he was big enough to forget the past, to settle down and raise a family he could be proud of. Uh -huh. When he came back, that problem was solved. He was happy, strong in the knowledge that he could hold his own in this world and Make his loved ones proud of him. I'll be eternally grateful to the Army for the wonderful things they did for my boy. And, and to you, Chaplain Jim. 
We fixed the world of you. Oh, and I have Bruce. Well, last time I saw Bruce, Mrs. Bradley, was on a European pier, a port of embarkation. He was leaving for home. He was very happy about it. We didn't have much time to talk. But I did get a chance to shake his hand and wish him Godspeed. Well, this is it for me, Chaplain Jim. Well, good luck to you, Bruce. Godspeed. Take good care of yourself. You'll be coming back to the States yourself one of these days. Well, I think so. Will you look me up when you arrive, sir? If you ever get to San Francisco. Well, I most certainly will. I wrote my address down on this card for you, Chaplain Jim. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll, I'll keep it in my wallet, Bruce. Oh, it's certainly going to be wonderful seeing the wife and mom again. <laughs> but they can't wait till you get back. They're going to be pleasantly surprised, I hope, Chaplain Jim. Surprised? In what way? Well, it's a long story, and I don't think I'll have time to tell you about it now. But I'm not the same as I was when I went away. You don't think so? I know not, sir. And the change has certainly been for the better. Well, that's always good. And one thing about this, soldier. I'm returning to my old job. And after three and a half years in and out of foxholes, I'm going to enjoy, enjoy our little flat like nobody's business. <laughs> no place like home, my Bruce. It's an old ways, I guess, but we've learned how true it is during these past few years. Guess I better get back to my outfit, Chaplain Jim. Well, I hope we'll meet again very soon, Bruce. So do I, sir. God bless you, Bruce. Even Bruce himself knew that a change had taken place, Captain Jim. That's right, Mrs. Bradley. At that time, of course, I didn't know what he was referring to, but I know now. And I'm very happy for all of you. Incidentally, you should have seen the first meeting between Bruce and his Uncle John. Oh? <laughs> John came over to the house a few days after Bruce arrived home, just before he and Eileen were scheduled to move into their new apartment. John hadn't spoken to my son since that day almost five years before. <laughs> and he wasn't prepared for what happened. Oh, that must be your Uncle John, Bruce. Oh, let me talk to him alone, Mother. I think I have an apology to make. Anything you say, dear. Hello, Uncle John. Uh, welcome home, Bruce. Thank you. Uh, uh, how's your wound? All healed, sir. What? I said, all healed, sir. Uh, you look a bit uh, changed, Bruce. You look uh, hardened and healthy. Well, that's how I feel. And I've been waiting a long time to apologize to you, Uncle John, for something that happened years ago. Apologize? Well, we had rather a rough session last time we talked, and it was my fault. I'm sorry. Well, uh, there's no need to apologize. After all this time, you've been away doing a good job, too, I hear, and uh, we can let bygones be bygones. Thanks, Uncle John. <laughs> yes. What's that uh, ribbon mean on your chest? Uh, this? A silver star. Really? How'd you get it? Well, I uh, sort of... Uh, he took ten enemy prisoners, John, and saved an attack from going to pieces by holding a hill with one machine gun, all alone. You must have been reading my mail, Ma. <laughs> I have the citation, John. It was sent to me by a friend of Bruce's. Well, well, well. I must say that I'm mighty proud of you, Bruce. Yes, sir. It isn't often that our family gets a real honest-to-goodness hero I can brag about. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, Louise, uh, I'm an old fool. I should have seen the stuff in this boy of yours a long time ago. He's quite a lad, all right, quite a lad. Congratulations, Bruce. 
Not only for the decoration, but for proving I was wrong about you. You're all man, the yard wide. My name isn't John Harvey. <laughs> So, Uncle John changed his mind, had he, Mrs. Bradley? And many other people did, too. Huh. Bruce wasn't the black sheep anymore when he came home. He was a hero, and he found he had hundreds of friends. Uh, and since he's been home, life's been smooth and happy for him, huh? <laughs> He couldn't be happier than he is right now. <laughs> I, uh, I'll tell you a little secret if you promise not to give me away. Promise? Well, Eileen's going to have a baby. Well. Uh-huh. She and Bruce told me the news over the phone this morning. Well, that's wonderful, Mrs. Bradley. I'm very happy to hear it. Oh, of course, Bruce will tell you himself, I'm sure, but... So, don't let on that I gave the secret away. He'd be awfully disappointed. Mum's the word. <laughs> oh, there's Bruce and Eileen now. Oh, you want to let me answer the door and give him a real surprise, Mrs. Bradley? Oh, of course, yes. Hello, Ma... Chaplain Jim Foster. Hello there, Bruce. Oh, gosh, this is swell. <laughs> well, when'd you get in town? Oh, just a little while ago. I'm waiting for a new assignment, Bruce. Eileen, I want you to meet one of the nicest people I know. Well, you've heard me talk about him, Chaplain Jim. Oh, this is something I've been looking forward to, Eileen. I'm so very glad to know you, Chaplain. The Chaplain and I have spent the last half hour talking about you, too. Give away any secrets, Mom? Why, Bruce. Oh, I can tell by the look in her eyes she's already mentioned the fact that she's about to become a grandma. And why shouldn't Mother talk about it? That's just what I want to do, even to strangers on the street. <laughs> well, let me congratulate both of you and wish you all the luck in the world. You certainly deserve it. And I know this is going to add that last bit of perfection to both your lives. Thanks, Chaplain Jim. Bruce has talked so much about you, Chaplain Jim. I... I feel we're old friends. Well, we certainly are, Eileen. Very old friends. We have a lot in common, too. Oh, meaning me? <laughs> Isn't he conceited? Chaplain <laughs> uh, Jim, you'll stay a while, won't you, and visit with us? If I may. Oh, we got a lot to talk about, sir. Come on, Eileen. Let's put our things inside and have a gab session in the living room. <laughs> Excuse us for a moment, please. Of course. Well, does he sound as happy as I said he was, Chaplain Jim? Your son sounds like a man who's, who's found himself, Mrs. Bradley, who knows where he's going. The future holds no problems for him or for Eileen. Or for you, either. You've got stars in your eyes and hope in your heart. I know God will watch over you and protect you all. A soldier comes back to his family, his loved ones, and he proves to be a finer and a happier man, thanks to his experience and to his devotion to his country and the service in which he fought. This is Chaplain Jim, folks. The other day I was checking up on the mail situation here on the coast. And I was happy and gratified to find out how many of you, mothers, wives, sweethearts, and friends, are sending that daily letter to your soldier in the service. You know, you can just about gauge how cheerful soldiers will be in the occupation zones overseas by taking a look at the mail as it comes in. If the sergeant's got his hands full, you can bet it's going to be a red-letter day for our fighting men. So keep on sending that daily cheerful letter to your man in the Army, please. And remember, if he's overseas, send your letter by V-mail. V-mail has priority over all other mail. It goes out first by Army rule before anything else. <laughs> 
even airmail. And it's the safest, the surest, and the fastest way of getting your letter overseas to your soldier. Now, this is Chaplain Jim saying goodbye once again until this same time next week. God bless you all. Characters in Chaplin Jim, USA, are fictional. The names of the real characters in this episode are not revealed. Chaplin Jim, USA, which is prepared in cooperation with the War Department, will be on the air next Sunday and every Sunday at this same time. Be sure to listen. Your announcer is Russ Dunbar. This program came to you from our studios in New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Melvin Elliott will report the latest news following station identification. A transcription. Captain Eddie! Who defied death a hundred times. Captain Eddie! Who inspired the faith of men. And the enduring love of a woman. See Captain Eddie starring Fred McMurray at the Roxy Theater, now playing on stage in person Phil Silvers and Carl Ravazza.
presented by the makers of Goulden's Prepared Mustard, famous for its quality and fine flavor, and equally popular as a seasoning in cooking. The haunting rhythm of a Spanish favorite is the first number by the orchestra. It's called Perfidia. This is the WOR newsroom in New York. We have a minor correction in the bulletin just aired from Washington. The press conference now being called in Washington is by the president's secretary, Charles Ross, and not by the president himself, Mr. Truman. The press conference now being called in Washington is by the secretary of the president, Charles Ross, and not by the president. We return you now to the program in progress. Here's our pianist and the reminiscent notes of Mexicali Rose. from the WOR newsroom is more information on the uh, activities of Presidential Secretary Charles Ross and the President. The second secretary of the Swiss legation has arrived at the State Department in Washington. 
the second secretary of the Swiss legation, has arrived at the State Department. However, there is no reason to believe so far that he may be carrying the notes from the Japanese government as transmitted through Bern, Switzerland. More news in just a few moments, and we return you to the regular program. Because of the acute shortage of mayonnaise and salad oils, many wise women today are preparing their own mayonnaise or salad dressings and using new recipes. For real tastiness in your salad dressing, simply do this. Just add a teaspoonful of Goulden's Natural Rich Brown Mustard to your dressing or to mayonnaise made at home. Why, you'll have a reputation for salad second to none. We have just uh, received word from Washington that Presidential Secretary Charles Ross has just announced that the Swiss government in Bern, Switzerland, has not received any reply from the Japanese as yet. That confirms the reports which we've received from Bern, and that makes it official uh, from the United States government. There has been no reply from the Japanese as yet at Bern. That will mean a considerable delay, a still further delay, in uh, any final uh, announcement which would be forthcoming from Washington. The uh, situation begins to uh, perhaps change its color just a bit as we go along now, and one wonders why there has been such a long delay in the transmission of this bulletin, uh, this uh, information from Japan to, to Bern. We're going to move over to another a point in our newsroom to get a better look at the printers. Here's a bulletin from San Francisco. Tokyo Radio said today in a broadcast monitored by FCC that the Japanese reply to the Allies, quote, is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern, end of quote. The uh, Tokyo report appeared to be some hours uh, behind developments because earlier the Japanese had said that the note had been transmitted some time ago. That is... Uh, actually a total of several hours ago 
and should have been in burn. We return you now uh, to the program in progress with one more flash before we do. Uh, just one moment, Dave. We understand from another source that the uh, communication received at the White House announced earlier by uh, Secretary Ross was not the communication expected and that we have been anticipating. No, it has not arrived at the White House as it has not arrived at Bern either. And when it does arrive at Bern, if it does, it will take some time to transmit it to Washington. Now back to the program in progress. Don't you leave me Off you would go in the midst of day Never, never to know Piano steps into the spotlight with Toy Piano Minuet. Thank you. 
natural rich brown color and fine flavor has received awards at five World's Fairs. Notice when you pick up a jar of Goulden's mustard, it's appetizing color. That rich brown color is visible proof that it contains the more costly and more flavorful brown mustard seeds. The choice mustard seeds, rare spices, and mellow vinegars in Goulden's are selected for the fine flavor they add to foods during cooking. Be sure to ask your grocer for Goulden's prepared mustard. Until it's musical appetizer time again, remember, for flavor with a thrill, add Goulden's natural rich brown mustard to stews, sauces, and gravies during cooking. Spread it on meats before cooking. Now, more than ever, it pays to season well. The music heard on this program was recorded. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Henry Gladstone will report the latest news following station identification. A transcription. Musical code spells T-E-K, the toothbrush value of the USA. Tech toothbrush, value immense. Fifth cent quality for 29 cents. Tech toothbrush, made with the finest nylon bristles. The Bamberger Broadcasting Service, W-O-R, New York. It's 12.30, Tuesday, August 14th. This is Henry Gladstone reporting from the W-O-R newsroom. This program is brought to you by Sweetheart Soap, the soap that agrees with your skin. Now, here's an important point of extra daintiness to look for when you buy Sweetheart Soap. Unlike soaps that lie flat, only one tiny part of Sweetheart's oval cake touches the soap dish. That means air gets under practically all around to help dry it quickly. This helps avoid unpleasant, wasteful, melted soap. Your cake of Sweetheart is always more delightfully dainty. Today, get Sweetheart Soap and the oval cake that stays drier. Remember, Sweetheart is the soap that agrees with your skin. And now the news. The White House announced at 12.22 p.m. today, that's approximately 13 minutes ago, that the Swiss government had informed the United States the Japanese cables received in Bern, Switzerland this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross called the press into his office and read to them a dispatch received by the State Department from the Swiss government. It contained a memorandum stating that the Swiss legation had received the following open cable from its political department in Bern. Ross said it was received in Washington at 10.59 a.m. today. Ross said it read, Very urgent, 7.60. The Japanese legation reports that the coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. The message was signed, Politique, and Ross said the memorandum came to the State Department from the Swiss legation. He then read the memorandum which stated, with reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley, Chargé d'Affaires, ad interim, and the Honorable James F. Byrne, Secretary of State, the Swiss legation wishes to confirm receipt of the following open cable from the political department in Bern, received at 10.59 a.m. August 14th. And then came the very urgent message. It is possible that before many more hours have passed, we may have an official announcement from the White House that Emperor Hirohito and the samurai have bowed to the allies. President Truman has been in his study since 7.15 this morning, waiting for Tokyo's formal reply to our terms. The answer definitely is expected today. And the White House has just been informed that the Japanese reply to the allies has not been received, as I just told you. 
I'm repeating this, the Swiss legation in Washington has informed the White House that coded cables received in Bern do not contain the Japanese answer. The Tokyo radio declares that the Japanese note now is on its way to Bern. Unofficial foreign broadcasts indicating that the Japanese have accepted the allied terms have touched off celebrations throughout the country. And that's the way the matter stands officially so far. The feeling still is one of expectation. At least four coding and decoding operations and three radio telegraph transmissions are involved in bringing Japan's expected surrender reply to Washington. Here are the steps that probably would have to be taken to transmit such a message from the Orient. One, the Japanese translate the reply into English. Two, the message is transcribed into diplomatic code. Three, Tokyo contacts Radio Swiss and the message is transmitted. How long such transmission would require depends upon the speed and number of operators employed. Four, the Japanese officials in Bern, Switzerland receive the message and decode it. The message then is delivered to the Swiss political state department. Six, the Swiss code it and deliver it to the uh, telegraph office. The telegraph office transmits it to the New York office. New York transmits it, transmits it to Washington where it's speeded by messenger to the Swiss legation. And the ninth step, the Swiss legation decodes the message and delivers it to our State Department. It was thought among officials in a position to know that the Tokyo reply would be in English because English is Japan's second language. A corresponding message in Japanese might be sent to the Japanese legation in Bern for their own study. How long all these operations would require, no one in an official capacity was willing to guess, pointing out that the length of reply would determine the time necessary for coding, decoding, and transmission. Swiss reports indicated that last Saturday's message from the United States to Japan moved out of Bern approximately seven hours after it was delivered to the Swiss legation in Washington by our State Department, and that the Japanese, after requesting that message be repeated, acknowledged receipt about ten hours after transmission began in Bern. While the Allied world awaits the next development, the war still is flaming on every sector in the Pacific and in Asia. Nothing short of a direct order from the Allied commanders will stop the fighting. This is the situation even though the trigger was pulled on peace celebrations many hours ago all around the world. A variety of foreign broadcasts were responsible for this latest outbreak. The Tokyo radio said that an imperial announcement accepting the Potsdam proclamations will be forthcoming soon. A Swiss broadcast has been heard by British listeners asserting that Japan has accepted the capitulation offer. Another broadcast heard in New York indicated the Japs were sending urgent wireless messages to their ships remaining at sea. Like the rest of the world, the British cabinet is standing by for the text of the Japanese answer. There may be quite a long wait due to the complications of translations, codings, and decodings. We take you now to Washington. Uh, we're not ready to go to Washington as yet, so now back to Henry Gladstone. Well, the Japanese, too, may be getting ready to spring the news on the homeland. The Domei Agency has sent out an advance dispatch about a message from the Emperor, which is to be read to the people gathered before the bridge leading to the palace grounds in Tokyo. That's a gathering place for the public when unusual events are at hand. This message is said to express Hirohito's extreme concern for what it calls the calamity caused by the United States. Just a short time ago, the Domei Agency broadcast a flowery dispatch which said that today the imperial decision was granted. Those are the words of the broadcast. The imperial decision was granted. What decision was involved was not specified, but apparently had to do with the surrender. But perhaps it would be better if I read you the text of the Dome dispatch, and here is how it started. How shall the 100 million people filled with trepidation reply to the emperor? His majesty's subjects are moved to tears by his majesty's boundless and infinite solicitude. 
August 14, 1945, the imperial decision was granted. The palace grounds are quiet beneath the dark clouds, continued the Japanese dispatch. Then it went on to say, Honored with the imperial edict in the sublime palace grounds, the mob of loyal people are bowed to the very ground in front of the Fujibasi Bridge. That's the bridge that leads to the palace. Their tears flow unchecked. Alas, in their shame, how can the people raise their heads, said the Dome broadcast. With the words, Forgive us, O Emperor, our efforts were not enough. The heads bow lower and lower as the tears run unchecked. Ever since December 8, 1941, when we received the Imperial Rescript, causing His Majesty deep anxiety. And at this point, Dome broke its transmission to ask editors to hold up the dispatch. Just what happened is a mystery, and the Dome Agency never did finish the dispatch. But later it sent out this message to editors. Tomorrow, August 15th at noon sharp. We take you now to Washington. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Fulton Lewis Jr. speaking once again from the Mutual Studios across the street from the White House. We have received another setback in the, so far as time is concerned, in the expected arrival of the Japanese reply to the last Allied ultimatum for surrender. The cable that came to Bern, Switzerland, early this morning, arriving there at 7 o'clock, a long coded cable which was reported here and was announced by Secretary Ross at the White House earlier today at about 9.30 a.m. as being the long-awaited cable is now shown to be otherwise. Secretary Ross just called an emergency press conference, dropped the bombshell into the newspaper men who have been momentarily expecting the actual receipt of the Japanese reply uh, to be transmitted to Secretary of State uh, Burns by the Swiss legation here. Mr. Ross called us in and said that he would read the following statement without comment. And he read to us the following statement. With reference to the telephone conversation this morning, and let me say that this, this statement is a memorandum, from an official memorandum from the State Department to the, from, from the Swiss legation to the White House. It reads as follows. With reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley charge affairs and uh, odd interim of Switzerland, and the Honorable James uh, Burns, Secretary of State, the legation of Switzerland wishes to confirm the receipt of the following open cable, an open cable being an uncoded cable, from the political department in Bern at 10.49 a.m. August the 14th. That was about an hour before this press conference. And here is the exact verbiage of the cable that was received by the Swiss legation here at 10.49 a.m. today from the Swiss political department in Bern. Listen, very urgent. Jap legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. I'll read that to you again. Jap legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. That is the cablegram that was received by the Swiss legation here at 10.49 a.m. this morning from the political department of the Swiss government at Bern, Switzerland. The long and short of it is that this now throws the entire matter back on the uh, authenticity of the Japanese radio. So far as we are now able to understand, so far as the information officially or even backdoor officially that we have here in Washington at the present time, not only has the Japanese reply to President Truman's ultimatum not been received here in Washington, 
It has not even been received in Bern, Switzerland, by the Japanese legation there to be turned over to the Swiss government. Apparently, it has not even left Tokyo. Therefore, all of the authenticity that we have, all of the backing, all of the authority for the fact that uh, the Japanese finally are accepting, if they are, the uh, terms of that ultimatum, the sole authority that we have for it now is the authority of the Tokyo Radio, its statements, and the broadcasts from the Tokyo Radio that have been picked up and recorded by the Office of War Information to the effect that great crowds had gathered in the streets outside of the Imperial Palace, weeping, bowing to the ground, and asking the forgiveness of the Emperor for not having made a better performance to bring the war to a successful conclusion for Japan. Perhaps those broadcasts are all true. Perhaps uh, the Japanese are preparing to send through their uh, final acceptance their full-fledged acceptance of these uh, terms. But so far as official channels are concerned, all we know is that thus far nothing has even reached Bern, Switzerland, let alone having come through to the United States. We now return you to New York. You've been listening to Fulton Lewis in Washington. Now back to Henry Gladstone in the WOR newsroom. Apparently the Japanese government, press and radio, have not yet told the Japanese people exactly what's going on. But many of them must have a fair idea by now. More than two million leaflets outlining the Allied reply to Japan's first surrender proposal have been dropped on the enemy homeland in the past few days. The Japs, however, also are being hit with bombs and shells at every turn. Even as the Tokyo radio is broadcasting that Japan would surrender, hundreds of American superfortresses staged the 5,000-ton demolition raid on southern Honshu. Hard off Tokyo Bay, Admiral Halsey's third fleet plowed around, and although there is no news of any fleet action today, Pacific Fleet Headquarters has announced that operations will not be called off until official word is received from Washington. On the Asiatic continent, Tokyo has admitted new gains by the Soviet armies pouring across Manchuria. And in southern China, Chungking announces that thousands of Japanese troops have been cut off by an offensive against the railroad town of Tungan. But throughout the nation, from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, the imminence of the Japanese surrender overshadows all else in public interest. Millions of joyous Americans have accepted Japanese surrender as a fact, even though it still is not official, and wild celebrations have been touched off. New York's Times Square was a scene of wild demonstrations today. I'll have the stock market report after this brief message of special interest to women. Ladies, just compare well-known beauty soaps and see if your own fastidious preference doesn't lead you to choose sweetheart soap in the quick-drying oval cake. Not another one of the eight leading beauty soaps offers you this extra daintiness. Unlike many soaps that lie flat, only one part of Sweetheart's Oval Cake touches the soap dish. That means air gets under it to dry it fast, helps avoid unpleasant, wasteful, melted soap. So for gentle, thorough beauty care, baths, baby, fragrant shampoos, get Sweetheart in the Oval Cake that stays drier. Remember, Sweetheart is the soap that agrees with your skin. Stock prices were up this noon. Trading was moderate. Noon prices included U.S. Steel 67 and 5 eighths up 3 eighths. Bethlehem Steel 77 and a half up 3 eighths. General Motors, 67 and 5 eighths, up a half. Chrysler, 111, up a half. Anaconda, 32, up an eighth. Nickel, 32 and a quarter, down an eighth. United Aircraft, 25 and three quarters, unchanged. Standard Oil of New Jersey, 59 and three eighths, up an eighth. New York Central, 24 and three quarters, up five eighths. Pennsylvania Railroad, 35 and three eighths, up three eighths. Santa Fe, 87 and a half, up a half. Edison, 30, unchanged. Telephone, 179 and a quarter, up a quarter. Listen to the news every afternoon, Monday through Saturday at 12.30. This program was presented by Sweetheart Soap, the soap that agrees with your skin. And now this is Henry Gladstone wishing you a pleasant afternoon.
This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. Dentine, chewing gum, it's keen chewing gum, helps keep teeth white. Dentine is delicious. W-O-R, New York. This is Albert Mitchell's daytime Answer Man program at your service. This program is presented as a service to you to give you the answers to your questions and help you out with your problems. All you have to do is send in your question, whatever it may be. And provided that question has a definite answer that's not of a personal nature and does not violate professional ethics, you will get the answer and without charge. Some of the questions you send in will be answered over the air in this series of broadcasts. All will be answered by mail. So don't forget to enclose a stamped, addressed envelope. And now, here he is, your daytime answer man. Good afternoon. And what question do we begin with today? This one from a woman of New York City. Is there really such a thing as a pair of left-handed scissors? Yes, manufacturers of cutlery really make left-handed scissors and shears. Next, a youngster of Somerville, New Jersey asks, How tall and fat do elephants grow to be? Elephants grow to be anywhere from 8 feet to 11 feet tall and weigh from 4,000 to 10,000 pounds. A note from a woman of White Plains, New York reads, The opinion of my family is divided on this question of etiquette. When a person receives an announcement of a marriage, is the person obligated to send a wedding gift? We'd appreciate your help. When a person receives a wedding announcement, it isn't necessary to send a wedding gift, though many people do. It's entirely up to you. On the other hand, if you receive a wedding invitation, it's generally considered to carry with it the obligation of sending a gift. A Manhattan woman inquires, How long has there been a ban on bingo in New York City? In particular, on church bingo. There has been a ban on bingo, a law against it, in churches and out for the past 50 years in the state of New York. For a while, this law was not enforced against churches, but still, bingo was illegal there. This question comes from a young woman of Rocky Point, Long Island. What kind of beauty preparations did the ancient Romans use? Greek beauty preparations primarily, for when the Romans swept down on Greece, they captured all the beauty doctors of that nation. Their knowledge of the arts of beauty in which the Athenians excelled was quite complete. Their preparations included hair dyes, wave sets, perfumes, various ointments for the skin and complexion, fingernail polish, rouge, eye shade, and powder. In Greece and then in Rome, both men and women used these preparations. Next, a Hawthorne, New Jersey woman asks, What is the best way to roast corn over an open fire, with the husks on or off? With the husks on, cut off the excess silk from the ears of corn and then dip the corn in cold water for a minute. Be sure your fire is burned down to just a bed of coals and put your ears of corn in the coals or on a grill over them. Turn the ears often, and when the husks are charred, the corn is ready to be eaten. A New York City woman inquires, which man has the longest name, Churchill or Stalin? Churchill's full name is longer by five letters. There were 25 letters to Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin, but 30 letters to Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. And a woman of Newburgh, New York writes, Telling my husband about when I was a girl and lived in Missouri, I said we had robins there the year round. He didn't believe me. Of course, I could be wrong, as I often am. Am I? No, there are robins in Missouri the year round. The robins that nest in Missouri during the summer spend their winters near the Gulf of Mexico. Then, when they've departed, the more hardy Canadian robins come south to spend their winters in Missouri. 
A woman writes from Woodstock, Connecticut. My son, who is 11 years old, would like to know the answer to these questions. Does a gallon of motor oil contain more liquid than a gallon of gasoline? And how much does each one weigh? A gallon of motor oil and a gallon of gasoline contain the same amount of liquid, but a gallon of oil weighs seven and a half pounds, while a gallon of gasoline weighs only six pounds. A woman of Port Chester, New York asks, Will you please tell me how often they choose someone for the Hall of Fame? Names to be inscribed in the Hall of Fame for great Americans are chosen every five years by a college of electors consisting of approximately 100 men and women of distinction who represent every state in the Union. Seventy-three people have already been chosen. The busts and tablets in the Hall of Fame are all gifts of individuals or associations. A woman living in Mary Knoll, New York, writes, Please tell me the way to make a poison mash to kill cutworms. Mix four ounces of white arsenic of Paris green with five pounds of dry bran. Then grind two lemons or oranges in two quarts of water sweetened with one pint of molasses. Next, wet the bran mixture with the liquid and stir until the mixture's crumbly. Place a tablespoon of the mash around each plant that the cutworms are after. Do this in the evening, for this pest feeds at night. A note from a Sayville, Long Island woman reads, Where was Jimmy Stewart born? And please settle this argument for us. Has he been in the Air Force less than five years or more than five years? Less than five years, and Jimmy Stewart was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania, on May 20th, 1908. A listener of Hawthorne, New Jersey asks, What year did Cocktails for Two become popular? If you mean the song, Cocktails for Two started to become popular in 1934. It was written by Arthur Johnston and Sam Coslow. And a young woman writes from Smithtown, Long Island. I'm anxious to find out how the word bachelor came to be used in the terms Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science. In its Latin form, bachelor signified a farm servant and was then applied to the cultivators of certain land owned by a religious body. Next, it came to mean novices in monasteries and likewise persons passing through the probationary stages of knighthood. In the institution of universities, it was popularly used to denote those who had just entered on their academic career. And in the 13th century, the Pope bestowed the title upon those members of the University of Paris who had not yet reached the rank of master or doctor. Subsequently, bachelor came to be conferred as the lowest academic degree in all universities. Next, a woman of Moosup, Connecticut asks, Were many of our flyers saved during the war by landing in Sweden? Quite a few. According to Swedish authorities, 303 foreign planes were forced down in their country during the war. 140 of these were American. And a Brooklyn listener writes, I know this is a toughie, but I'm anxious to find out where in the British Isles the most tea is drunk. According to tea statisticians, the most tea is drunk in Lancashire in the Midlands, north of Birmingham. This is a mining district, and most of the miners drink nothing but tea, and the pot is on the stove 24 hours a day. A letter from a Forest Hills, Long Island woman reads, One of my children got tar on my white living room curtain. I have greased it, but the tar just spreads. Do you suppose I shall have to dip the curtain in kerosene? No, you can remove the tar stain from the curtain by sponging the spot with a cloth dipped in turpentine. Then rinse the curtain out with clear water. You may have to repeat this treatment several times. A Teaneck, New Jersey woman asks, Can a person who lives in Teaneck see the same clouds at the same time as a person who lives in Green Pond 40-odd miles away? Yes, if the clouds are high enough, they can be seen quite easily by both persons. A woman of Hackensack, New Jersey, inquires, What's a quick, easy way to peel fresh apricots? 
Place your fresh apricots in a colander and dip them for a moment in a pan of boiling water. Next, dip them in a pan of cold water for three minutes and then peel off the skins. You'll find that the skins will come off quite easily because of this bath. A woman writes from New York City. I would like to have a short biography of Molly Corbin and the inscription on her grave in West Point for a DAR meeting. Molly Corbin went to war as a nurse and took her husband's place beside his cannon when he was wounded until she lost an arm by a cannonball. The inscription on her tomb in the cemetery at West Point tells the story perfectly. In memory of Margaret Corbin, a heroine of the revolution known as Captain Molly, 1751 to 1800, who at the Battle of Fort Washington, New York City, when her husband John Corbin was killed, kept his field piece in action until severely wounded, and thereafter, by act of Congress, received half the pay and allowances of a soldier in the service. She lived, died, and was buried in the Hudson River Bank near the village now known as Highland Falls. In appreciation of her deeds for the cause of liberty and that her heroism may not be forgotten, her dust was removed to this spot and this memorial erected by the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution in New York State, 1926. Next, uh, Yonkers Youngster asks, what family of birds does the magpie belong to? The magpie belongs to the crow family. Its scientific name is Pika, or as some say, Pika Pika. And a girl writes from Amityville, Long Island. Will you kindly tell me, if you can, what kind of a stick it is Hawaiian sweethearts give to each other to show their affection? I imagine you mean sugarcane stalks. Years ago, Hawaiian sweethearts used to transmit their love messages by means of sugarcane stalks. The various characteristics of the stocks determine their meanings. A New York City woman asks, Who gets the money when the black market butcher finally gets caught and pays a fine for violating OPA ceiling? All monies collected in fines for violation of OPA regulations are paid into the general fund of the United States Treasury, where they're reported as income and then expended on general governmental expenses. An Elliott, Connecticut woman writes, At a small tea party I attended, the hostess wore very elaborate clothes much finer than that which the rest of us wore. Do you think this was in good taste? No, it would have been much better for the hostess to have dressed a little less elaborately than her guests. She should have worn a simple at-home dress, and perhaps on the slightly subdued side. But maybe she didn't know how you were going to dress. A listener of Patterson, New Jersey, would like to know the deepest place in the Pacific Ocean and how it compares with the deepest place in the Atlantic Ocean. The greatest depth of the Pacific Ocean so far discovered is over 6 miles or 35,400 feet, while the greatest known depth of the Atlantic is not quite 5 miles, 30,246 feet. An Orangeburg, New York woman writes, Will you kindly tell me how to go about getting a child suffering with infantile paralysis into the Warm Springs Foundation in Georgia? The application for the admission of the child to the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation should be addressed to the registrar and accompanied by a complete medical case history from the child's attending physician. The chief surgeon of the foundation and his staff will review the case history and determine the child's medical acceptability. If acceptable and if accommodation is available, arrangements will be made by the registrar for admission of the child. A letter from a woman of Boundbrook, New Jersey reads, How can I keep pigeons from the feeding station that I have for other birds? As soon as I put the feed out, these big pigeons come down and gobble everything. And my poor little bird friends are out in the cold. I'd suggest that you build a cover of a wire screening over your feeding station, making the opening large enough for the little bird you wish to feed, but too small for the pigeons. A woman writes from Long Island City. Our oil burner had a leak a few weeks ago, and there's a big oil stain on the concrete floor. I tried soap and water, but this doesn't help. 
What should I use? Gasoline? No, don't use gasoline, for it might cause an explosion. Instead, cover the stain with an inch or two of dry Portland cement. In two or three days, the cement should draw up most of the oil from your floor. If you haven't any cement, you can use dry hydrated lime in the same way and with the same effect. A second application with carbon tetrachloride added to the powdered cement or lime will remove even more of the stain. A woman of White Plains, New York asks, Will you kindly tell me who designed the Pentagon building in Washington, D.C.? The Pentagon building was designed by George Edwin Bergstrom of Los Angeles, California. And the Packer, Connecticut woman writes, If you have any children, perhaps you'll understand and forgive this silly question. My little boy is at that stage where he's telling jokes and asking me the answers to conundrums. His latest one is this. Why didn't they play cards on Noah's Ark? Because Noah sat on the deck. If you'd like help with a particular problem, the answer to a question that's puzzling you, just write a note to The Answer Man, W-O-R, New York, 18. Please enclose a stamped address envelope. Ask any question you wish. And provided it has a definite answer that is not of a personal nature and does not violate professional ethics, you will get the answer by mail and without charge. Write The Answer Man, W-O-R, New York, 18. Tomorrow midday at 12.45, we'll be back with the answers to more of your questions. And what are some of those questions going to be? Well, here are just a few of them. Who's the biggest eater in the army? How do you prevent scalded milk from sticking to the pan? Why are leases signed for 99 years instead of 100? Has 40 days of rain ever really followed St. Swithin's Day? How big is the desert in New England? Did the Italians start using soap before the Germans did? How do you substitute cocoa for chocolate in a recipe? And what good is a snail for mending broken glass? So join us again tomorrow midday at 1245 for Albert Mitchell's Daytime Answer Man program. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. We call your attention to a special broadcast to be presented at 1.15 this afternoon. That's in approximately 15 minutes. It'll be a roundtable discussion between Washington and New York. W-O-R, New York. 1 p.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova urges, hold war bonds. <laughs> Hello, everybody. This is Jack Bundy with the transcribed album time. Just want to remind you folks that an event anything of importance in the way of news takes place, why the program will be interrupted. The coming of the peace, of course, is going to mean many changes, both large and small. A large one, for example, will be the cancellation of huge war contracts. And a small change of attitude, at least, is already taking place in a certain filling station. Overheard was one filling station attendant advising another in these words. Hey, Eddie, wipe off that windshield and check those tires. The war is nearly over.
Well, that's certainly a beautiful saddle that the Chamber of Commerce at Reno has uh, donated to Admiral Bull Halsey. Although I'd like to see the Admiral put that saddle on Hirohito and ride him down the streets of Tokyo instead of the white horse. Well, we've got uh, <laughs> Tinkering Benoit in the control room today. Nothing bothers him, nothing worries him. Matter of fact, right now he's working on a new improved electric toaster for post-war newlyweds. It's supposed to throw the burnt toast right out the window. It'll be marvelous if you develop it, Mac. Okay for super suds, eh, what? Super suds, super suds, lots more suds from super suds. Rich and longer lasting, too, they're the suds we super do. When a lady has six children and her wash is just a pride, what's she gonna do, sister? What's she gonna do? What's she gonna do? Get that soap with super do. With that grand hard working super studs, a heavy watch seems light. Come on, sister, give a lowdown. The lowdown, how do you explain that fact? Explain that fact. Make the suds test in your bottle. See how different soaps react. See how super suds give suds so extra rich and big and thick that they're bound to get out bulky dirt and do it double quick. Super suds, super suds, lots more suds from super suds. Well, here comes Glenn Gray. He has a song about a gal who has stars in her eyes. Yes, stars in her eyes and a one-track mind with a troop train on it. Yeah. I see stars in your eyes When my lips beg your lips to surrender Stars in your eyes When we kiss and you Stars leave the skies, but the night still is bright in their splendor. Deep in your eyes, lovely stars still continue to shine. What dawn may bring, no matter what you may say, there's always one little thing that always gives you away.
tune, Stars in Her Eyes. You know, if a meteorologist looked into a girl's eyes, he probably could tell weather. Well, now, personally, I like a girl with a good head on my shoulder. Much nicer. Well, here's an old song by the Three Sons about an old gal named Maggie, or an old girl named Maggie, whichever way you prefer. Anyway, she's a woman, but women. You know, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. They certainly are strange creatures. You'll find that some are intrigued by a man with a past and others are only interested in men whose potentialities point to a bright future. And, of course, quite a percentage like the men of the present. And the more expensive the present, the more they like him. But let's hear more about Maggie. Remember, if any news breaks, you'll get it pronto. They'll interrupt all programs to keep you posted on any of the latest developments. For years now, the Army has demanded that there be three sets of eyelets on its G.I. woolen underwear. Probably a lot of people have wondered why. In the case of Harry J. Burton, it's always been a mystery to him. When the War Production Board staged a campaign for shortcuts to save time, Burton, who happens to be a civilian employee of the Philadelphia Quartermaster Depot, brought up the question about those eyelets. Well, that stumped the army. They couldn't think of a good reason for the traditional third set. As a result, they're going to be eliminated, and it means a yearly saving of $3,700. As for Burton, he got $344 uh, as an award for the idea. Now, there's a case where curiosity really paid off. Of course, the metal shortage has taken the hooks off of dresses, but never going to take the eyes off of them. Now you've got a little ditty coming up here, a nursery rhyme called Three Blind Mice. Three blind mice, three blind mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all run after the farmer wife, she cut off the cap with a crowd, every you see with the same life. Three blind mice. We interrupt Jack Bundy's program to bring you a summary of the situation up to this moment from the WOR newsroom. 
The Japanese have not yet replied to the Allies' surrender terms the White House was informed today. Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross made public a memorandum from the Swiss legation here shortly after noon Eastern wartime, saying that coded cables received in Bern do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. The Tokyo radio at 12.01 p.m. Eastern wartime said the Japanese government's reply to the four powers is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern. This broadcast was recorded by the FCC. Ross's disclosure came on the heels of reports which he had himself passed on to reporters previously that the Japanese surrender answer had been received in Bern. In a memorandum to Secretary of State Burns, the Swiss legation here said, with reference to the telephone conversation this morning between Mr. Max Grassley, chargé d'affaires ad interim of the Swiss legation, and the Honorable James F. Burns, Secretary of State, the legation of Switzerland wishes to confirm the receipt of the following open, that's not coded cable, from the political department in Bern, received at 10.59 Eastern War Time, August 14th. Very urgent, 7.60. Japanese legation reports that coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. And that was signed Politique. Ross called reporters into his office to read the memo, as he said, without comment. The Swiss memorandum threw back to a Dome radio broadcast from Tokyo the only basis for the report that the Japanese would accept the surrender terms. On Saturday, the United States, Great Britain, Russia, and China agreed to accept the Japanese surrender with the emperor retaining his throne if the emperor were subjected to the orders of an allied supreme commander of occupation forces. The allies also stipulated that eventually the Japanese people must be permitted to select their own form of government. Word from the Swiss came in the middle of a day that had started off expectantly with radio reports from Bern and Tokyo saying the Japanese had framed an answer and that it was on its way to the Allied capitals through the Swiss neutral diplomatic channels. Ross had announced to reporters earlier in the day that Commodore James Vardaman, President Truman's naval aide, had talked to the Swiss legation shortly after 7 a.m. and had been informed that the Swiss had received the coded surrender message in Bern. This raised expectations that the Japanese reply would be in the hands of Allied leaders in a matter of hours. When the lengthy coded message received by Japanese officials in Bern proved to be something other than the surrender reply, Swiss officials there and in Washington were informed quickly of this fact. Because of their previous conversation with Commodore Vardman, the Swiss acted hurriedly to notify Secretary Burns of the situation. Burns then went to the White House from his State Department office and apparently delivered to President Truman the Swiss memorandum. Previously, newsmen had asked Ross about reports they obtained from the Swiss legation that no surrender reply had been received either in Bern or Washington. Ross, apparently mystified by this turn of affairs, went immediately to the president. He announced the memorandum as soon as the Duke of Windsor, who had been talking with Mr. Truman, came out of the executive offices. Although Secretary Ross told press correspondents at that time that the Japanese note already was in the hands of the Swiss, the Swiss office at 10.40 a.m. Eastern War Time denied that it had yet received the message. This was followed by a Tokyo broadcast recorded by the FCC at 12.08 p.m. Eastern War Time, which said the Japanese government's reply to the four powers is now on its way to the Japanese minister at Bern. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. W-O-R, New York. At 12.22 today, Presidential Secretary Charles G. Ross called the press into his office and read to them a dispatch received by the State Department from the Swiss government. 
It contained a memorandum stating that the Swiss legation had received the following open cable from its political department in Bern. Ross said it was received in Washington at 10.59 a.m. today, and it read, Very urgent, 7.60. The Japanese legation reports that the coded cables it received this morning do not contain the answer awaited by the whole world. At this time, the Mutual Network presents a panel discussion of that most recent and startling development. We'll now introduce the members of that panel. From Washington, we have William Hillman of Collier's Magazine, Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst, and Fulton Lewis, Jr., well-known Washington commentator. Are you gentlemen all on hand down there? We are. This is Bill Hillman checking in. This is Fulton Lewis checking in. And Charles Hodges. And here in New York, we have Cecil Brown, author and foreign correspondent, and Leo Chern, well-known economist. Well, gentlemen, it looks like we're just about back where we started around midnight last night. What do you say about that? We certainly are, and of course, uh, uh, although we are extremely puzzled, it seems to me that most of the people in the streets of New York have accepted the surrender as a fact. It's hard on our nerves, but it uh, appears that they they are are not bothered by this most recent confusion. I think uh, one of the most puzzling factors is uh, why the uh, Japanese are stalling for this time. Uh, Is there any observation uh, from Washington on that? Well, uh, this is Charles Hodges. It seems to me that uh, this is a kind of Pearl Harbor diplomacy from Japan all over again. I frankly think that uh, we made a mistake when we didn't put a time limit on an ultimatum. Uh, You must remember in the Orient that if you are a conqueror, you have to act like a conqueror. What kind of a persuader can we use now? Another atomic bomb? Uh, I suppose that that's the alternative unless we want to wait upon the Supreme One's uh, pleasure in Tokyo. This is Fulton Lewis speaking. From what I've heard around here today, in the last hour, there is about as much annoyance and irritation and and, uh, general upset nerves in the government as there is anywhere in the world present time. They're thoroughly put out. They're thoroughly annoyed. After all... uh, the Japanese lied in the beginning about when they received this, uh, this original ultimatum. Lied by 12 hours. Now, the fact of the matter is, as of the present time, the, uh, the ultimatum has been in the Japanese hands for about 70 hours at least. In that time, they certainly had an opportunity to make up for it. I rather doubt that an atomic bomb will be dropped without a warning. I rather feel that on this occasion, they will uh, give them a very few hours, uh, state that unless... The answer is forthcoming and in our hands, and unless it's the right answer, by a certain time, down they come. Uh, Fulton, this is Chern, New York. Yeah, Leo. I'm inclined to go along with your your feeling that the irritation uh, that is now being felt will play a very substantial part in, in what's happening, and as a matter of fact, that irritation leads me to believe that there's a little more than just a runaround in the, in the events that have happened within the last 24 hours. I feel pretty sure that Japan must be aware of the irritation and irritation that's rapidly becoming anger as a result of a series of what now seem to be lies. I believe the Japanese government may be reflecting to a certain extent a helplessness, a tug of war within the cabinet that is resulting in announcements and conflicting statements being made that are confusing us perhaps uh, as confused as they are at this moment. Uh, This is Brown in New York. There's one point which uh, seems to me needs clarification, and that is that Presidential Secretary Charlie Ross uh, announced that the uh, Jap legation in Bern 
did receive cables, but they were not the, the, uh, the they did not contain the answer that the whole world was waiting for. That's correct, uh, Cecil, and it's but, a very but, important... But there, there is this, this one point. Uh, so far as we know, it has not been stated what those uh, cables contained. Now, is it at all possible in the uh, circles in Washington that uh, the, the coded cables may have contained some sort of a Japanese offer? The, uh, this the, is Bill Hillman speaking. Uh, personally, I think there may be uh, a remote possibility, nevertheless a possibility to be considered, that there may have been a request for further clarifications of the terms that we have offered them. Now, that's a remote possibility, but we've got to keep that in mind. Well, let's be more specific than that, Bill. Uh, no reason why we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't say that that has come to us from a, a usually reliable source here, but it is unconfirmed, and we can't confirm it. That's right. In other words, there is a feeling in certain high diplomatic circles that uh, that may be one of the uh, explanations. Uh, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to ask uh, all of you in Washington this one question. I wonder whether you can shed any light on it. This is here in New York. And the question is, do you have any idea or any information whether the Domai news agency broadcasts which were beamed to the United States within the last 14 hours, whether those broadcasts are any, uh, under any circumstances available to the Japanese people themselves? No, they they first, uh, the first broadcast that was picked up uh, saying that uh, the Japanese government would accept this uh, Potsdam Declaration was beamed in English to the United States. Well, here's why I asked, Bill. For example, that broadcast that spoke of the mobs crowding the bridge outside the emperor's palace and weeping at the insufficiency of their effort. Uh, I just wonder whether the entire incident isn't a, uh, a figment of a broadcaster's imagination. You see, we've been relying so much on, on the stories of the feeling of surrender or the feeling of defeat when that feeling itself may still be a figment of imagination. Well, as a matter of fact, Leon, as it now stands, we haven't been relying so much, we've been relying entirely. That's all we have to stand on at well, the present time, what we have out of Domai. Fulton, this much, I think, should be said for ourselves. I think we deserve a, a, a little compliment for the caution that was struck in all of these discussions uh, since the middle of this morning. Uh, we have not thus far gone out, uh, gone out with quite the enthusiasm that is being demonstrated in, in Times Square below us at this moment. They just refuse to accept any caution. Has That's there been any uh, demonstration like that down in Washington, man? None whatsoever. Washington is absolutely dead. There are perhaps 50 or 60 people across the street from the White House in Lafayette Square. There is no demonstration of any kind, no tooting of whistles, no parades, no excitement. The, otherwise, in the crowds of reporters in the White House executive offices, you never know that any, this was other than just August the 14th. There That's right. This is Bill Hillman. Uh, th this city is the calmest, uh, most uh, cold city in, in the United States today. They're calmly waiting. And you will recall that I stated this morning that the Army and Navy officials are waiting and prepared for any sneak treachery at all. In other words, they're taking this in a very cold-blooded way. There's the feeling up here that uh, the American public is so aggravated and so worked up over these recent developments that uh, about the only thing that could put them at ease would be a possible statement from the president. Do you gentlemen believe there's any possibility that such a statement might be forthcoming? I don't believe there is. This is Fulton speaking. I don't believe there is. I don't believe it's necessary. This is Bill Hillman speaking. Isn't there the possibility, though, uh, as a roundabout way of making that sort of statement, 
that a very short, uh, an ultimatum ex giving a very short deadline may not be forthcoming this afternoon, or do you believe that we will still continue to wait? Well, Leo, that is purely my speculation. That is not any inside information from anybody. It was my speculation, uh, just from general talk, that uh, you hear among officials and uh, the general attitude, the irascible, uh, out-of-patience attitude that, uh, well, said time and time again, well, uh, we waited long enough. Something's got to be done. Uh, Fulton, this is Cecil in New York. Yeah. Uh, do you have, uh, have you encountered any speculation as to what may have been contained in this Japanese request for further information? Well, that just goes back to what, uh, to what Bill Hillman just told you. Uh, the information that we received from a source that is high and reliable, but is totally unconfirmed. We have, we've tried to get confirmation of it and cannot get it. Let me impress that was that the long-coded message from Tokyo to Switzerland contained uh, a request from Japan for further clarification. Isn't that correct, Bill? That's right. It was uh, absolutely unconfirmed, but it, it came from so authentic a source that it could not be ignored, and that's the reason I brought this up in, on the air today. This is Cecil Brown in New York. Well, the only point which would need clarification then would be uh, Secretary Burns' uh, note uh, uh, specifying uh, the position of the emperor, that he would be subservient to our orders, since all other points of the Potsdam ultimatum had been accepted uh, by Japan. Uh, Cecil, as uh, Bill Hillman, a uh, question, of course, that may have been asked uh, is uh, some, uh, some practical details about delivery of uh, ships or uh, where officers are to go for surrender and that sort of thing. Well, Bill, I'm going to stick my neck out with no sources of information at all. This is Churn, just to identify the neck that stuck out, and say that I think the capping irony of all may have occurred uh, in, the, in the message that was received by the Swiss legation. Uh, legation. Uh, I believe there's a possibility that that message was a protest over our use of the atom bomb. In other words, I'm accepting the Swiss statement quite literally, that it had nothing to do with the subject the world has been waiting for. And I believe that the, there's a good possibility the message was a protest against our action rather than a surrender to our, to, to our force. A protest this, on the part of Switzerland, you mean? No, no, a protest on the part of the Japanese government transmitted through Switzerland to the United States protesting against our use of the atom bomb. We're just wondering if you men have Charles Hodges tied up down there. We have well, I'm getting hot. ready to break in there on this right. uh, protest matter. I uh, think that we have to recognize there's a pattern back of this whole Japanese setup. It's time to take a look at the calendar, what's gone on, and particularly uh, to go back to that idea as to whether we know what's uh, really cooking in Japan. We may be fed a complete phony picture at this point, and my feeling is that this is all for the Western record, and that behind this screen of delay, we are going to get a considerable diplomatic joke. I can't help feeling that this is part of laying plans for the new phase of the war against foreigners, which the Japanese have been waging since the 1600s, when they rebuffed the first foreign effort to get into Japan and went into retirement for over 200 years. Then we drove them out into the open again, and they went off to world conquest. We've got to recognize that these Japanese have been bred on one idea. I'd like to ask Cecil Brown, uh, after all, Cecil and, uh, and Charlie Hodges here know the Japanese and know them well. I don't. I don't know their reactions. Uh, this business of face is a strange thing to me. Well, you're uh, well off for not knowing them, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Second uh, that. Uh, I'd, I'd like to ask whether it is your idea that uh, 
in this delay, uh, apropos of what Charlie has just said, that in this delay is a deliberate military trick, uh, not to surrender at all, but to lead us into some kind of a trap, or whether you mean that they do intend to surrender, but with such qualifications and such uh, 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 circumlocution that uh, they'll be in a position to carry on, despite their defeat, an economic or an internal war against foreigners in the future. I think it's a combination of both, Fulton. It's quite possible that the Japanese are massing their their, uh, remaining strength in the air and at sea for a series of uh, kamikaze attacks. It's also quite possible that the Japanese have needed more time to organize their underground activities, to uh, issue orders to their secret societies, because we all know that this, uh, the defeat of Japan has come far sooner than, not, than they expected. I know that when I was in Singapore, they, the Japanese there, in roundabout ways, said that their intention was to fight a ten-year war, to win a quick victory and then build fighter aircraft and sit back and wait for us to try to beat them back. Their theory, theory was that we would get tired of fighting a war and make a peace. Now, all their, their defeat has come almost overnight, in a sense, and it's quite possible they have not prepared their long-range program. This is Hodges. I'd associate myself with you, Cecil, in that. There just isn't any question that the Japanese look upon this as an possible armistice, but simply stopping the struggle for a second or two in world history. Precisely what the Army and Navy have been warning about. Well, gentlemen, I'm sorry, but time is up. There's much more to talk about on this forum, particularly since none of us know right now where we are going. Our panel participants have been William Hillman of Colliers, Charles Hodges, foreign news analyst, and Fulton Lewis, Jr., well-known Washington commentator, speaking from Washington. And from New York, Cecil Brown, author and foreign correspondent, and Leo Chern, executive secretary of the Research Institute of America. Tom Slater speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. The Paula Stone, Phil Brito Show with Bing Crosby, a special guest, will follow station identification. Cedric Foster will be at 71 on the dial at 2 o'clock with an analysis of the latest news. Because of the rapid developments in the news, WOR will continue to interrupt all regularly scheduled broadcasts to bring you important bulletins as they are received in the WOR newsroom. WOR, New York. Cremel Shampoo and Cremel Hair Tonic present Paula Stone, Phil Brito, and Paula's guest in Hollywood, one of the truly great figures of the entertainment world, Bing Crosby. We think it's a good show. Won't you sit down and listen? I took one look at you That's all I meant to do And then my heart stood still How do you do? This is Tom Shirley speaking for Cremel Shampoo and Cremel Hair Tonic. Here at the east end of the network, Phil Brito has a couple of songs ready to sing with Doc Whipple's orchestra. And due west in Hollywood, Paula Stone is thinking up questions to fire at the old groaner Bing Crosbow. Crosbow? Aren't you being a bit familiar, old boy? Well, I don't think so, Phil. When Marilyn Maxwell paid us a visit, she called him Crosbow. That's right, so she did, Tom. (laughs) And not only that, but just think of some of the names Bob Hope has given Bing from coast to coast. 
At various times, sharp snars is called being loud larynx, gravel gullet, and eagle ears. Why, that's pure slander. If I were Bing, I'd cut Bob off without a mention. I'd make him buy his publicity. Well, anyway, Phil, since Bing is Paula's guest today, what are you going to do by way of celebration? Well, I can sing a couple of songs from the picture that Bing has just produced, the great John L., now showing at your local theater. Oh, fine. The first one is a lovely new hit, A Friend of Yours. Just say that I'm a friend of yours And maybe they won't get wise And if they see us together I'll brush the dreams from my eyes I'll tell my heart it mustn't sing The song of Just say that I'm a friend of yours That you happen to meet again some beauty advice from some of the world's most divinely beautiful girls, those gorgeous Powers models who are famous for their lovely hair. Powers girls have discovered there's nothing better than cremo shampoo to wash their hair. They declare its cleansing, beautifying action is simply remarkable. Cremo shampoo not only thoroughly cleanses hair and scalp, but leaves hair just gleaming with natural, brilliant highlights and a silken sheen that lasts for days. Cremo shampoo positively contains no harsh chemicals. Instead, its beneficial oil base helps keep hair from becoming dry or brittle. Buy a bottle of Cremel shampoo at any drug counter. Results should delight you. And now the stage is set for a cross-country radio jump. We take you now to Paula Stone in Hollywood, California. Hello, everybody. You know, we've had so many exciting moments on these Kreml broadcasts when such stars as James Cagney, Betty Grable, Judy Garland, Ida Lupino, and so many other world-famous celebrities appeared here to visit with us. But today really rings a bell with the nation's number one singing star, Bing Crosby. Oh, no, Paula, you got the wrong guy. Oh, not number one singing star? No. Oh, 
Well, all right. Uh, this year's Academy Award winner, Bing Crosby. Well, it was a war year, Paula. All the good men were away. <laughs> You're off the beam, though. You're not in there yet. Oh, goodness. Still off. Keep all pitching. Right. Uh, how about uh, racehorse owner? Uh, <clears throat> You're getting warm. <laughs> oh, I know. How is this? Producer of that smash hit, the great John L., Bing Crosby. Paula, you have just rung a bell. I did. I shall answer roll call now. Well, look, my roll call includes a heap of questions, Bing, and most of them are about the great John L. That's nice. Come right in. <laughs> well, it's really such an exciting picture, and, you know, I was particularly interested in Greg McClure, who plays the title role. But how did McClure, as an unknown, win such an important part, Bing? Oh, Paula, we were uh, first picture for our company. We had no players under contract, and the big studios are very reluctant about giving you Clark Gable or somebody like that, so we uh, we just decided we'd build us a new star. I'd seen this boy Greg McClure on the set while Hope and I were making Road to Utopia. Very impressive looking guy, loaded with muscles, mm-hmm. so I kept him in mind. He's a good potential picture bet. Well, he certainly turned out to be just that, and being in compiling material for the great John L., which is, after all, the story of John L. Sullivan... You must have unearthed many exciting tales of the early days of fisticuffs. Well, he was a colorful guy. Uh-huh. And uh, really a legend with the old-timers. We got lots of mail and with information and stories and anecdotes about uh, Sullivan, most of which we'd already used in the picture. But I heard one story that was uh, kind of good for a chuckle. It seems that uh, Jim Corbett, after he'd licked uh, Sullivan for the title, was on a vaudeville tour, which took him to Boston. And Boston was Sullivan's hometown. They loved him dearly there. Uh-huh. After the show at the reception, he met a little old Irish biddy little lady, and uh, he was introduced to her as the man who licked John L. Sullivan, and she looked up at him, and she says, Faith, you had little to do, didn't you, licking a fine man like that? <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. That's very cute. Well, you know, with your many hobbies, I mean, running from your interest in inventors to your interest in the ponies, to say nothing of your picture work and overseas tours, I should think adding the title of producer to all the rest would make you a king of Superman. <laughs> How did you manage it all? I'm not sure I manage it any too well, but if I do, it's because I'm lucky enough, Paula, to be associated with clever people, people with ability. They do the work, and I stand by. Oh, listen take to the, the man. Bows. Listen take to the, the man. Well, all right. <laughs> Have you any production plans for the movie following the great John L.? up to the public. If uh, they receive the picture well and we're left with any loot, we might continue to make another one or try. Well, I certainly hope you do. And I do hope that all our movie fan listeners from coast to coast will make it a point to see the great John L. Golly, it's it's really exciting, packed with interest, particularly those fight scenes, Bing. Do you like the fight oh, scenes? Oh, they were wonderful. Well, those were directed or staged by Johnny Indrasano. He's former middleweight champion, welterweight champion, and a Boston boy, a good fighter, and I think he staged uh, three or four fights in the picture that are as good, if not better, than anything's ever been done on film before. And particularly amusing and interesting is Sullivan's fight in Paris with the French champion of the La Savate. Oh, That's yes. That's fight with the feet and uh, oh, that a was lot wonderful. of laughs in there. We've got a ballet dancer named Semenov to play this Frenchman, and uh, he really flits around. <laughs> oh, he was wonderful, and Greg McClure was great in those scenes, too. Good, uh, yeah. Bing, a moment ago you mentioned uh, McClure on your Road to Utopia movie. Now, there's another picture the fans are dying to see. <laughs> when does this road uh, take place, and where does it take you and Bob Hope? Well, it ought to be out soon, Paula. It concerns Alaska during the gold rush days. Uh-huh. Yeah. It may be the last of the road pictures, though. Really? Yeah, Hope is getting a little old for oh, me. Oh, I see. It's no longer believable, Paula, that he can win the girl, and then if that's not credible, we have no plot. Yes, I see. He's reached, he's reached a point in life, Bob, has where a cup of hot tea rests him. <laughs> so getting a little <laughs> saggy, a little beat. Oh, these road pictures you do with Bob, they're certainly favorites, Bing. You've got to admit that. We love making them. Oh, too. the 
course. Uh, Bing, do you listen to Bob Hope every Tuesday night on the radio? You do, don't you? Well, no, I'd like to, Paula, but he comes on Tuesday night the same time as the Pomona Frost warnings, and I oh. must hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want to miss that, Never. I can see. <laughs> well, uh, Bing, you know, of all the pictures, I, I believe the most eagerly awaited one is the Bells of St. Mary's with you and that other Oscar winner, Ingrid Bergman. Can you give us some advanced word about this film? I mean, is it on the order of going my way? It concerns a priest and a nun, but the story's a great deal different. I think it has a little more heart in it, uh, and we hope some humor. I think Leo McCary deserves a lot of credit. He's very brave to attempt a, another picture of the same type as Going My Way, which was quite successful. And oh, of course. Of course, everybody will be a uh, dead aim on him. If he doesn't do as well in directing this as he did on Going My Way, he'll be... You'll be censured. Well, the Hollywood grapevine. Working with the Ingrid Bergman was a great pleasure, though, Paul. Oh, She's a I wonderful know. woman and, as you know, a great talent. She's had some sensational portrayals to her credit in the past, but I think in this film she probably does one of her greatest jobs. I, I you hear you her. both outdo yourselves. I just walk around, stand... <laughs> oh, yes, I know. <laughs> oh, gosh, I wish we could Give go her on. plenty of room. you got to give you her do? plenty of room. Uh, Let her turn on. She can do it. Well, I wish we could go on talking about your pictures, particularly your first producing venture, The Great John L., but unfortunately, Bing, time is sneaking up on us. It's sneaking up on me, too, Paul. I sneaked off between shots at Paramount Lot to get over here this morning, so I guess I'd better get my beat body back there <laughs> immediately. Well, before you go, Bing, can you wait and hear Phil Brito do the other number from The Great John L.? Oh, I'd love to. Is he a tenor or a baritone? <laughs> oh, fine. You just listen in and see. I and can't before listen. the broadcast leaves the studio, I do want to thank you so much for this wonderful visit. You are wonderful to have me over, Paul. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> Thanks. Loved it. And, and now this is Paula Stone saying goodbye to Bing Crosby and back to New York. Thanks, Paul and Bing. It was a swell interview. It really was. And as Paula says, I'd like to sing the song from Great John L. When You Were Sweet Sixteen. I never loved before Since first I met you On the village green Come to me For my dream of love is all I love you I love you when you were sweet when you work, Phil. Uh, well do I remember when I was sweet 16. Wow, what a memory. I bet you celebrated by taking your gal for a ride on a horse car. You're going back a little too far there, thrush throat. However, I'll admit that it was a bit before the era of those luscious Powers models who use cremel shampoo to wash their hair. And ladies, if you do what they do, you can be sure you're buying one of the most beautifying shampoos there is. Powers girls are famous for their lovely hair, and they know what to use to wash it. Because Cremel Shampoo leaves hair just glistening with natural glossy luster and shining highlights that lasts for days. Get a bottle today, Cremel Shampoo. K-R-E-M-L, Cremel Shampoo from your drug counter. 
Well, Tom, who's Paula going to bring to her Hollywood microphone next Thursday? Another star of the movies, Lewis Hayward. Mm, Marine Officer Hayward, eh? Yeah, and what song is she going to sing for Lou? Well, the first one has just got to be romantic, so here it is. If I love you... And here's Phil Brito's second song for Thursday. I'll be down to get you in a taxi, honey. You better be ready about half past eight. Now, dearie, don't be late. I want to be there when the band starts to play. Oh, that's a real foot stomper. So till Thursday, when Paula's guest in Hollywood will be Lewis Hayward... On behalf of Kremel Shampoo and Kremel Hair Tonic, we say so long, friends. Remember, ladies, to tell the men in your family about Kremel Hair Tonic, how Kremel keeps dry, unruly summer hair neatly in place all day long, yet never leaves it plastered down or greasy-looking. Men, thank you for suggesting Kremel. is the Mutual Broadcasting System. For all the latest news as and when it happens, be sure to keep tuned to this station. It is now quarter to two. W.O.R. New York. The John J. Anthony program comes to you now by transcription. Is the sweetheart you married the husband you expected him to be? Has the war created new problems for you in your marriage? To answer these and other personal problems brought in by your friends and neighbors, Arid presents John J. Anthony, founder of the famed Marital Relations Institute, in a brand new program of daily sessions of kindly and helpful advice. Just as Mr. Anthony, by examples in this studio, is helping thousands of men and women solve their personal problems, Arid, too, is helping thousands to solve the important personal problem of underarm perspiration. Arid helps you avoid perspiration damage to clothes and safeguards friendships. Use Arid every day. It helps stop perspiration safely, and at the same time, Arid is a most effective deodorant. And now your friend and advisor, John J. Anthony, one of America's best-known counselors on human relations. By listening to Mr. Anthony's solution of the problems brought here by these people needing advice, perhaps you too can find happiness and contentment. It is with that thought in mind that these daily sessions were created. Mr. Anthony, are you ready for your first case? Quite ready, George. The first case is that of Miss C.A. All right, Miss, your prop... Did you say Miss C.A., George? C.A. All right, thank you. Uh, your problem, please. Come in. About two years ago, I met and fell in love and... Come in close, please. I met, fell in love, and became deeply involved with a man who had been recently discharged from the Army. After much persuasion on my part, we were married, and we opened a home on my money. Why did you have to persuade him? Didn't he want to get married? He said he was in no, condi- no position to marry. When you say uh, you became deeply involved, do I gather that to mean that it would have been uh, exceedingly unwise for this man not to marry you? Yes. All right, go on, please. Go well, on, For a please. while, things ran smoothly, and we got along very well with one another. Uh-huh. And, uh, when... Oh, come then, now. Up until the time I expected my baby, he asked me to live with my mother until the baby came. Uh, he, too, lived with your mother? No, or he left. Just you alone? That's right. He lived at our apartment, 
and I went to live at my mother's. He lived at your apartment and you went to reside with your mother. Why? He said that he was afraid to be left alone in the house with me if anything did happen. Well, that's novel at any rate, but go on. Go ahead, well, please. Well, after I gave birth to my baby, I moved near my mother because I was ill and needed her care. Mm-hmm. And then things were fine again. But then he he came and told me that he had become deeply involved with another girl. Aha, uh -huh, I see. That couldn't have been the a reason that he might have wanted you to live with your mother while he remained at home. I think it was the reason. Mm -hmm. All right. Go on. And, uh, he asked me to move in with my mother. And, Jim, um, we did, I did move into my mother. You've told me that. Was this the second uh, time that you yes, returned to your mother? After I he became involved with this other person? Uh -huh. That's right. I see. All right. And when I asked him if he wanted a divorce, he said no, that the girl didn't mean anything to him, that he did want to stay with me and the baby. Mm-hmm. Then after a while, we both, he said that um, he moved in with me the second time to my mother's. I, uh, I don't mean to be facetious at all, madam, believe me. I'm not trying to be humorous, but this man used a marriage license to get married, didn't he? He didn't use a commutation ticket. I have seldom, I have heard thousands of these situations. Uh, this is the third or fourth time uh, that you changed residence with and without your husband in a period of how long? It was two years. It was the second time that I went to my mother with him. Mm -hmm. All right, go on, please. And uh, he said that I, we moved in there against my advice. I didn't think, I knew that he couldn't live with my mother. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards he told me that he felt very depressed and very unhappy. About what? About living with my mother. I see, all right. And he went back to his mother's house to live, and he still didn't ask me for any divorce. Uh-huh. And then I did a foolish thing. I went to the girl and asked her if she meant anything to my husband and whether or not she wanted to marry him. Mm -hmm. that if she did, would she help me get my divorce? I see. And she told me that she wouldn't um, um, wouldn't help me because she felt it was none of her business, what, do, what my husband and I decided to do. I see. Then I spoke to her father. I thought he might be able to persuade her to see things my way. Mm -hmm. And he said that he didn't care whether or not I dragged his daughter to court because she wasn't any good. That was the father's opinion yes. of his own daughter? Mm -hmm. Now, my right. problem is this. Shall I wait until he decides whether or not he wants a divorce or wants to come back, or shall I seek a divorce? I see. In other words, he is, uh, at this particular point in your life, he isn't living with you no. anymore, huh? Uh, has your husband uh, demanded a divorce, or does he still feel, as he did some time ago, that divorce was a relatively unimportant matter and that he would prefer to remain with you and the child? Now... What's his he, attitude he at this says, moment? He's asked me to leave him alone until he can decide one way or another. I see. And uh, you'd like me to tell you whether or not I believe you ought to give him that time or whether or not you ought to get a divorce, huh? That's right. How old are you? Twenty-one. How old is your husband? Twenty-three. Twenty-three. Well, I'm not going to recommend a divorce. However, I am not going to recommend that you live with him either. You see, you didn't marry a man of 21, you married a grown-up boy of 21. He is, um, well, he doesn't understand life. He doesn't know what marriage is. Uh, he only married you because very likely you threatened to cause some difficulty in his life. So it was the easiest thing for him to do to marry you. Uh, he didn't think at that time that marriage uh, carries with it social, economic, and other responsibilities. These responsibilities he has uh, forgotten all about. Now, I don't think that he's going to awaken to them 
almost momentarily. He's not that kind of a man. The proof of that is his, his, his mode of living since he's married you. <coughs> he became involved with another young woman. Uh, he does want a divorce. He doesn't want a divorce. He does want to live with you. He doesn't want to live with you. He's uh, shuttled you between homes as though you were a chattel rather than a wife. I did say, though, that I don't recommend a divorce. I recommend your living apart from this man and having him support you and your child until such time as he has become sufficiently mature to know what a home is, what a wife is, and what a child is. Go ahead. Well, he has been sending me five dollars a week for the baby. I mean, I haven't taken him to court or anything like that mm -hmm. because his mother didn't want me to. She felt that uh, I really did mean something to him and that he w would come back eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, wait until that time uh, comes about. And when this uh, prize package that you married... I am not attempting to be sarcastic at all, but this man has an exaggerated opinion of his own value and his own worth, believe me. Not only that, but all the women in his life, including his wife, and of course his mother too, have an exaggerated idea of this man's value. It's untrue. There are other men, far more important men than this boy that you married. You stay away from him, and when he does finally make up his mind that he wants to come back to you, be very, very careful about taking him back. Make certain that he knows what marriage is. Make certain that he knows the responsibilities entailed in that marriage. And make sure that the love you think you now have for him still is in your heart. Well, Go I mean, on. Here's another part. You see, my mother-in-law wants to see the baby, and I have been bringing, bringing the baby to her weekends. But every time I go, he's been there, and uh -huh. we've ended up in an argument. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know whether to continue bringing the baby yes. to her or Yes, I, I think you want to bring the child... Uh, uh, to your in-law's home, as a matter of fact, if the, if the quarrels between you and your husband when you visit there become uh, too severe, have your in-laws come to visit you if they want to see the child. Certainly, I would not deny the grandparents the right to see the child. I don't think that concerns your husband. I think it's only a human action on your part. I would do it if I were you. But don't take him back until you're certain that he's the kind of a man you had hoped he would be when you married him. Good luck to you. you. Friends, I'll take up the next problem in just a moment. But now I want you to listen closely to a problem that concerns all of us. You know, friends, some women just don't... Wait a minute, George. You're always going on about women, telling how they should use arid and everything. How about men? Well, how about them? Well, I've heard of businessmen in offices who offend with the odor of underarm perspiration, and I've been near them in movies. After all, men are human, too. And you could very easily persuade them to get a jar of arid if you tell them what an effective deodorant it is. Right. Men... Arid is a snow-white, greaseless, and stainless antiseptic cream that safely helps stop underarm perspiration and odor. And Arid doesn't irritate the skin. It'll keep you from staining your shirt, and it'll keep you from offending others. More men and women use Arid than any other deodorant because it does its job so well. Arid is on sale at drugstores and department stores, and it's very inexpensive insurance for keeping clean and dry. Very nice. So, men and women both... Remember to use Arid Cream Deodorant daily. Buy the economical 39-cent jar. That's Arid, A-R-R-I-D. And now, here is Mr. Anthony's next case. Thank you, George. Friends, I have a letter that I'd like to read. It comes to me from Indiana, and it's signed Mrs. G.F. It says, I'm a widow and stay at home with my parents, who are both old. Father of 70, mother 65. I also have a son overseas for the past 18 months who is married and has a 15-month-old baby. Eight months ago, my daughter-in-law came over to the house 
and my mother tried to tell her what to do about the running of her business. They had words, and now my daughter-in-law no longer comes to the house. Someone wrote my son about this, and he's terribly hurt to think that they don't speak. I'm good to my parents, also good to my son's wife, and have done everything possible to smooth this over. But my mother and daughter-in-law are both stubborn, and as a result, I'm torn from side to side. My mother is old and thinks I should take her part. But I can't do that, as I want to be fair with both, and I feel that since my son is overseas, he expects me to stick to his little family. I'd like to have your advice, the writer continues, uh, what you think it is best for me to do. I want to do the right thing by both of them. Well, madam, uh, a great many people have the same uh, sort of difficulties on occasion. Uh, your difficulties are heightened by the fact that your son happens to be overseas at the moment. I don't think that it's a question of siding with either your mother or your daughter-in-law. As a matter of fact, I don't see why they should quarrel about these things. Your daughter-in-law doesn't live with your mother, and uh, she's going to run her life as she sees fit, and very likely she's not going to take direction from uh, her grandmother. Insofar as you're concerned, I think you ought to be pleasant to both your daughter-in-law and your mother. Now, why either one of these women, the old woman of 65 and the youngster, should demand that you take sides is something that I, I don't understand. I think you ought to be kind to both. That's the wisest way to do things and let your daughter-in-law run her life in her own way and not have mother interfere. Good luck to all of you. Friends, I'd like to help all of you listeners as I try to help the people that come here to the studio and those that write to me from all over the country. If you have a personal problem and need understanding and sympathetic guidance, these daily sessions have been created to fulfill that need. I think that we've been successful in helping thousands find greater happiness. Why don't you sit down now and write to me? State your problem in full detail and address it to John J. Anthony and care of the station to which you are now listening. Don't hesitate. I shall keep your name a confidential secret and never reveal your identity. And now here's something you should know about. Waiter! Waiter! Phil, did you ever see such poor service? I'm going to call the manager. Take it easy, Walt. What's mostly wrong is your grouch. I'm sorry, Phil, but my digestion is so upset. What you may need for your poor digestion is something that works after nature's own order. Try Carter's Little Liver Pills. Good advice. When your digestion is upset and you feel headachy and irritable, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. You see, each day, nature normally produces about two pints of a vital digestive juice to help digest your food. If nature fails, your food may remain undigested leaving you headachy and irritable. To feel cheerful and happy again, take Carter's Little Liver Pills. They increase the flow of this vital digestive juice quickly, often in as little as 30 minutes, and you're on the road to feeling better. Don't depend on artificial aids to counteract indigestion when Carter's Little Liver Pills aid digestion after nature's own order. Take Carter's Little Liver Pills as directed. Get them at any drugstore, only 25 cents. Join us tomorrow at this same time when we again present John J. Anthony, one of America's best-known counselors on human relations. George Putnam speaking. The John J. Anthony program was presented transcribed from the Mutual Studios in New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. A transcription. 
Captain Eddie. Who defied death a hundred times. Captain Eddie. Who inspired the faith of men. And the enduring love of a woman. See Captain Eddie starring Fred McMurray at the Roxy Theater, now playing on stage in person, Phil Silvers and Carl Ravaza. W-O-R, New York. 2 p.m., B-U-L-O-V-A, Bulova Watch Time. Bulova urges, hold war bonds. Cedric Foster will follow in a moment with an analysis of the news, one of the many important news broadcasts presented over W-O-R every day in an effort to bring the news to the public as the news is made. May we remind you of the programs to be heard over the station today. At 4 o'clock, it's John Gambling. Then Paul Schubert, well-known author and commentator, will broadcast his informed observations on world affairs at 6 o'clock. 15 minutes of news with Van Deventer as newscaster comes on at half past 6. From Washington, Fulton Lewis Jr. brings his interpretation of world events at 7 o'clock. At half past 7, it's time for Arthur Hale. At 8, Frank Singizer. And at 9 o'clock, it's Gabriel Heater. There'll be an overseas report at quarter past 10. Van Deventer returns with more news at 11 o'clock. The Herald Tribune News at quarter past 11. Because of the rapid developments in the news, we advise you to keep tuned to WOR. Now, here's Cedric Foster. This is Cedric Foster speaking to you from Boston. And after an all-night vigil here in our newsrooms in Boston, we can report to you that the situation now is exactly the same as it was at 2 o'clock in the morning insofar as diplomatic negotiations are concerned. At 2 o'clock this morning, the Dome News Agency, by means of the Tokyo Radio, announced to the world that the Japanese were going to accept the Potsdam Ultimatum. The actual words of the Dome News Agency, as transmitted from Tokyo, were as follows, and I quote it, It is learned that an imperial rescript accepting the Potsdam proclamations will be forthcoming soon. That's the end of the quotation. It was later announced uh, that the Japanese government's reply to the Allied surrender note was on its way to Bern, Switzerland. Then came a succession of events which have left the radio and newsmen trying to cover this historic uh, event, punch drunk and groggy. The first thing of importance was that the Domain News Agency made a broadcast in the Japanese language which was beamed to Japanese people in Japanese-occupied countries of Asia. This broadcast warned the Japanese to stand by for an announcement of the utmost importance which would be delivered at 8 o'clock this morning and for another announcement that would be made at 9. This was considered as highly significant, and as a matter of fact, it still is, because this statement was the first that had come from the Japanese homeland, which might be interpreted as a forerunner of the news of the intended surrender, that is, to the Japs themselves. And when that hour of 8 o'clock finally rolled around, the Domain News Agency transmitted a message, not in voice, but by means of wireless, to Japanese editors in occupied countries in Asia. This message, which was on a hold-for-release basis, told the Japanese uh, editors that the Emperor of Japan was gravely concerned regarding the calamity which he said had been brought about by the United States. The message in wireless continued with the statement that the editors were instructed to stand by for an important announcement which would be broadcast not by wireless but by voice. That announcement, Tokyo declared, would come at noon tomorrow, Tokyo time, which would be 11 o'clock this evening, Eastern War Time. In the meantime, a series of bulletins had been coming through from the Swiss in Bern. The Swiss declared through their capital that the Japanese note had been received in Bern and that it was an extremely long document. 
Because of the length of that note, it was said that at least five hours would be required to decode it, and that additional time would then be necessary to get the note to the United States. Apparently, the Japanese ministry in Switzerland was working on the assumption that this lengthy note, that is, if they were honest, was the Jap reply to the Allied ultimatum. Either they were working on that assumption, or the Swiss government was, or they both were. In any event, there was repeated news that the Japanese note was in the Swiss capital, and that when it had been decoded, it would be sent to Washington for dissemination as Washington saw fit. These repeated statements tied in, of course, with the Japanese broadcasts that Domei had put out, namely that the Japs had accepted the ultimatum and that their acceptance had been sent to Switzerland. The combination of these two gave rise to the perfectly natural assumption that the war was over, even though it was not officially ended. As a matter of fact, as I will explain to you in a moment, there is still considerable reason to believe that it is coming very quickly to a close. Shortly after noon today, Presidential Secretary Charlie Ross called radio and press men into a conference at the White House. This conference came just after a member of the Swiss legation had arrived at the chief executive's mansion on Pennsylvania Avenue. The expected news of the surrender from an official point of view did not develop at this conference. To the contrary, Mr. Ross announced that the Swiss government had informed him that the official Japanese reply to the Potsdam ultimatum had not yet been received in the Swiss capital at Bern. What was that lengthy message which was going to take five hours to decode? Well, that has not been revealed by the Japanese in Bern. Whatever it was, however, it was not Japan's acceptance of the Potsdam terms. It may have taken five hours to decode it, but it gave no answer to what the world is waiting so anxiously to hear, namely that the Japanese are going to lay down their arms. So that, apparently, is the situation up to the moment. The only thing that can be termed of an official nature is the Japanese Domei statement that Japan has accepted the terms and that that acceptance is on its way to Switzerland. When it will get to Switzerland is anyone's guess. But as we attempt to untangle that twisted skein of official and unofficial reports, it would seem now that the Japanese are waiting possibly for a simultaneous announcement by themselves to their own people and the Allied government's announcement, or as nearly simultaneous as the Japs can make it. They can accomplish this by managing to deliver their note of acceptance just about the same time that they will talk in the Japanese language to the people of Japanese-occupied Asia. There still is some confusion as to whether the Japs have told their own people, that is, the people living in Japan proper, there's some confusion as to whether those people have been told of the impending disaster. It does not appear that they have been told so in so many hard and fast words. There are two factors in connection with this, however. The Japanese press for days past have been preparing the people for the defeat of the empire and for the collapse of Japan's dream of worldwide conquest. They have done this through the medium of editorials. These editorials have all been of the same vein. They've called upon the Japanese to stand by the emperor and no matter what happens to obey the mandates of Hirohito implicitly. They have literally hammered this into the Japanese heads time and time again. They've emphasized the fact that Japan stands right now at the most critical moment in her history of thousands of years. As these facts were being driven into the Japanese brain, and as editors in Japanese-occupied Asia were told to stand by for their momentous announcement at 11 o'clock tonight, the Japanese home islands have been flooded with millions of leaflets from American and possibly from British aircraft. 
but certainly from United States planes. These leaflets have told the Japanese people of the Japanese government's intention to lay down Japan's arms as announced by the Dome News Agency. The Department of Psychological Warfare has done an excellent job operating with these planes out of the Mariana Islands. And it's the same sort of work that General MacArthur's similar Department of Psychological Warfare carried out from Manila in connection with the Russian entry into this war. Just a few minutes ago, you heard a roundtable discussion of Mutual's news analysts talking to you from New York and from Washington. Fulton Lewis and Bill Hillman pointed out that high government officials in Washington are getting pretty fed up with this entire deal. It smacks too much of former Japanese actions of so sorry, please, and we don't understand, but please believe that our intentions are entirely honorable. It carries with it a sort of Pearl Harbor-ish feeling that we don't know what these Far Eastern enemies are doing, that they may be giving us what we can term the well-known run around the mulberry bush. In this connection, it seems as though it should be borne in mind that the Japanese and ourselves are as far apart as the North Pole is from the South in all of our codes of ethics. The Japanese simply don't think in the same manner as we do. They adhere to no standards except those which are dictated by the exigency of the moment, dictated to save their own necks and at the same time to destroy the necks of their opponents. There was some feeling in Washington today that the long Japanese note which was received in Switzerland, the note which was thought to contain the Japanese acceptance of surrender, but which did not, there is a feeling that this note might possibly contain a Japanese request for further clarification of the Potsdam terms. Just what purpose this would serve, just how this would help Japan is difficult to see, unless it is another attempt by the Japanese ruling class to get out from under or to continue the war under other conditions. Certainly it is a breathing space in the prosecution of the war for Japan. Allied attacks, particularly from American bombers and from the United States Navy, have dropped off. There is no report of activity of these planes and ships late today. I have, however, a message which has come through from Guam, a dispatch which reads, and I read it to you now, between 950 and 1,000 superforts and fighter planes smashed heavily in dreaded fire, demolition, and strafing attacks against Japanese war industries yesterday and early today while the world awaited the Emperor's answer to allied surrender demands. About 6,000 tons of bombs were dropped on six military targets in the last 24 hours, Strategic Air Force Headquarters announced today. And this made that period one of the busiest days in the history of the Air Force. It is quite possible that when we get right down to it, the Russians can teach us a great deal regarding the method of prosecuting a war. The Russians have only been in this show for about a week or so. I actually don't remember when they went into the picture after being up all night here in the newsroom. But anyway, it's about a week. The Russian armies are cutting into Manchuria in gigantic, swirling armored drives. They're said to be literally tearing the Asiatic soil apart. And as they move ahead, they're not talking about peace. They're not even thinking, apparently, with dealing with the Japs. The technicalities of such deals, of course, they have left to the United States as their representative. And it's the representative of all of the Allied powers. The Russians, however, can't help but give us the feeling that they're concerned with only one thing killing just as many Japs as they can as they press forward in Manchuria and Korea. 
Perhaps that's the better way. It certainly is the Russian way, and the Russians have learned many a bitter lesson in double-dealing from the Germans. They learned it, as a matter of fact, from the Japs 40 years ago at Port Arthur. The Russians have not got convenient memories. They have long and unforgetting memories. They may be trapped once in double-dealing, but they stand as a notable exception to Rudyard Kipling's statement that the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And our philosophy cries out against too great a belief in the lack of honor of any nation. Despite that fact, or despite the fact that Japan dealt us a crushing blow at Pearl Harbor, we are still of the opinion, or we are now at any rate, that the Japs are down and out now, and as such we ought to extend the hand of magnanimity to them. All of this, of course, does not stand up. I mean, if we abandon this theory, it doesn't stand up to the nth degree of our rigid interpretation of our philosophy. There might come a time, however, when we, consider, we could consider the possibility of deviating from our code and not violate accepted standards. There comes a time when the only manner of fighting fire is by fire itself. This is Cedric Foster speaking to you from Boston. I'll be back with you tomorrow at the same time. Cedric Foster has been presented in his analysis of today's news from Boston. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Every afternoon, Monday through Friday at half past four, Dr. Walter H. Eddy conducts his Food and Home Forum, a half hour full of facts and figures about good things to eat and other interesting items about homemaking. You can hear Dr. Eddy this afternoon at half past four on the Food and Home Forum. W.O.R. New York. And we've been listening to August 14th on W.O.R. You know, the surrender happened in the evening at 7 o'clock Eastern. So this was covering from noon to 2. Before that, we heard two days before, August 12th, Sunday afternoon, again on W.O.R. So with that... We'll be with you tomorrow. John Roy should be back. Ed Coote should join us. So, may the good Lord Jesus Christ bless you. And this is Yesterday USA. Good morning, everybody. Love you all very, very much.
Jaws Professional, Saturday night 826 Alt F4. Alt Tab, Sound Forge Pro 11, Escape, Escape, Enter. 1.2.5, Enter. Menu, File Menu, A, Leaving Menus, Data Window, Sound 1 Star, Save as Dialog, File Name, Sound 1, Edit. S A T U R D A Y N I G A T 8 2 6 1 7 S E C O N D P C D I T A P A T R I C I A G U E S T T E D S L E V E S T E R Save as Save but Enter Data Window Jaws Professional. Alt Tab. Type a message here. Alt Tab. MP Alt Tab. Skype trademark 24 Walden. Alt Page Down. Alt Tab. Patricia Alt Tab. MP Alt Tab. Bill Bragg. Bill Bragg. Windows M. Desktop. S-C-K-T-S-C-K-T-S. Sound Forge Enter. User account Y. Sound Forge.